Chapter 29 The Festival of Birds Waking to the dice, Matt considered going back to sleep until they went away. But at last he got up feeling grumpy. As if he did not have more than enough on his plate already. He chased Naram away and dressed himself, eating the last of the bread and cheese from the night before while he did, then went to check on Oliver. The boy flashed between bursts of yanking on his clothes in a hurry to be out, and stopping entirely with boot or shirt in hand, to spout dozens of questions that Matt answered with half a mind. No, they would not go racing today, and never mind the rich races at the Circuit of Heaven north of the city. Maybe they could go see the menagerie. Yes, Matt would buy him a feathered mask for the festival, if he ever got dressed. That sent him into a flurry. What really occupied Matt's thoughts were those bloody dice. Why had they started up again? He still did not know why they had before. When Oliver was finally clothed, he followed Matt into the sitting room, bubbling with half-heard questions, and bumped him from behind when he stopped dead. Tylen replaced the book Oliver had been reading the night before on the table. Majesty! Matt's eyes darted to the door he had locked last night, now standing wide open. What a surprise! He pulled Oliver around in front of him, between him and the woman's mocking smile. Well, maybe it was not really mocking, but it surely seemed so right then. She was certainly pleased with herself. I was about to take Oliver out, to see the festival, and some traveling menagerie. He wants a feathered mask. He snapped his mouth shut to stop babbling and started edging toward the door, using the boy as a shield. Yes, Tylen murmured, watching through her eyelashes. She made no move to intervene, but her smile deepened, as if she was just waiting for his foot to land in the snare. Much better if he has a companion instead of running with the urchins, as I hear he does. One hears a good deal about your lad. Rizella? A woman appeared in the doorway, and Matt gave a start. A fanciful mask of swirling blue and golden feathers hid most of Rizella's face, but the feathers on the rest of her costume did not hide very much else. She possessed the most spectacular bosom he had ever seen. "'Alver,' she said, sinking to her knees, "'would you like to walk out with me at festival?' She held up a mask like a red-and-green hawk, just the right size for a boy. Before Matt could open his mouth, Alver broke free and rushed to her. "'Oh, yes, please! Thank you!' The ungrateful little lout laughed as she tied the hawk mask on his face— and hugged him to her bosom. Hand in hand, they ran out, leaving Matt gaping. He recovered himself quickly enough when Tylen said, Well for you, I am not a jealous woman, my sweet. She produced the long iron key to his door from behind her gold and silver belt, and then another just like it, waggling the pair at him. People always keep keys in a box near the door. That was where he had left his. And no one ever thinks there might be a second key. One key went back behind her belt. The other was turned in the lock with a loud click before joining its fellow. Now, Lambkin, she smiled. It was too much. 
The woman hounded him, tried to starve him. Now she locked them in together like... like he did not know what. Lambkin? Those bloody dice were bouncing around in his skull. Besides, he had important business to see to. The dice had never had anything to do with finding something, but... He reached her in two long strides, seized her arm, and began fumbling in her belt for the keys. I don't have bloody time for... His breath froze as the sharp point of her dagger beneath his chin shut his mouth and drove him right up onto his toes. Remove your hand, she said coldly. He managed to look down his nose at her face. She was not smiling now. He let go of her arm carefully. She did not lessen the pressure of her blade, though. She shook her head. I do try to make allowances for you being an outlander, Gosling. But since you wish to play roughly, hands at your sides. Move. The knife point gave a direction. He shuffled backward on tiptoe rather than have his neck sliced. What are you going to do? He mumbled through his teeth. A stretched neck put a strain in his voice. A stretched neck, among other things. Well... He could try grabbing her wrist. He was quick with his hands. What are you going to do? Quick enough with the knife already at his throat. That was the question. That and the one he asked her. If she intended to kill him, a shove of her wrist right there would drive the dagger straight up into his brain. Will you answer me? That was not panic in his voice. He was not in a panic. Majesty? Tylan? Well, maybe he was in a bit of a panic, to use her name. You could call any woman in Ebudar duckling or pudding all day, and she would smile. But use her name before she said you could, and you found a hotter reception than you would for goosing a strange woman on the street anywhere else. A few kisses exchanged were never enough for permission either. Tylan did not answer only kept him tiptoeing backward until suddenly his shoulders bumped against something that stopped him. With that flaming dagger never easing a hair, he could not move his head, but his eyes that had been focused on her face darted. They were in the bedchamber, a flower-carved red bedpost hard between his shoulder blades. Why would she bring him? His face was suddenly as crimson as the bedpost. No, she could not mean to... It was not decent. It was not possible. You can't do this to me, he mumbled at her. And if his voice was a touch breathy and shrill, he surely had cause. Watch and learn, my kitten, Tylan said, and drew her marriage knife. Afterward, a considerable time later, he irritably pulled the sheet up to his chest. A silk sheet... Nelesian had been right. The Queen of Altara hummed happily beside the bed, arms twisted behind her to do up the buttons of her dress. All he had on was the foxhead medallion on its cord, much good that had done, and the black scarf tied around his neck. A ribbon on her present, the bloody woman called it. He rolled over and snatched his silver-mounted pipe and tobacco pouch from the small table on the other side from her. Golden tongs and a hot coal and a golden bowl of sand provided the means for lighting. 
Folding his arms, he puffed away as fiercely as he frowned. You should not flounce, duckling, and you shouldn't pout. She yanked her dagger from where it was driven into a bedpost beside her marriage knife, examining the point before sheathing it. What is the matter? You know you enjoyed yourself as much as I did, and I... She laughed suddenly and oh so richly, resheathing the marriage knife as well. If that is part of what being Taviran means, you must be very popular. Matt flushed like fire. It isn't natural, he burst out, yanking the pipe stem from between his teeth. I'm the one who's supposed to do the chasing. Her astonished eyes surely mirrored his own. Had Tylan been a tavern maid who smiled the right way, he might have tried his luck. Well, if the tavern maid lacked a son who liked poking holes in people. But he was the one who chased. He had just never thought of it that way before. He had never had the need to before. Tylan began laughing, shaking her head and wiping at her eyes with her fingers. Oh, pigeon, I do keep forgetting. You are in Ebudar now. I left a little present for you in the sitting room. She patted his foot through the sheet. Eat well today. You are going to need your strength. Matt put a hand over his eyes and tried very hard not to weep. When he uncovered them, she was gone. Climbing out of the bed, he tucked the sheet around him. For some reason, the notion of walking around bare felt uncomfortable. The bloody woman might leap out of the wardrobe. The garments he had been wearing lay on the floor. Why bother with laces, he thought sourly, when you can just cut somebody's clothes off. She had no call to slice up his red coat that way, though. She had just enjoyed peeling him with her knife. Not quite holding his breath, he pulled open the tall red and gilt wardrobe. She was not hiding inside. His choices were limited. Naram had most of his coats for cleaning or mending. Dressing quickly, he chose a plain coat of dark bronze silk, then stuffed the sliced rags as far under the bed as he could reach until he could dispose of them without Naram seeing. Or anyone else, for that matter. Too many people already knew entirely too much of what was going on between him and Tylan. There was no way he could face anybody knowing this. In the sitting room, he lifted the lid of the lacquerware box by the door, then let it fall with a sigh. He had not really expected Tylan to replace the key. He leaned against the door, the unlocked door. Light, what was he going to do? Move back to the inn? Burn why the dice had stopped before. Only he would not put it past Tylan to bribe Mistress Anan and Enid, or the innkeeper wherever he went. He would not put it past Nynaeve and Elaine to claim he had broken some agreement and put an end to their promises. Burn all women. A large parcel, elaborately wrapped in green paper, sat on one of the tables. It contained an eagle mask in black and gold, and a coat covered with feathers to match. There was also a red silk purse holding twenty gold crowns, and a note that smelled of flowers. I would have bought you an earring, piglet, but I noticed your ear is not pierced. Have it done, and buy yourself something nice. He nearly wept again. He gave women presents. The world was standing on its head. 
piglet? Oh, light. After a minute, he did take the mask. She owed him that much, for his coat alone. When he finally reached the small shaded courtyard, where they had been meeting each morning beside a tiny round pool of lily pads and brightly spotted white fish, he found Elysian and Brigitta ready for the festival of birds, too. The tyrant had contented himself with a plain green mask, but Brigitta's was a spray of yellow and red with a crest of plumes. Her golden hair hung loose, with feathers tied all down its length, and she wore a dress with a wide yellow belt, diaphanous, beneath more red and yellow feathers. It did not reveal nearly as much as Rosella's, yet it seemed about to every time she moved. He had never thought of her wearing a dress like other women. Sometimes it's fun to be looked at, she said, poking him in the ribs when he commented. Her grin would have done for Nelesian, saying how much fun it was to pinch serving girls. There's a lot more to it than feather dancers wore, but not enough to slow me down. And anyway, I cannot see we'll have to move quickly on this side of the river. The dice rattled in his head. What kept you, she went on. You didn't make us wait so you could tickle a pretty girl, I hope. He hoped he was not blushing. I... He was not certain what excuse he would have made, but just then half a dozen men wearing feathered coats strolled into the courtyard, all with those narrow swords on their hips, all but one wearing an elaborate mask with colorful crest and beak that represented no bird ever seen by human eyes. The exception was Beslin, twirling his mask by its ribbon. Oh, blood and bloody ashes, what's he doing here? Beslin? Nelesian folded his hands in the pommel of his sword and shook his head in disbelief. Why, burn my soul, he says he intends to spend the festival in your company. Some promise you two made, he says. I told him it would be deadly boring, but he wouldn't believe me. I cannot think it is ever boring around Matt, Tylan's son said. His bow took them all in, but his dark eyes especially lingered on Brigitta. I've never had so much fun as I did drinking with him in Lady Elaine's water on Swovan night. The truth, I remember little. He did not seem to recognize that water. Strangely, considering the taste she had shown in men, Beslin was fine-looking, maybe a little too fine, not at all her sort. Strangely, she smiled slightly and preened under his scrutiny. Right then, Matt did not care how out of character she behaved. Obviously, Beslin suspected nothing, or that sort of his likely would already be out, but the last thing under the light Matt wanted was a day in company with the man. It would be excruciating. He had some sense of decency, even if Beslin's mother did not. The only problem was Beslin, who took that bloody promise to attend all the festivals and feast days together very seriously. The more Matt agreed with Nelesian that the day they had planned would be dull beyond belief, the more determined Beslin grew. After a bit, his face began to darken, and Matt began to think that sword might be unsheathed yet. Well, a promise was a promise. When he and Elysian and Brigitte left the palace, half a dozen feathered fools strutted along. Matt was sure it would not have happened had Brigitte been wearing her proper clothes. The whole lot of them kept eyeing her and smiling. What was all that twisting around while he was spilling his eyes all over you, he muttered as they crossed the Mulhara. He tugged the ribbon holding the eagle mask tighter. I did not twist. I moved. 
Her primness was so blatantly false, he would have laughed some other time. Slightly. Abruptly, her grin was back, and she lowered her voice for his ear alone. I told you, sometimes it's fun to be looked at. Just because they're all too pretty doesn't mean I cannot enjoy them looking. Oh, you'll want to look at her, she added, pointing to a slender woman who went running by in a blue owl mask and rather fewer feathers than Rosella had worn. That was one of the things about Brigida. She would nudge him in the ribs and point out a pretty girl for his eyes readily as any man he had ever known, and expect him to point out in turn what she liked to see, which was generally the ugliest man in sight. Whether or not she chose to go half-naked today, a quarter anyway, she was, well, a friend. A strange world it was turning out to be. One woman he was beginning to think of as a drinking companion— and another after him as intently as he had ever pursued any pretty woman. In those old memories or his own. More intently, he had never chased any woman who let him know she did not want to be chased. A very strange world. The sun stood little more than halfway to its peak, but already celebrants filled the streets and squares and bridges. Tumblers and jugglers and musicians, with feathers sewn about their clothes, performed at every street corner, the music often drowned in laughter and shouting. For the poorer folk, a few feathers laced into their hair sufficed, pigeon feathers gathered from the pavement for the street children dodging about and the beggars. But masks and costumes grew more elaborate as purses grew heavier. More elaborate and frequently more scandalous. Men and women alike were often decked in feathers that revealed more skin than Rosella or that woman back in the Malhara. No commerce moved in the streets or canals today, though a number of shops seemed to be open, along with every tavern and inn, of course. But here and there a wagon made its way through the throng, or a barge was pulled along supporting a platform where young women and men posed in bright bird masks that covered their entire heads, with spreading crests sometimes rising a full pace, moving long, colorful wings in such a way that the rest of their costumes were exposed only in flashes which was just as well, considering. According to Beslin, these settings, as they were called, were usually presented in guild halls and private palaces and houses. The entire festival normally took place indoors for the most part. It did not snow properly in Ebudar, even when the weather was as it should be. Beslin said he would like to see this snow one day. But apparently ordinary winter was cold enough to keep people from running around outdoors all but unclothed. With the heat, everything was spilling into the streets. Wait until night fell, Beslin said. Then Matt would really see something. As sunlight faded, so did inhibitions. Staring at a tall, slender woman gliding along through the crowd in mask and feathered cloak, and beyond that six or seven feathers... Matt wondered what inhibitions some of these folk had left to shed. He almost shouted at her to cover herself with that cloak. She was pretty, but out in the street, before the light and everybody? Those wagons carrying the settings attracted followers, of course, thick knots of men and women who shouted and laughed as they tossed coins and sometimes folded notes onto the wagons and squeezed everyone else in the street aside. He became used to fleeing ahead until they could duck down a crossing street or waiting until the setting went by to cross an intersection or bridge. 
While waiting, Brigitte and Nelesian tossed coins to filthy urchins and dirtier beggars. Well, Nelesian tossed. Brigitte concentrated on the children and pressed each coin into a grubby hand like a gift. In one of those waits, Beslin suddenly put a hand on Elysian's arm, raising his voice above the crowd and a cacophony of music coming from at least six different places. Forgive me, Tyrin, but not him. A ragged man edged back into the throng, warily. Gaunt-cheeked and bony, he seemed to have lost whatever pitiful feathers he might have found for his hair. Why not? Elysian demanded. No brass ring on his little finger, Beslin replied. He's not in the guild. Light, Matt said. A man can't even beg in this city without belonging to a guild? Maybe it was his tone. The beggar leaped for his throat, a knife appearing in his grimy fist. Without thinking, Matt grabbed the man's arm and spun, slinging him away into the crowd. Some people cursed at Matt, some at the sprawling beggar. Some tossed the fellow a coin. From the corner of his eye, Matt saw a second skinny man in rags try to push Brigitte out of the way to reach him with a long knife. It was a foolish mistake to underestimate the woman because of her costume. From somewhere among those feathers, she produced a knife and stabbed him beneath the arm. Look out! Matt shouted at her, but there was no time for warnings. Even as he shouted, he drew from his coat sleeve and threw side-armed. The blade streaked past her face to sink into the throat of yet another beggar flaunting steel before he could plant it in her ribs. Suddenly there were beggars everywhere with knives and clubs studded with spikes. Screams and shouts rose as people in masks and costumes scrambled to get out of the way. Nelesian slashed a man in rags across the face, sending him reeling. Beslin ran another through the middle, while his costumed cronies fought still others. Matt had no time to see more. He found himself back to back with Brigida and facing his own adversaries. He could feel her shifting against him, hear her mutter curses, but he was barely conscious of it. Brigida could take care of herself, and watching the two men in front of him, he was not sure he could do the same. The hulking fellow with the toothless sneer had only one arm and a puckered socket where his left eye had been, but his fist held a club two feet long encircled by iron bands that sprouted spikes like steel thorns. His rat-faced little companion still had both eyes and several teeth, and despite sunken cheeks and arms that seemed all bone and sinew, he moved like a snake, licking his lips and flicking a rusty dagger from hand to hand. Matt aimed the shorter knife in his own hand, first at one, then the other. It was still long enough to reach a man's vitals, and they danced and shuffled, each waiting for the other to leap at him first. Old Cully won't like this spar, the bigger man growled, and Ratface darted forward, rusty blade flashing from hand to hand. He did not count on the knife that suddenly appeared in Matt's left hand, and sliced across his wrist. The dagger clattered to the paving stones, but the fellow flung himself at Matt anyway. As Matt's other blade stabbed into his chest, he squealed, eyes going wide, arms wrapping around Matt convulsively. The bald fellow's sneer widened, his club rising as he stepped in. The grin vanished as two beggars swarmed over him, snarling and stabbing. Staring incredulously, Matt shoved Ratface's corpse away. The street was clear for fifty paces except for combatants, and everywhere beggars rolled on the pavement— two or three or sometimes four stabbing at one, beating him with clubs or rocks. Beslin caught Matt's arm. 
There was blood on his face, but he was grinning. Let's get out of here and let the Fellowship of Alms finish its business. There's no honor in fighting beggars, and besides, the Guild won't leave any of these interlopers alive. Follow me. Nelesian was scowling. Doubtless he saw no honor in fighting beggars either. And Besselin's friends, several with their costumes awry, and one with his mask off so another could dab at a cut across his forehead. The man with the cut was grinning too. Birgitta bore not a scratch that Matt could see, and her costume looked as neat as it had back in the palace. She made her knife disappear. There was no way she could hide a blade under those feathers, but she did. Matt made no protest at being drawn away, but he did growl. Do beggars always go around attacking people in this... this city? Besslin might not appreciate hearing it called a bloody city. The man laughed. You are Tavirin, Matt. There's always excitement around Tavirin. Matt smiled back with gritted teeth. Bloody fool, bloody city, and bloody Tavirin. Well, if a beggar slit his throat, he would not have to go back to the palace and let Tylan peel him like a ripe pear. Come to think of it, she had called him her little pear. Bloody everything! The street between the dyer shop and the Rose of the Elbar had its share of revelers, though not many scantily clad. Apparently you had to have coin to go near naked. Though the acrobats in front of the merchant's house on the corner came close, the men barefoot and bare-chested in tight, brightly colored breeches, the women in even tighter breeches and thin blouses. They all had a few feathers in their hair, as did the capering musicians playing in front of the small palace at the far corner. A woman with a flute, another blowing on a tall, twisted black tube covered with levers, and a fellow beating a timbre for all he was worth. The house they had come to watch looked shut up tight. The tea at the Rose was as bad as ever, which meant it was much better than the wine. Elysian stuck to the sour local ale. Birgitta said thanks without saying for what, and Matt shrugged it off silently. They grinned at each other and tapped cups. The sun rose, and Besselin sat balancing first one boot on the toe of the other, then the other way around. But his companions began growing restive, no matter how often he pointed out that Matt was Tavirin. A scuffle with beggars was hardly proper excitement. The street was too narrow for any settings to pass. The women were not as pretty as elsewhere, and even looking at Brigida seemed to Paul once they realized that she did not intend to kiss even one of them. With protestations of regret that Besselin would not come, they hurried off to find somewhere more exhilarating. Nelesian took a stroll down the alley beside the dyers, and Brigida vanished into the Rose's murky interior to find, she said, whether there was anything at all fit to drink hidden in some forgotten corner. I never expected to see a warder garbed like that, Besselin said, changing his boots around. Matt blinked. The fellow had sharp eyes. She had not removed her mask once. Well, as long as he did not know about. I think you will be good for my mother, Matt. Choking, Matt sprayed tea into the passers-by. Several glared at him angrily, and one slender woman with a nice little bosom gave him a coy smile from beneath a blue mask he thought was meant to be a wren. She stamped a foot and stalked off when he did not smile back. Luckily, no one was angry enough to take it beyond glares before they too went on their way. Or maybe unluckily. He would not have minded if six or eight piled on him right then. What do you mean? he said hoarsely. Besselin's head whipped around in wide-eyed surprise. Why, 
Her choosing you for her pretty, of course. Why is your face so red? Are you angry? Why? Suddenly he slapped his forehead and laughed. You think I will be angry? Forgive me. I forget you're an outlander. Matt, she's my mother, not my wife. Father died ten years ago, and she has always claimed to be too busy. I'm just glad she chose someone I like. Where are you going? He did not realize he was on his feet until Besselin spoke. I just need to clear my head. But you're drinking tea, Matt. Dodging around a green sedan chair, he half saw the door of the house open, and a woman with a blue feathered cloak over her dress slip out. Unthinkingly, his head was spinning too much to think clearly, he fell in behind her. Besselin knew. He approved. His own mother and he... Matt! Nelesian shouted behind him. Where are you going? If I'm not back by tomorrow, Matt shouted back absently over his shoulder, tell them they'll have to find it for themselves. He walked on after the woman in a daze, not hearing if Nelesian or Besselin shouted again. The man knew... He remembered once thinking that Beslan and his mother were both mad. They were worse. All of Ebudar was mad. He was hardly aware of the dice still spinning inside his skull. From a window of the meeting room, Rihanna watched Solane disappear down the street toward the river. Some fellow in a bronze coat followed in her wake, but if he tried to impede her, he would find out soon enough that Solane had no time for men and no patience with them. Rihanna was not sure why the urge had grown so strong today. For days it had come on almost with the morning and faded with the sun, and for days she had fought. By the strict rules they did not quite dare call laws, that order was given at the half-moon, still six nights off. But today... She had spoken the order before she thought, and been unable to make herself retract until the proper time. It would be well. No one had seen any sign of those two young fools calling themselves Elaine and Nynaeve anywhere in the city. Thank the light, there had been no need to take dangerous chances. Sighing, she turned to the others, who waited until she took her chair before seating themselves. It would be well, as it always had been. Secrets would be kept, as they always had been. But still... She had no touch of foretelling or anything of that sort, yet perhaps that overwhelming urge had been telling her something. Twelve women watched her expectantly. I think we should consider moving everyone who does not wear the belt to the farm for a little while. There was little discussion. They were the elders, but she was the eldest. In that, at least, there was no harm in behaving as Aes Sedai did. Chapter 30 The First Cup I do not understand this, Elaine protested. She had not been offered a chair. In fact, when she started to sit, she'd been told curtly to remain standing. Five sets of eyes were focused on her, five women with set, grim faces. You are behaving as if we've done something terrible, when what we have done is find the bowl of the winds. At least they were on the brink of it, she hoped. 
The message Nalesian had come running back with was none too clear. Matt had gone off shouting that he had found it, or something very like, Nalesian allowed. The longer he talked, the more he bounced between absolute certainty and doubt. Birgitta had remained watching Rihanna's house. She seemed to be sweaty and bored. In any case, matters were in motion. Elaine wondered how Nynaeve was getting on. Better than herself, she hoped. She had certainly never expected this when she revealed their success. You have endangered a secret kept close by every woman to wear the shawl for over two thousand years. Marilla sat stiff-backed, serenity almost abandoned on the tight-lipped brink of apoplexy. You must have been insane. Only madness could excuse this. What secret? Elaine demanded. Van Deen, flanking Marilla with her sister, adjusted pale green silk skirts irritably and said, Time enough for that when you've been properly raised, child. I thought you had some sense. Adelias, in a dark gray wool with deep brown trim, nodded, mirroring Van Deen's disapproval. The child cannot be faulted for revealing a secret she did not know, Kariana Francie said from Elaine's left, shifting her bulk in her green and gilt armchair. She was not stout, but almost, with shoulders as wide and arms as thick as most men. Tower law does not allow for excuses, Saritha put in quickly, in somewhat self-important tones, her normally inquisitive brown eyes stern. Once mere excuses are allowed, inevitably lesser and lesser excuses will become acceptable until law itself is gone. Her high-backed chair stood to the right. Only she wore her shawl, but Marililla's sitting room had been arranged as a court, though no one called it that. So far, no one had. Marililla, Adelias, and Van Deen confronted Elaine like judges. Saritha's chair was placed where the seat of rebuke would be, and Kariana's the seat of pardon. But the Domani Green, who would have been her defender, nodded thoughtfully, as the Tyron Brown, who would have been her prosecutor, continued. She has admitted guilt from her own mouth. I recommend that the child be confined to the palace until we leave, with some good hard work to occupy her mind and her hands. I also recommend a firm dose of the slipper at regular intervals to remind her not to go behind sister's backs, and the same for Nynaeve, as soon as she can be found. Elaine swallowed. Confined? Perhaps they did not need to name this a trial for it to be one. Saritha might not yet have achieved the ageless face, but the weight of the other women's years pressed at Elaine. Adelias and Van Deen with their hair nearly all white, even their ageless faces echoing years. Marililla's hair was glossy black, yet Elaine would not have been surprised to learn she had worn the shawl as long or longer than most women not Aes Sedai lived. For that matter, Kariana might have as well. Not one of them approached her own strength and the power, but all that experience as Aes Sedai, all that knowledge, all that authority. A heavy reminder that she was only eighteen and had been in novice white a year ago. Kariana made no move to rebut Saritha's suggestions. Perhaps she best go on defending herself. Plainly, this secret you speak of has something to do with the circle, but... 
The kin are no concern of yours, child, Marilla broke in sharply. Drawing a deep breath, she smoothed gold-slashed skirts of silvery gray. I propose to pass sentence, she said in a cold voice. I concur and defer to your decision, Adelias said. She gave Elaine a disappointed frown and shook her head. Van Deen waved her hand dismissively. I concur and defer, but I agree with the seat of rebuke. Cariana's look might have contained a sliver of sympathy. Maybe a sliver. Marilla opened her mouth. The timid knock at the door sounded quite loud in the momentary thunderous silence. What under the light? Marilla muttered angrily. I told Paul not to let anyone disturb us. Cariana? Not the youngest, but the lowest in strength, Cariana stood and glided to the door. Despite her heft, she always moved like a swan. It was Paul herself, Marilla's maid, who popped in curtsying left and right. A slender, gray-haired woman, usually possessed of a dignity to rival that of her mistress, she wore an anxious frown now, as well she might, barging in after Marilla's instructions. Elaine had not been so glad to see anyone since... since Matt Cawthon appeared in the Stone of Tear. A horrendous thought. If Avienda did not say she had met Toe sufficiently soon, she might just see if asking the man to beat her after all could end the agony. The Queen brought this herself, Paul announced breathily, proffering a letter sealed with a large red lump of wax. She said if I didn't give it to Elaine right away, she'd bring it in herself. She said it's about the child's mother. Elaine almost ground her teeth. The sisters' serving women had all picked up their mistress's way of talking about Nynaeve and her, if seldom where they could hear. Furious, she snatched the letter without waiting for Marilla to say she could, if that was what she would have said, and broke the seal with her thumb. My Lady Elaine... I greet the daughter heir of Andor with joyous news. I have but just learned that your mother, Queen Morgays, lives, and is at present the guest of Pedron Nile in Amador, and wishes above all to be reunited with you, so that you may return to Andor together in triumph. I offer escort through the bandits now infesting Altara, so that you may reach your mother's side in safety and all speed. Forgive these few poor words scribbled in haste, but I know you would wish to learn the wondrous news as soon as possible, until I can leave you at your mother's side. Sealed in the light, Jakim Karadin. The paper crumpled in her fist. How dare he! The pain of her mother's death, without even a body to be buried, was only beginning to fade, and Karadin dared mock her this way? Embracing the true source, she hurled the foul lies away from her and channeled. Fire flared in midair, so hot that only a dust of ash fell to the blue and gold floor tiles. That for Jakim Karadin! And as for these women! The pride of a thousand years of Andoran queens put steel into her backbone. Marilla surged to her feet. You were not given permission to channel. You will release the... Leave us, Paul, Elaine said. Now. The serving woman stared, but Elaine's mother had taught her well the voice of command, 
the voice of a queen from her throne. Paul bobbed a curtsy and was moving before she realized. Once underway, she hesitated only an instant before hurrying out and closing the door behind her. Whatever was about to happen plainly was for Aes Sedai alone. What has gotten into you, child? Pure fury submerged the remnants of Merililla's regathered calm. Release the source immediately, or I vow I'll fetch a slipper myself this minute. I am Aes Sedai. The words came out like winter stone, and Elaine meant them to. Caradin's lies, and these women. Merililla threatened to slipper her. They would acknowledge her rightful place as a sister. She and Nynaeve had found the bowl, as good as anyway, and the arrangements for its use were underway. You propose to punish me for endangering a secret apparently known only to sisters, but no one bothered to tell me this secret when I attained the shawl. You suggest punishing me like a novice or accepted, but I am Aes Sedai. I was raised to the shawl by Egwene Alvere, the armorlin you claim to serve. If you deny that Nynaeve and I are Aes Sedai, then you deny the armorlin seat who sent me to find the bowl of the winds which we have done. I will not have it. I call you to account, Marilalasian Devon. Submit to the will of the Armorland seat, or I will call judgment on you as a rebellious traitor. Marilalla's eyes bulged, and her mouth hung open, but she appeared composed beside Kariana or Saritha, who looked about to choke to death on incredulity. Van Deen seemed mildly taken aback, a thoughtful finger pressed to her lips beneath slightly widened eyes, while Adelia sat forward, studying Elaine as if seeing her for the first time. Channeling, Elaine floated one of the tall armchairs to her and sat, composing her skirts. You may as well sit, too, Marililla. She still used the voice of command. Apparently it was the only way to make them listen— but she was startled when Marililla actually sank back down slowly, staring at her pop-eyed. Outside, she maintained a calm, cool facade, but inside, anger bubbled. No, it boiled. Secrets. She'd always thought Aes Sedai kept too many secrets, even from each other, especially from each other. True, she kept some herself, but only at necessity, and not from anyone who needed to know. And these women had thought to punish her. Your authority comes from the hall of the tower, Marililla. Nynaeve's and mine from the Amarlin seat. Ours supersedes yours. From now on, you will take your instructions from Nynaeve or me. We will, of course, listen carefully to any advice you might offer. She had thought Marililla's eyes bulged before, but now... Impossible, the Grey spluttered. You are Marililla, Elaine said sharply, leaning forward. Do you still deny the authority of your Amarlin? Do you still dare? Marililla's mouth worked soundlessly. She wet her lips. She shook her head jerkily. Elaine felt a thrill of exultation. All that about Marililla taking direction was stuff and nonsense, of course, but she would be acknowledged. Tom and her mother both said you must begin by asking for ten to get one. Still, that was not enough to damp her anger. She had half a mind to fetch a slipper herself and see how far she could push this. 
except that would shatter everything. They would remember her age fast enough then, and how short a time ago she had put off a novice dress. They might even begin thinking of her as a foolish child again, which thought stoked her fury anew. But she contented herself with, "'While you think quietly on what else I should be told as I Sedai, Marililla, Adelius and Van Deen will instruct me in this secret I endangered. Do you mean to tell me the Tower has known of the Circle?' these kin, as you call them, all along? Poor Rihanna and her hopes to avoid Aes Sedai notice. As near as they could make themselves come to sisters, I suppose, Van Deen replied, carefully. She studied Elaine as intently as her sister did now. Though a green, she had many of the same mannerisms as Adelius. Cariana and Saritha looked stunned, "'disbelieving eyes swinging from a silent, red-cheeked Marililla to Elaine and back. "'Even during the Trolloc Wars, women failed their tests, or lacked the strength, "'or were sent away from the tower for any of the usual reasons. "'Adelius had adopted a lecturing tone, but not offensively. "'Browns often did when expounding.' Under the circumstances, it is hardly surprising that a number feared to go off into the world alone, nor that they might flee to Barashta, as the city that existed here then was called. Though the main part of Barashta was, of course, where the Rahad now stands. Not that a stone of Barashta remains. The Trolloc Wars did not truly envelop Iharon until late, but in the end Barashta fell as completely as Barsin, or Shemal, or the kin, Van Deen broke in gently. Adelius blinked at her, then nodded. The kin persisted even after Barashta fell, in the same way they had before, taking in wilders and women put out of the tower. Elaine frowned. Mistress Anan had said the kin took in wilders too, but Rihanna's biggest anxiety had seemed to be making her and Nynaeve prove they were not. None ever remained long, Adelius added. Five years, perhaps ten, then I suppose as now. Once they realize that their little group is no replacement for the White Tower, they go off and become village healers or wisdoms or the like, or sometimes simply forget the power, stop channeling and take up a craft or trade. In any case, they vanish, so to speak. Elaine wondered how anyone could forget the one power that way. The urge to channel, the temptation of the source, was always there, once you learned how. Aes Sedai did seem to believe some women could just put it behind them, though, once they found out they would not be Aes Sedai. Van Deen took up the explanation again. The sisters frequently spoke almost in alternating sentences, each carrying on smoothly where the other left off. The tower has known of the kin from nearly the beginning— perhaps from the very beginning. At first, no doubt, the wars took precedence, and despite calling themselves the kin, they have done just what we want such women to do. They remain hidden. Even the fact that they can channel, draw no attention whatsoever to themselves. Over the years, they've even passed along word, secretly, of course, carefully, when one of them found a woman falsely claiming the shawl. You said something? Elaine shook her head. Cariana, is there any tea in that pot? Cariana gave a small start. 
I think Adelius and Van Dean might like to wet their throats. The Damani woman did not quite look at a still-staring Marilella before going to the table where the silver teapot and cups were. That doesn't explain why, Elaine went on. Why is knowledge of them such a deep secret? Why haven't they been scattered long ago? Why the runaways, of course. Adelias made it sound the most obvious thing in the world. It is a fact that other gatherings have been broken up as soon as found, the last about two hundred years ago, but the kin do keep themselves small and quiet. That last group called themselves the Daughters of Silence, yet they were hardly silent. Only twenty-three of them altogether, wilders gathered and trained after a fashion by a pair of former accepted, but they... Runaways, Elaine prompted, taking a cup from Kariana with a smile of thanks. She had not asked one for herself, but she realized absently that the woman had offered her the first. Van Deen and her sister had talked quite a bit about runaways on the way to Ebudar. Adelias blinked and pulled herself back to the topic. The kin help runaways. They always have two or three women in Tarvalan keeping watch. For one thing, they approach almost every woman put out in a very circumspect way, and for another, they manage to find every runaway, whether novice or accepted. At least none has made it off the island without their help since the Trolloc Wars. Oh, yes, Van Deen said as Adelius paused to take a cup from Cariana. It had been offered to Marililla first, but Marililla sat slumped and staring bleakly at nothing. If anyone does manage to escape, why, we know right where to look, and she nearly always ends up back in the tower wishing her feet had never itched. As long as the kin don't know we know, anyway. Once that happens, it will be back to the days before the kin, when a woman running from the tower might go in any direction. The numbers were larger then. Aes Sedai, accepted, novices and runaways, and some years two out of three escaped clean, others three out of four. Using the kin, we retake at least nine of ten. You can see why the tower has preserved the kin and their secret like precious jewels. Elaine could. A woman was not done with the White Tower until it was done with her. Besides, it could not hurt the tower's reputation for infallibility that it always caught runaways. Almost always. Well, now she knew. She stood, and to her astonishment, Adelius did also, and Van Deen, waving away Cariana's offered tea, and Saritha. Even Marililla, after a moment. They all looked at her expectantly. Even Marililla. Van Deen noticed her surprise and smiled. Another thing you might not know. We are a contentious lot in many ways, we eyes, said I, each jealous of her place and prerogatives. But when someone is placed above us or stands above us, we tend to follow her fairly meekly for the most part. However, we might grumble about her decisions in private. Why, so we do, Adelias murmured happily, as if she had just discovered something. Marililla took a deep breath, absorbing herself for a moment in straightening her skirts. Van Deen is right, she said. You stand above us in yourself, and I must admit you apparently have been placed above us. If our behavior calls for penance, well, you will tell us if it does. Where are we to follow you? 
if I may ask? There was no sarcasm in any of that. If anything, her tone was more polite than Elaine had heard out of her before. She thought any Aes Sedai who ever lived would have been proud to control her features as well as she did right then. All she had wanted was for them to admit she really was Aes Sedai. She fought a momentary urge to protest that she was too young, too inexperienced. You can never put honey back in the comb, so Lini used to say when she was a girl. Egwene was no older. Drawing breath, she smiled warmly. The first thing to recall is that we are all sisters, in every meaning of the word. We must work together. The bowl of the winds is too important for anything less. She hoped they would all nod so enthusiastically when she told them what Egwene intended. Perhaps we should sit again. They waited for her before folding themselves back into their seats. She hoped Nynaeve was getting on a tenth so well. When she found out about this, Nynaeve was going to faint from shock. I have something of my own to tell you about the kin. Fairly soon it was Marililla who looked ready to faint from shock, and even Adelius and Van Deen were not far from it. But they went right on saying, Yes, Elaine, and if you say so, Elaine, perhaps it would all go smoothly from now on. The sedan chair was rocking through the crowds of revelers along the quay when Mogedian spotted the woman. She was being handed down from a coach at one of the boat landings by a footman in green and white. A wide, feathered mass covered her face more completely than Mogedian's did, but she would have known that determined stride, known that woman, from any angle in any light. The carved screens that served as windows in the closed chair were certainly no hindrance. Two fellows with swords on their hips scrambled from the coach roof to follow the masked woman. Mogedian thumped a fist against the side of the chair, shouting, Stop! The bearers halted so quickly she was almost flung forward. The crowd jostled past, some shouting curses at her bearers for blocking the way, some shouting more good-naturedly. Down here by the river, the throng ran thin enough for her to watch through the gaps. The boat that pulled away from the landing seemed quite distinctive. The roof of the low cabin in the rear was painted red. She did not see that affectation on any of the others waiting at the long stone dock. She wet her lips, shivering. Moradine's instructions had been explicit, the price of disobedience made excruciatingly clear. But a slight delay would not hurt. Not if he never learned of it, anyway. Flinging open the door, she climbed out into the street and looked about hastily. There, that inn right overlooking the docks, and the river. Lifting her skirts, she hurried away without the slightest fear anyone might hire her chair. Until she untied the webs of compulsion on them, the bearers would tell anyone who asked that they were engaged, and stand there until they died of hunger. A path opened ahead of her men and women in feathered masks leaping aside before she reached them, leaping with squeals and cries as they clutched where they thought they had been stabbed. As they had. There was no time to spin subtle webs on so many minds, but a flurry of needles woven of air did as well here. The stout innkeeper at the oarsman's pride nearly leaped too, at the sight of Mogedian striding into her common room in gloriously scarlet silk, worked with thread of gold, and black silk that glistened as richly as the gold. 
Her mask was a great spray of pitch-black feathers with a sharp black beak, a raven. That was Moradine's joke, his command, as was the dress, in fact. His colors were black and red, he said, and she would wear them while she served him. She was in livery, however elegant, and she could have killed everyone who saw her. Instead, she spun a hasty web on the round-cheeked innkeeper that jerked her up straight and made her eyes pop. No time for subtlety. At Mogedian's command to show her the roof, the woman ran up the railless stairs at the side of the room. It was unlikely any of the feather-draped drinkers saw anything unusual in the innkeeper's behavior, Mogedian thought with a small laugh. The oarsman's pride probably had never seen a patron of her quality before. On the flat roof, she quickly weighed the dangers of letting the innkeeper live versus those of killing her. Corpses had a way of pointing a finger eventually. If you wished to remain quietly hidden in the shadows, you did not kill unless you absolutely had to. Hastily, she adjusted the web of compulsion, told the woman to go down to her room to go to sleep, and forget ever having seen her. With the haste, it was possible the innkeeper might lose the whole day, or wake somewhat slower of wits than she had been. So much in Mogedian's life would have been so much easier had she possessed a better talent for compulsion. But in any case, the woman scurried away, eager to obey, and left her alone. As the door thumped down flat into the dirty white-tiled roof, Mogedian gasped at the sudden feel of fingers stroking her mind, palping her soul. Moradine did that sometimes. A reminder, he said, as if she needed any more. She almost looked around for him. Her skin pebbled as though at a sudden icy breeze. The touch vanished, and she shivered again. Coming or going, it did remind her. Moradine himself could appear anywhere at any time. Haste. Speeding to the low wall that surrounded the roof, she searched the river spread out below. Scores of boats of every size swept along on their oars between larger vessels, anchored or under sail. Most of the cabins of the sort she sought were plain wood, but there she saw a yellow roof and there a blue, and there, in mid-river and heading southward fast, red. It had to be the right one. She could not take any more time here. She raised her hands, but as bale fire launched itself, something flashed around her and she jerked. Moradine had come. He was here, and he would... She stared at the pigeons fluttering away. Pigeons. She nearly spewed the contents of her stomach across the roof. A glance at the river made her snarl. Because she had jerked, the bale fire she meant to slice through cabin and passenger instead had sliced diagonally through the middle of the boat, about where the oarsmen had stood and the bodyguards. Because the rowers had been burned out of the pattern before the bale fire struck, the two halves of the craft were now a good hundred paces back up the river. Then again, perhaps it was not a complete disaster because that slice from the boat's center had gone at the same time the boatmen really died, the river had had minutes to rush in. The two parts of the boat sank out of sight in a great froth of bubbles, even as her eyes shifted to them, carrying their passenger to the depths. Suddenly what she had done struck her. She had always moved in the dim places, always kept herself hidden, always... 
Any woman in the city who could channel would know someone had drawn a great deal of Sidar, if not for what, and any eye watching had seen that bar of liquid white fire sear across the afternoon. Fear gave her wings. Not fear. Terror. Gathering her skirts, she ran back down the stairs, ran through the common room bumping into tables and careering off people trying to get out her way, ran into the street too frightened to think, battering a path through the crowd with her hands. Run! she shrieked, hurling herself into the sedan chair. Her skirts caught in the door. She ripped them free. Run! The bearers flung themselves into motion, tossing her about, but she did not care. She braced herself with fingers laced through the carved wooden screens and shook uncontrollably. He had not forbidden this. He might forgive or even ignore her independent action here if she carried out his instructions swiftly, efficiently. That was her only hope. She was going to make Phaleon and Ispan crawl. Chapter 31 Mashiara As the boat swept away from the landing, Nynaeve tossed her mask down beside her on the cushioned bench and slumped back with arms folded and braid gripped firmly, scowling at nothing, scowling at everything. Listening to the wind still told her a fierce storm was on the way, the kind that tore off roofs and flattened barns, and she almost wished the river would begin to kick up in waves right that minute. If it isn't the weather, Nynaeve, she mimicked, then you should be the one to go. The mistress of the ships might be insulted if we didn't send the strongest of us. They know Aes Sedai put great store in that. Bah! That had been Elaine. Except for the bah! Elaine just thought putting up with any amount of nonsense from Marililla would be preferable to facing Nesta again. Once you began badly with someone, it was hard to recover. Matt Cawthon was proof enough of that. And if they had gotten off any worse with Nesta Dinrea's two moons, she would be sending the lot of them to fetch and carry. Horrible woman, she grumbled, shifting around on the seat cushions. Avienda had been no better when Nynaeve suggested she go to the sea folk. Those people had been fascinated by her. She pitched her voice high and finicky, not at all like Avienda's, but the mood fit. We will learn of this trouble when we learn, Nynaeve Almira. Perhaps I will learn something watching Jacob Cardine today. If not for the fact that nothing whatsoever frightened the Aiel woman, she would have thought Avienda fearful from her eagerness to spy on Cardine. A day standing in a hot street jostled by crowds was not amusing, and today would be worse with the festival. Nynaeve would have thought the woman would enjoy a nice, refreshing boat ride. The boat lurched. A nice, refreshing boat ride, she told herself. Nice, cool breezes on the bay. Moist breezes, not dry. The boat rolled. Oh, blood and ashes, she moaned. Appalled, she clapped a hand over her mouth and drummed her heels against the front of the bench in righteous outrage. If she had to endure those sea folk for long, she would have as much filth coming off of her tongue as Matt did. She did not want to think about him. One more day folding her hands for that... that man, and she would yank every hair out of her head. Not that he had demanded anything unreasonable so far, but she kept waiting for him to, and his manner. No, she said firmly. 
I want to settle my stomach, not rile it. The boat had begun a slow rocking. She tried to concentrate on her clothes. She was not fixated on clothes, the way Elaine sometimes seemed to be, but thinking about silks and laces was soothing. Everything had been chosen to impress the mistress of the ships, to try regaining a little lost ground for all the good it might do. Green silk slashed with yellow in the skirts, embroidered in gold down the sleeves and across the bodice, with golden lace along the hem and at her wrists, and just bordering the neckline. Perhaps that should have been higher, to be taken seriously, but she did not own anything higher. Considering sea folk customs, it was more than modest. Nesta would have to take her as she was. Nynaeve Almira did not go changing herself for anyone. The yellow opal pins stuck in her braid were her own, a present from the Panarch of Tarabon, no less. But Tylin had provided the gold necklace that fanned emeralds and pearls down to her bosom, a richer piece than she had ever dreamed of owning, a gift for bringing Matt, Tylin had called it, which made no sense at all, but maybe the queen thought she needed some excuse for such a valuable present. Both gold and ivory bracelets came from Avienda, who had a surprising little stock of jewelry for a woman who so seldom wore more than that one silver necklace. Nynaeve had asked to borrow that pretty roses-and-thorns ivory bracelet that the Aiel woman never wore. Surprisingly, Avienda had snatched it to her bosom as if it was her most precious possession, and of all things, Elaine began comforting her. Nynaeve would not have been surprised to see the pair fall weeping on one another's shoulder. There was something odd going on there, and if she had not known those two were too sensible for such nonsense, she would have suspected a man at the root of it. Well, Avienda was too sensible. Elaine did still yearn for Rand, though Nynaeve could hardly fault her for... Suddenly she felt waves of Sidar almost atop her in huge amounts, and... She floundered in salty water over her head, flailing upward to find air, tangled in her skirts, flailing. Her head broke surface, and she gasped for breath amid floating cushions, staring in astonishment. After a moment she recognized the slanting shape above her as one of the cabin seats and a bit of the cabin wall. She was inside a trapped pocket of air. Not large. She could have touched both sides without stretching her arms out fully. But how? An audible thud announced the bottom of the river. The upside-down cabin lurched, tilted. She thought the air pocket shrank a little. The first order of business before wondering about anything was getting out before she used up the air. She knew how to swim. She had splashed in the waterwood ponds often enough back home. It was just when the water started rocking about her that she minded. Filling her lungs, she doubled over and swam down toward where the door must be, kicking awkwardly because of her skirts. It might help to shed the dress, but she was not about to bob to the surface of the river in nothing but shift and stockings and jewels. She was not about to leave those behind, either. Besides, she could not get out of the dress without losing her belt pouch, and she would drown before losing what was in there. The water was black, lightless. Her outstretched fingers struck wood, and she felt across the piercework carving until she found the door, scrabbled down the edge of that, and found a hinge. Muttering imprecations in her head, she cautiously felt her way to the other side. 
Yes, the latch handle. She lifted it, pushed outward. The door moved maybe two inches and stopped. Lungs straining, she swam back up to the pocket, but only long enough to fill them again. This time, finding the door came faster. She stuck her fingers through the crack to find what held the door shut. They sank into mud. Maybe she could dig away a little hillock, or... She felt higher. More mud. Increasingly frantic, she worked her fingers from the bottom of the crack to the top, and then refusing to believe from the top to the bottom. Mud. Solid, gooey mud all the way. This time, when she swam back up to the pocket, she grabbed hold of the edge of the seat above her and hung from it, panting, heart beating wildly. The air felt thicker. I will not die here, she muttered. I will not die here. She hammered a fist against the seat until she felt it bruise, fighting for the anger that would allow her to channel. She would not die, not here, alone. No one would know where she had died. No grave, just a corpse rotting at the bottom of the river. Her arm fell with a splash. She labored for breath. Flecks of black and silver danced in her eyes. She seemed to be looking down a tube. No anger, she realized dimly. She kept trying to reach for Sidar, but without any belief that she would touch it now. She was going to die here after all. No hope, no Lan. And with hope gone, flickering on the edge of consciousness like a guttering candle flame, she did something she had never done before in her life. She surrendered completely. Sidar flowed into her, filled her. She was only half aware of the wood above her suddenly bulging outward, bursting. In rushing bubbles of air, she drifted up, out through the hole in the hull into darkness. Vaguely, she knew she should do something. She could almost remember what. Yes. Her feet kicked weakly. She tried to move her arms to swim. They seemed to just float. Something seized her dress, and panic roused her in thoughts of sharks and lionfish, and the light alone knew what else that might inhabit these black depths. A spark of consciousness spoke of the power, but she flailed desperately with fists and feet, felt her knuckles land solidly. Unfortunately, she also screamed, or tried to. A great quantity of water rushing down her throat washed away scream, sidar, and very nearly her final scraps of awareness. Something tugged on her braid, then again, and she was being towed somewhere. She was no longer conscious enough to struggle, or even to be very much afraid of being eaten. Abruptly, her head broke surface. Hands encircled her from behind. Hands, not a shark after all, squeezed hard against her ribs in a most familiar way. She coughed, water spewed from her nose, coughed again painfully, and drew a shuddering breath. She had never tasted anything so sweet in her life. A hand cupped her chin, and suddenly she was being towed again. Lassitude washed through her. All she could do was float on her back and breathe and stare up at the sky. So blue, so beautiful. The stinging in her eyes was not all from the salty river. And then she was being pushed upward against the side of a boat, 
a rude hand beneath her bottom shoving her higher, until two lanky fellows with brass rings in their ears could reach down and haul her aboard. They helped her walk a step or two, but as soon as they let go to help her rescuer, her legs collapsed like towers of soggy mush. On unsteady hands and knees, she stared blankly at a sword and boots and green coat someone had thrown down on the deck. She opened her mouth and emptied herself of the River Elbar. The entire river, it seemed, plus her midday meal and her breakfast. It would not have surprised her at all to see a few fish or her slippers. She was wiping her lips with the back of her hand when she became aware of voices. My lord is all right? My lord was down for a very long time. Forget me, man, said a deep voice. Get something to wrap around the lady. Lan's voice that she dreamed every night of hearing. Wide-eyed, Nynaeve barely bit back a wail. The horror she had felt when she thought she was going to die was nothing alongside what flashed through her now. Nothing. This was a nightmare. Not now. Not like this. Not when she was a drowned rat, kneeling with the contents of her stomach spread out before her. Without thought, she embraced Sidar and channeled. Water fell away from her clothes, her hair, in a rush, and washed all evidence of her little mishap out through a scupper hole. Scrambling to her feet, she hurriedly pulled her necklace aright and did her best to straighten her dress and hair, but the soaking in salt water and then the rapid drying had left several stains on the silk, and a number of creases that would require a knowledgeable hand with a hot iron to remove. Wisps of hair wanted to fly away from her scalp, and the opals in her braid seemed to dot the bristling tail of an angry cat. It did not matter. She was calmness itself, cool as an early spring breeze, self-possessed as... She spun around before he could come on her from behind and startle her into disgracing herself completely. She only realized how quickly she had moved when she saw that Lan was just then taking his second step from the railing. He was the most beautiful man she had ever seen. Soaking wet in shirt and breeches and stockings, he was gorgeous, with his dripping hair clinging to the angles of his face, and a split purple bruise was rising on his face as from a blow. She clapped a hand to her mouth, remembering her fist connecting. Oh no, oh Lan, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to. She was not really aware of crossing the space between them, she was just there, stretching up on tiptoes to lay fingers gently on his injury. A deft weave of all five powers, and his tanned cheek was unblemished but he might have been hurt elsewhere. She spun the weaves to delve him. New scars made her wince inside, and there was something odd, but he seemed healthy as a prime bull. He was also very wet from saving her. She dried him as she had herself. Water splashed around his feet. She could not stop touching him. Both hands traced his hard cheeks, his wonderful blue eyes, his strong nose, his firm lips his ears. She combed that silky black hair into place with her fingers, adjusted the braided leather band that held it. Her tongue seemed to have a life of its own, too. Oh, Lan, she murmured, you really are here. Somebody giggled. Not her. Nynaeve Almira did not giggle, but somebody did. It isn't a dream. 
Oh, Light, you're here. How? A servant at the Tarasin Palace told me you'd gone to the river, and a fellow at the landing said what boat you had taken. If Mandarb hadn't lost a shoe, I would have been here yesterday. I don't care. You're here now. You're here. She did not giggle. Maybe she is, I said I, one of the boatmen murmured, not quite low enough, but I still say she's one duckling who means to stuff herself in that wolf's jaws. Nynaeve's face flashed pure scarlet, and she snatched her hands to her sides, her heels thumping to the deck. Another time she would have given the fellow what for and no mistake. Another time, when she could think. Lan crowded everything else out of her head. She seized his arm. We can talk more privately in the cabin. Had one of the oarsmen snickered? My sword, and I'll bring it, she said, snatching up his things from the deck on flows of air. One of those louts had snickered. Another flow of air pulled open the cabin door, and she hustled Lan and his sword and the rest inside and slammed it behind them. Light! She doubted if even Callie Copland back home had ever been as bold as this, and as many merchants' guards knew Callie's birthmark as knew her face. But it was not the same at all. Not at all. Still, no harm in being just a tad less... eager. Her hands went back to his face, only to straighten his hair some more. Just that, and he caught her wrists gently in his big hands. Mirella holds my bond now, he said quietly. She is lending me to you until you find a warder of your own. Calmly pulling her right hand free, she slapped his face as hard as she could swing. His head hardly moved, so she freed the other hand and slapped him harder with that. How could you? For good measure, she punctuated the question with another slap. You knew I was waiting. One more seemed called for, just to drive the point home. How could you do such a thing? How could you let her? Another slap. Burn you, landman Dragoran. Burn you. Burn you. Burn you to the pit of doom. Burn you. The man, the bloody man, did not say one word. Not that he could, of course. What defense could he offer? He just stood there while she rained blows at him, making no move, unblinking eyes looking peculiar, as well they might with the way she reddened his cheeks for him. If her slaps made little impression on him, though, the palms of her hands began to sting like fury. Grimly, she clenched a fist and punched him in the belly with all her might. He grunted slightly. We will talk this over calmly and rationally, she said, stepping back from him, as adults. Lan just nodded and sat down and pulled his boots over to him. Pushing bits of hair out of her face with her left hand, she stuck the right behind her so she could flex her sore fingers without him seeing. He had no right being that hard, not when she wanted to hit him. Too much to hope she had cracked a rib in him. You should thank her, Nynaeve. How could the man sound so calm? Stamping his foot firmly into one boot, he bent to pick up the other, not looking at her. You wouldn't want me bonded to you. The flow of air seized a handful of his hair and bent his head up painfully. 
If you dare, if you even dare to spout that drivel about not wanting to give me a widow's weeds, landman dragoran, I'll... I'll... She could not think of anything strong enough. Kicking him was not near enough. Mirella. Mirella and her warders. Burn him. Removing his hide in strips would not be enough. He might as well not have been bent over with his neck craned. He just rested his forearms across his knees and watched her with that odd look in his eyes and said, I thought about not telling you, but you have a right to know. Even so, his tone became hesitant. Lan was never hesitant. When Moiraine died, when a warder's bond to his eyes Sedai is snapped, there are changes. As he continued, her arms snaked around herself, hugging tightly to keep her from shivering. Her jaw ached, for she kept it clamped shut. She released the flow holding him as if a hand springing away released Sidar, but he only straightened and went on relating this horror without so much as a flinch, went on watching her. Suddenly she understood his eyes, colder than Winter's heart, the eyes of a man who knew he was dead and could not make himself care, a man waiting almost eager for that long sleep, her own eyes stung with not weeping. So you see he concluded with a smile that touched only his mouth, an accepting smile. When it's done, she will have a year or more of pain, and I will still be dead. You are spared that. My last gift to you, Mashiara. Mashiara, his lost love. You are to be my warder until I find one? Her voice startled her with its levelness. She could not break down in tears now. She would not. Now, more than ever before, she had to gather all her strength. Yes, he said cautiously, tugging on his other boot. He'd always seemed something of a half-tame wolf, and his eyes made him seem much less than half-tame now. Good. Adjusting her skirts, she resisted the urge to cross the cabin to him. She could not let him see her fear. Because I have found him. You. I waited and wished with Moiraine... I won't with Mirella. She is going to give me your bond. Mirella would if she had to drag the woman to Tarvalin and back by her hair. For that matter, she might drag her just for the principle of it. Don't say anything, she said sharply when he opened his mouth. Her fingers brushed her belt pouch, where his heavy gold signet ring lay wrapped in a silk handkerchief. With an effort, she moderated her tone. He was ill, and harsh words never helped sickness. It was an effort, though. She wanted to berate him up one side and down the other, wanted to pull her braid out by the roots every time she thought of him and that woman. Fighting to keep her voice calm, she went on. In the two rivers, Lan, when somebody gives another a ring, they are betrothed. That was a lie, and she half expected him to jump to his feet in outrage, but he only blinked warily. Besides, she had read about the notion in a story. We have been betrothed long enough, we are going to be married today. I used to pray for that, he said softly, then shook his head. You know why it can't be, Nynaeve. And even if it could, Mirella... Despite all her promises to keep her temper, to be gentle, she embraced Sidar and stuffed a gag of air into his mouth before he could confess what she did not want to hear. So long as he did not confess, 
she could pretend nothing had happened. When she got hold of Mirella, though, opals pressed hard into her palm, and her hand leaped from her braid as if burned. She occupied her fingers with brushing his hair again, while he glared at her indignantly above his gaping mouth. A small lesson for you in the difference between wives and other women, she said lightly. Such a struggle. I would appreciate it very much if you did not mention Mirella's name again in my presence. Do you understand? He nodded, and she released the flow. But as soon as he had worked his jaw a moment, he said, Naming no names, Nynaeve, you know she's aware of everything I feel through the bond. If we were man and wife... She thought her face might burst into flame. She had never thought of that. Bloody Mirella. Is there any way to make sure she knows it is me? She said finally, and her cheeks nearly did flash to fire. Especially when he fell back against the cabin wall, laughing in astonishment. Light, Nynaeve. You are a hawk. Light. I haven't laughed since... His mirth faded the coldness that had dimmed in his eyes for an instant returning. I do wish it could be, Nynaeve, but... It can and will, she broke in. Men always seem to get the upper hand if you let them talk too long. She plumped herself down on his knees. They were not married yet, true, but he was softer than the unpadded benches on this boat. She shifted a bit to make herself more comfortable. Well, no harder than the benches, anyway. You might as well reconcile yourself, Landman Dragoran. My heart belongs to you, and you've admitted yours belongs to me. You belong to me, and I will not let you go. You will be my warder and my husband, and for a very long time. I will not let you die. Do you understand that? I can be as stubborn as I have to be. I hadn't noticed, he said, and her eyes narrowed. His tone sounded awfully dry. As long as you do now, she said firmly. Twisting her neck, she peered through the piercework in the hull behind him, then craned around to peer through the carving at the front of the cabin. Long stone docks thrusting out from the stone quay passed by. All she could see ahead were more docks, and the city gleaming white in the afternoon sun. Where are we going? she muttered. I told them to put us ashore as soon as I had you aboard, Lan said. It seemed best to get off the river as fast as possible. You? She clamped her teeth shut. He had not known where she was headed or why. He had done the best he could with what he did know, and he had saved her life. I can't go back to the city yet, Lan. Clearing her throat, she changed her tone. However gentle she had to be with him, that much syrup would make her sick up all over again. I have to go to the Seafolk ships. To Windrunner, much better. Light, but not too light and firm. Nynaeve, I was right behind your boat. I saw what happened. You were fifty paces ahead of me and then fifty paces behind, sinking. It had to be balefire. He did not need to say more. She said it for him, and with more knowledge than he had. Mogedian, she breathed. Oh, it could have been another of the Forsaken, or one of the Black Aja, perhaps, but she knew. Well, she had beaten Mogedian not once, but twice. She could do so a third time, if necessary. Her face must not have shared her confidence. Don't be afraid, Lan said, touching her cheek. Don't ever be afraid while I'm near. If you have to face Mogedian, 
I'll make sure you are angry enough to channel. I seem to have some talent in that direction. You'll never make me angry again, she began, and stopped, staring at him wide-eyed. I'm not angry, she said slowly. Not now, but when you need to be, I'm not angry, she laughed. She kicked her feet in delight and pounded her fists on his chest, laughing. Sidar filled her, not just with life and joy, but this time with awe. With feathery flows of air, she stroked his cheeks. I am not angry, Lan, she whispered. Your block is gone. He grinned, sharing her delight, but the grin put no warmth into his eyes. I will take care of you, Lan Mandragoran, she promised silently. I will not let you die. Leaning on his chest, she thought of kissing him, and even... You are not Callie Coplin, she told herself firmly. A sudden horrible thought struck her, all the more horrible because it had not come earlier. The boatman, she said quietly. My bodyguards? Wordlessly he shook his head, and she sighed. Bodyguards. Like they had needed her protection, not the other way around. Four more deaths to lay at Mogedian's feet. Four on top of thousands, but these were personal as far as she was concerned. Well, she was not about to settle Mogedian this moment. Getting to her feet, she began seeing what she could do about her clothes. Lan, will you turn the boatmen around? Tell them to row for all they have. As it was, she would not see the palace again before nightfall. And find out if one of them has such a thing as a comb. She could not face Nesta like this. He picked up his coat and sword and gave her a bow. As you command, I Sedai. Pursing her lips, she watched the door close behind him. Laughing at her, was he? She would wager someone on Windrunner could perform a marriage, and from what she had seen of the sea folk, she would wager Lan Mandragoran would find himself promising to do as he was told. They would see who laughed then. Lurching and rolling, the boat began to swing around, and her stomach lurched with it. Oh, light, she groaned, sinking onto the bench. Why could she not have lost that along with her block? Holding Sidar, aware of every touch of the air on her skin, only made it worse. Letting go did not help. She was not going to sick up again. She was going to make Lan hers once and for all. This was going to be a wonderful day yet, if only she could stop feeling that storm was on the way. The sun sat luridly just above the rooftops by the time Elaine rapped on the door with her knuckles. Revelers danced and cavorted in the street behind her, filling the air with laughter and song and the scent of perfume. Idly, she wished she had had a chance really to enjoy the festival. A costume like Birgitta's might have been fun. Or even one like that she had seen on the Lady Rissella, one of Tylan's attendants, first thing this morning. As long as she could have kept her mask on. She rapped again, harder. The gray-haired, square-jawed maid opened the door, fury suddenly painting her face when Elaine lowered her green mask. You! What are you doing back? Fury turned to ghastly paleness as Marililla removed her mask, and Adelius and the others did the same. The woman jerked with each ageless face revealed, and even with Saritha's. By that time, maybe she saw what she expected to see. With a sudden cry, the maid tried to push the door shut, 
but Birgitta darted past Elaine, her feathered shoulder knocking it back open. The servant staggered a few steps, then gathered herself, but whether to run or shout, Birgitta was there before time, gripping her arm just below the shoulder. Easy, Birgitta said firmly. We don't want any fuss or shouting, now do we? It did seem she was only holding the woman's arm, almost supporting her, but the maid stood very straight indeed and very still. Staring wide-eyed at her captor's plume-crested mask, she shook her head slowly. What is your name? Elaine asked, as everyone crowded into the entry hall behind her. The closing door muted the noise from outside. The maid's eyes darted from one face to the next, as if she could not bear to gaze at anyone for long. S-S-Sidora. You will take us to Rihanna, Sidora. This time Sidora nodded. She looked about to cry. Sidora stiffly led the way upstairs, with Brigitta still holding her arm. Elaine considered telling her to release the woman, but the last thing she wanted was a shouted alarm and everyone in the house fleeing in all directions. That was why Birgitta used muscle instead of Elaine herself channeling. She thought Sidora was more frightened than hurt, and everybody was to be at least a little frightened this evening. In there, Sidora said, nodding to a red door. The door to the room where Nynaeve and she had had that unfortunate interview. She opened it and went in. Rihanna was there, seated with the fireplace carved with the thirteen sins at her back, and so were another dozen women Elaine had never seen before, occupying all of the chairs against the pale green walls, sweating with the windows tight and curtains drawn. Most wore ebudari dresses, though only one possessed the olive skin. Most had lines on their faces and at least a touch of grey, and every last woman of them could channel to one degree or another. Seven wore the red belt. She sighed in spite of herself. When Nynaeve was right, she let you know it until you wanted to scream. Rihanna bounded to her feet in the same red-faced fury Sidora had shown, and her first words were almost identical as well. You! How dare you show your face! Words and fury drained away together for the same reason, too, as Marilla and the others entered on Elaine's heels. A yellow-haired woman in red belt and plunging neckline made a faint sound as her eyes rolled up in her head and she slid bonelessly from her red chair. No one moved to help her. No one even glanced at Birgitta as she escorted Sidora to a corner and planted her there. No one seemed to breathe. Elaine felt a great desire to shout, Boo! just to see what would happen. Rihanna swayed, white-faced, and visibly tried to gather herself with slight success. It took her only a moment to scan the five cool-faced eyes Sedai lined up before the door and decide who must be in charge. She wobbled across the floor tiles to Marilla and sank to her knees, head bowed. Forgive us, eyes Sedai. Her voice was worshipful and only a little steadier than her knees had been. She babbled, in fact. We are only a few friends. We have done nothing, certainly nothing to bring discredit to Aes Sedai. I swear that, whatever this girl has told you. We would have told you of her, but we were afraid. We only meet to talk. She has a friend, Aes Sedai. Did you catch her, too? I can describe her for you, Aes Sedai. Whatever you wish we will do, I swear we... Marilla cleared her throat loudly. Your name is Rihanna Corley, I believe. 
Rihanna flinched and whispered that it was, still peering at the floor at the Grey Sister's feet. I fear you must address yourself to Elaine Sedai, Rihanna. Rihanna's head jerked up in a most satisfactory way. She stared at Marililla, then by slow increments turned eyes as big as her face to Elaine. She licked her lips. She drew a deep, long breath. Twisting around on her knees to face Elaine, she bowed her head once more. I beg your forgiveness, I said I, she said leadenly. I did not know. I could not. Another long, hopeless breath. Whatever punishment you decree, we accept humbly, of course. But please, I beg you to believe that... Oh, stand up, Elaine broke in impatiently. She had wanted to make this woman acknowledge her as much as she had Marilella or any of the others, but the groveling sickened her. That's right. Stand on your feet. She waited until Rihanna complied, then walked over and sat in the woman's chair. There was no need for cringing, but she wanted no doubts who was in charge. Do you still deny knowledge of the bowl of the winds, Rihanna? Rihanna spread her hands. I Sedai, she said guilelessly. None of us would ever use a Turangrial, much less an Angrial or Saangrial. Guileless and wary as a fox in a city. I assure you we make no pretense of being anything even near to I Sedai. We are just these few friends you see, tied together by once having been allowed to enter the White Tower. That is all. Just these few friends, Elaine said dryly over steepled fingers. And Garinia, of course, and Berowen, and Derice, and Elise. Yes, Rihanna said reluctantly. And them? Elaine shook her head very slowly. Rihanna, the White Tower knows about your kin. The Tower has always known. A dark woman with a tyrant looked to her, though wearing a blue and white silk vest with the sigil of the goldsmith's guild, gave a strangled scream and pressed both plump hands to her mouth. A lean, graying Saldean wearing the red belt crumpled with a sigh to join the yellow-haired woman on the floor, and two more swayed as if they might. For her part, Rihanna looked at the sisters in front of the door for confirmation and saw it, as she thought. Marilella's face was more icy than serene, and Saritha grimaced before she could stop herself. Van Deen and Cariana were both tight-lipped, and even Adelias seemed included, turning her head this way and that to study the women along the walls as she might have insects previously unknown to her. Of course, what Rihanna saw and what was were not the same. They had all accepted Elaine's decision, but no amount of yes, Elaine, could make them like it. They would have been here two hours ago if not for a great deal of but Elaine tossed in. Sometimes leading meant herding. Rihanna did not faint, but fear filled her face, and she raised pleading hands. Do you mean to destroy the kin? Why now, after so long? What have we done that you should come down on us now? No one will destroy you, Elaine told her. Cariana, since nobody else is going to help those two, would you, please? Jumps and blushes ran around the room, and before Cariana could move, two women were crouching over each one who had fainted, lifting her up and waving smelling salts under her nose. 
The Amarlin seat desires every woman who can channel to be connected to the tower, Elaine went on. The offer is open to any of the kin who wish to accept. Had she woven flows of air around every one of those women, she could not have frozen them more still. Had she squeezed those flows tight, she could not have produced more bulging eyes. One of the women who had fainted suddenly gasped and coughed, pushing away the tiny vial of salts that had been held still too long. That broke everyone free in a deluge of voices. "'We can become Aes Sedai after all?' the tyrant in the goldsmith's vest asked excitedly, at the same time that a round-faced woman with a red belt at least twice as long as anyone else's burst out with, "'They will let us learn. They will teach us again.' A deluge of painfully eager voices. "'We can really,' and "'They will let us,' from every side. Rihanna rounded on them fiercely. "'Ivara, Sumeko, all of you, you forget yourselves.' You speak in front of Aes Sedai. You speak in front of Aes Sedai. She passed a hand over her face, trembling. An embarrassed silence descended. Eyes fell and blushes rose. With all those lined faces, all that gray and white hair, Elaine still was minded of nothing so much as a group of novices having a pillow fight after last had told when the mistress of novices walked in. Hesitantly, Rihanna looked at her across her fingertips. "'We truly will be allowed to return to the tower,' she mumbled into her hand. Elaine nodded. "'Those who can learn to become Aes Sedai will have the chance, and there will be a place for all. For any woman who can channel.' Unshed tears shone in Rihanna's eyes. Elaine was not sure, but she thought the woman whispered, "'I can be green.' It was hard not to rush over and throw her arms around her. None of the other eyes to die showed any signs of giving way to emotion, and Marililla certainly was of sterner stuff. If I may ask a question, Elaine. Rihanna, how many of you will we be taking in? Doubtless that pause covered a change from how many wilders and failures. If Rihanna noticed or suspected, she ignored it or did not care. I cannot believe there are any who would refuse the offer, she said breathlessly. It may take some time to send word to everyone. We remain spread out, you see, so... She laughed, a touch nervously and still not far from tears. So I said I would not notice us. At present there are 1,783 names on the roll. Most Aes Sedai learned to cover shock with an outward show of calm, and only Saritha allowed her eyes to widen. She also mouthed silent words, but Elaine knew her well enough to read her lips. Two thousand wilders, light help us. Elaine made a great show of adjusting her skirts until she was sure her own face was under control. Light help them indeed. Rihanna misunderstood the silence. You expected more? Accidents do take some every year, or natural deaths, as with everyone else, and I fear the kin have grown fewer in the last thousand years. Perhaps we have been too cautious in approaching women when they leave the White Tower, but there has always been the fear that one of them might report being questioned, and... and... We are not disappointed in the least, Elaine assured her, making soothing gestures. Disappointed? She very nearly giggled hysterically. 
there were nearly twice as many kinswomen as there were Aes Sedai. Egwene could never say she had not done her part to bring women who could channel to the tower. But if the kin refused Wilders, she must stick to the point. Conscripting the kin had only been incidental. Rihanna, she said gently, do you think perhaps you might happen to recall where the bowl of the winds is now? Rihanna blushed a sunset. We've never touched them, Elaine, said I. I don't know why they were gathered. I've never heard of this bowl of the winds, but there is a storeroom such as you describe over... Below stairs a woman channeled briefly. Someone screamed in purest terror. Elaine was on her feet in a flash, as were they all. From somewhere in that feathered dress, Brigitta produced a dagger. That must have been Darius, Rihanna said. She's the only other one here. Elaine darted forward and caught her arm as she started for the door. You aren't green yet, she murmured, and was rewarded with a lovely dimpled smile, surprised and pleased and diffident all at once. We will handle this, Rihanna. Marilella and the others arrayed themselves to either side, ready to follow Elaine out, but Brigitta was at the door before any of them, grinning as she put hand to latch. Elaine swallowed and said nothing. That was the warder's honor, so the guidine said. First to go in, last to come out. But she still filled herself with Sidar, ready to crush anything that threatened her warder. The door opened before Brigitta could lift the latch. Matt sauntered in, pushing the slender maid Elaine remembered ahead of him. I thought you might be here. He grinned insolently, ignoring Darice's glares, and went on. When I found a bloody great lot of warders drinking at my least favorite tavern, I've just come back from following a woman to the Rahad, to the top floor of a house with nobody living on it, to be precise. After she'd left, the floor was so dusty I could see right away which room she'd gone to. There's a flaming big rusted lock on the door, but I'll bet a thousand crowns to a kick in the bottom your bowl is behind it. Doris aimed a kick at him, and he pushed her away, pulling a small knife from his belt to bounce on his palm. Will one of you tell this wildcat watchdog whose side I'm on? Women with knives make me uneasy these days. We already know all about that, Matt, Elaine said. Well, they had been just about to learn all about it, and the stunned look on his face was priceless. She felt something from Brigitta. The other woman gazed at her without any particular expression, but that little knot of emotion in the back of Elaine's head radiated disapproval. Avienda probably would not think much of it either. Opening her mouth was one of the most difficult things Elaine had ever done. I must thank you, though, Matt. It is entirely due to you that we have found what we were looking for. His gaping astonishment was almost worth the agony. He closed his mouth quickly, though opening it again to say, Then let's hire a boat and fetch this bloody bowl. With any luck we can leave Ebudar tonight. That is ridiculous, Matt. And don't tell me I'm demeaning you. We are not crawling about the Rahad in the dark, and we are not leaving Ebudar until we have used the bowl. He tried to argue, of course, but Doris took the opportunity of his attention being elsewhere to try kicking him again. He dodged around Brigitta, yelping for somebody to help him, while the slender woman darted after him. He is your warder, Elaine, said I? Rihanna asked doubtfully. Light, no, Brigitta is. 
Rihanna's mouth fell open. Having answered a question, Elaine asked one, a question she could not have brought herself to ask another sister. Rihanna, if you don't mind telling me, how old are you? The woman hesitated, glancing at Matt, but he was still dodging to keep a grinning Brigitta between him and Doris. My next naming day, Rihanna said, as if it was the most ordinary thing in the world, will be my 412th. Marililla fainted dead away. Chapter 32 Sealed to the Flame Elida Doavrinia Royhan sat regally in the Amerlin seat, the tall vine-carved chair painted now in only six colors instead of seven, a six-striped stole on her shoulders, and ran her gaze around the circular hall of the tower. The sitter's painted chairs had been rearranged along the stair-fronted dais that encircled the chamber beneath the great dome, spaced out to account for only six ajas instead of seven now, and eighteen sitters stood obediently. Young Althor knelt quietly beside the Amerlin seat. He would not speak unless given leave, which he would not receive today. Today he was merely another symbol of her power, and the twelve most favored sitters glowed with the link that she herself controlled to keep him safe. The greater consensus is achieved, mother, Alviarin said meekly at her shoulder, bowing humbly against the flame-topped staff. Down on the floor below the dais, Shiriam screamed wildly and had to be restrained by the tower guard at her side. The red sister shielding her sneered in contempt. Romanda and Lelaine clung to a cold outward dignity, but most of the others shielded and guarded on the floor wept quietly, perhaps in relief that only four women had been given the ultimate penalty, perhaps in fear of what else was to come. The most ashen faces belonged to the three who had dared sit in a rebel hall for the now-dissolved blue. Every rebel had been cast out from her Aja until Elida granted permission to request reacceptance. But the one-time blues knew they confronted difficult years working their way into her good graces, years before they would be allowed to enter any Aja at all. Until then they lay in the palm of her hand. She stood, and it seemed the one power flowing through her from the circle was a manifestation of her power. The hall concurs with the will of the Amerlin seat. Let Romanda be the first to be birched. Romanda's head jerked. Let her see how much dignity she could retain until her stilling. Elida gestured curtly. Take the prisoners away, and bring in the first of the poor deluded sisters who followed them. I will accept their submission." There was a cry among the prisoners, and one tore free from the guard, gripping her arm. Egwene Alvere threw herself onto the steps at Elida's feet, hands outstretched, tears streaming down her cheeks. "'Forgive me, mother,' the girl wept. "'I repent. I will submit. I do submit. Please do not still me.' Brokenly, she sagged face down, shoulders shaking with sobs. "'Please, mother.' I repent. I do. The Amerlin seat can show mercy, Elida said exultantly. The White Tower had to lose Lelaine and Romanda and Shiriam as examples, but she could keep this girl's strength. She was the White Tower. Egwene Alvere, you have rebelled against your Amerlin, but I will show mercy. You will be dressed in novice white again, 
until I myself judge you ready to be raised further. But this very day you shall be the first to take a fourth oath on the oath rod of fealty and obedience to the Amarlin seat. The prisoners began falling on their knees, crying out to be allowed to take that oath to prove their true submission. Lelaine was one of the first, and neither Romanda nor Shiriam the last. Egwene crawled up the steps to kiss the hem of Elida's dress. I yield myself to your will, mother, she murmured through her tears. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Alviarin seized Elida's shoulder, shook her. Wake up, you fool woman, she growled. Elida's eyes popped open to the dim light of a single lamp held by Alviarin, bending over her bed with a hand on her shoulder. Still only half awake, she mumbled, What did you say? I said, Please wake up, mother, Alviarin replied coolly. Kovarla Baldine has returned from Kyrian. Elida shook her head, trying to clear away the tag end of the dream. So soon? I did not expect them for another week at least. Kovarla, you say? Where is Galina? Foolish questions. Alviarin would not know what she meant. But in that cool, crystalline tone, the woman said, She believes Galina dead or a prisoner. I fear the news is not good. What Alviarin should or should not know rushed out of Elida's head. Tell me, she demanded, throwing off the silk sheet, but as she rose and belted a silk robe over her nightdress, she heard only snatches. A battle, hordes of Aiel women channeling, Althor gone, disaster. Distractedly, she noticed that Alviarin was neatly garbed in a silver-embroidered white dress with the keeper's stole around her neck. The woman had waited till she clothed herself to bring her this. The case clock in her study softly chimed second low as she entered the sitting room. The small hours of the morning, the worst time to receive dire news. Kovarla rose hastily from one of the red-cushioned armchairs, her implacable face sagging with weariness and worry, and knelt to kiss Elida's ring. Her dark riding dress still bore the dust of travel, and her pale hair needed a brush, but she had donned the shawl she had worn as long as Elida had been alive. Elida barely waited for the woman's lips to touch the great serpent before pulling her hand away. Why were you sent? she said curtly. Snatching up her knitting from where she had left it in a chair, she sat and began to work the long ivory needles. Knitting served many of the same purposes as fondling her carved ivory miniatures, and she surely needed soothing now. Knitting helped her think, too. She had to think. Where is Katerina? If Galena was dead, Katerina should have taken charge ahead of Coiran. Elida had made it clear that once Althor was taken, the Red Aja was in charge. Kovarla stood slowly, as if uncertain she should. Her hands tightened on the red-fringed shawl looped over her arms. Katerina is among the missing, mother. I stand highest among those who... Her words trailed off, as Elida stared at her, fingers frozen in the act of passing wool over one of the needles. Kovarla swallowed and shifted her feet. How many, daughter? Elida asked finally. She could not believe her voice was so calm. I cannot say how many escaped, mother, Kovarla said hesitantly. We dared not wait to make a thorough search, and... How many? Elida shouted. 
With a shudder, she made herself concentrate on her knitting. Giving way to anger was weakness. Loop the yarn, pull through, and push down. Soothing motions. I, I brought eleven other sisters with me, mother. The woman paused, breathing hard, and then, when Elida said nothing, rushed on. Others may be making their way back, mother. Gawain refused to wait longer, and we dared not remain without him and his younglings, not with so many I yield about, and the... Elida did not hear. Twelve returned. Had any more escaped, they would have sped back to Tarvalin, would have been here as soon as Kovarla, surely. Even if one or two were injured, traveling slowly. Twelve out of thirty-nine. The tower had not suffered a disaster of this magnitude even during the Trolloc Wars. These Aeel Wilders must be taught a lesson, she said, trampling over whatever Kovarla was babbling. Galena had thought she could use Aeel to divert Aeel. What a fool the woman had been. We will rescue the sisters they hold prisoner and teach them what it means to defy Aes Sedai, and we will take Althor again. She would not let him get away, not if she had to personally lead the entire White Tower to take him. The foretelling had been certain. She would triumph. Casting an uneasy glance at Alviarin, Kovarla shifted her feet again. Mother, those men, I think, do not think, Elida snapped. Her hands clasped the knitting needles convulsively, and she leaned forward so fiercely that Kovarla actually raised a hand as though to fend off an attack. Alviarin's presence had slipped from Elida's mind. Well, the woman knew what she knew now. That could be dealt with later. You have maintained secrecy, Kovarla, aside from informing the keeper. Oh, yes, mother, Kovarla said hastily. Her head bobbed with eagerness, glad that she had done something right. I entered the city alone and hid my face until I reached Alviarin. Gawain meant to accompany me, but the bridge guards refused to let any member of the younglings pass. Forget Gawain Trakand, Elida ordered sourly. That young man remained alive to trouble her plans, it seemed. If Galena did turn out to be alive still, she would pay for failing in that, on top of letting Althor escape. You will leave the city as circumspectly as you entered, daughter, and keep yourself and the others well hidden in one of the villages beyond the bridge towns until I send for you. Dorlan will do nicely. They would have to sleep in barns in that tiny hamlet which had no inn, the least their bungling deserved. Go, now, and pray that someone above you does arrive soon. The hall will demand amends for this unparalleled catastrophe, and at the moment it seems you stand highest among those at fault. Go. Kovarla's face went white. She tottered so, making her curtsy to leave, Elida thought she might fall. Bunglers! She was surrounded by fools, traitors, and bunglers. As soon as Elida heard the outer door close, she hurled down her knitting and sprang to her feet, rounding on Alviarin. Why have I not heard of this before? If Althor escaped, what was it you said? Seven days ago? If he escaped seven days ago, someone's eyes and ears must have seen him. Why was I not informed? I can only pass on to you what the Ajahs passed to me, mother. Alviarin adjusted her stole calmly, not a whit ruffled. Do you really mean to court a third debacle by attempting to rescue the captives? 
Elida sniffed dismissively. Do you really believe Wilders can stand before I, said I? Galena let herself be surprised. She must have. She frowned. What do you mean a third debacle? You didn't listen, mother. Shockingly, Alviaran sat without being given permission, crossing her knees and serenely arranging her skirts. Kovarla thought they might have held out against the Wilders, though I believe she is nowhere near as certain as she tried to pretend, but the men were another matter. Several hundred of them in black coats, all channeling. She was very certain of that, and so were the others, apparently. Living weapons, she called them. I think she nearly soiled herself just remembering. Elida stood as if pole-axed. Several hundred? Impossible. There can't be more than... She walked to a table that seemed all ivory and gilt and poured herself a goblet of wine punch. The lip of the crystal pitcher rattled against the crystal goblet and almost as much punch went onto the golden tray. Since Althor can travel, Alviarin said suddenly, it seems logical at least that some of these men can too. Kovarle is quite sure that was how they arrived. I suppose he is rather upset at his treatment. Kovarla seemed somewhat uneasy about it. She implied that a number of the sisters were. He might feel he owes you something. It would not be pleasant to have those men suddenly stepping out of thin air right here in the tower, would it? Elida practically tossed the punch down her throat. Galena had been instructed to begin making Althor supple. If he came for revenge, if there really were hundreds of men who could channel, or even one hundred... She had to think. Of course, if they were coming, I believe they would have by now. They would not have wasted surprise. Perhaps even Althor doesn't wish to confront the full tower. I suppose they have all returned to Camelin to their black tower. Which means, I fear, that Tovain has a most unpleasant shock awaiting her. Pen an order for her to return immediately, Elida said hoarsely. The punch did not seem to help. She turned and gave a start to find Alviarin right in front of her. Maybe there were not even one hundred. Not even one hundred? At sunset, ten would have seemed madness. But she could not take the chance. Write it out yourself, Alviarin. Now, right now. And how is it to be gotten to her? Alviarin tilted her head, icily curious. For some reason, she wore a faint smile. None of us can travel. The ships will put Tovain and her party ashore in Andor any day now, if they have not already. You told her to divide into small groups and avoid villages so as to give no warning. No, Elida. I am afraid Tovain will regather her forces near Camelin and attack the Black Tower without any word from us reaching her. Elida gasped. The woman had just called her by name. And before she could begin to splutter with outrage... Worse came. I think you are in great trouble, Elida. Cold eyes stared into Elida's, and cold words slid smoothly from Alviarin's smiling lips. Sooner or later, the hall will learn of the disaster with Althor. Galena might have satisfied the hall, possibly, but I doubt Kovarla will. They will want someone higher to pay. And sooner or later, we will all learn Tovain's fate. It will be difficult to keep this on your shoulders, then. Casually, she adjusted the Amarlin's stole around Elida's neck. 
In fact, it will be impossible if they learn any time soon. You will be stilled, made an example, the way you wanted to make Swan Sanche. But there might be time to recover if you listen to your keeper. You must take good advice. Elida's tongue felt frozen. The threat could not have been clearer. What you have heard tonight is sealed to the flame, she said thickly, but she knew that the words were useless before they were out of her mouth. If you mean to reject my advice. Alviarin paused, then began to turn away. Wait! Elida pulled down the hand she had stretched out unaware. Stripped of the stole. Stilled. Even after that, they would make her howl. What? She had to stop and swallow. What advice does my keeper offer? There had to be some way to stop this. Sighing, Alviarin came close again. Closer, in fact. Much too near for anyone to stand to the Amerlin, their skirts almost touching. First, I fear you must abandon Tovain to whatever comes, for the moment at least. And also Galena and whoever else was taken prisoner, whether by the Aeel or the Ashaman. Any attempted rescue now must mean discovery. Elida nodded slowly. Yes, I can see that. She could not take her horrified eyes away from the other woman's demanding gaze. There had to be a way. This could not be happening. And I think it is time to reconsider your decision about the tower guard. Don't you really think the guard should be increased after all? I can see my way clear to do that. Light. She had to think. So good, Alviarin murmured, and Elida flushed with helpless rage. Tomorrow you will personally search Josane's rooms and Adelorna's. Why under the light would I... The woman tugged her striped stole again, roughly this time, almost as if to yank it off or saw through her neck with it. It seems that Josane found an angreal some years before and never turned it in. Adelorna did worse, I fear. She removed an angreal from one of the storerooms without permission. When you have found them, you will announce their punishment immediately. Something quite stiff. And at the same time, you will hold up Dore's, Kiyoshi, and Ferelian as models of preserving the law. You will give each a present. A fine new horse will do. Elida wondered whether her eyes were going to pop right out of her face. Why? From time to time, a sister kept an angreal to herself in defiance of the law, but the penance was seldom more than a stern slap on the knuckles. Every sister knew the temptation. And the rest. The effect was obvious. Everyone would believe Dore's and Kiyoshi and Ferelian had exposed the other two. Josane and Adelorna were green, the others brown, gray, and yellow, respectively. The green Aja would be furious. They might even try to get back at the others, which would incite those Ajas, and... Why do you want to do this, Alviaren? Elida, it should be enough for you that it is my advice. Mocking honeyed ice suddenly turned to cold iron. I want to hear you say that you will do as you are told. There's no point in me working to keep the stole on your neck otherwise. Say it. I... Elida tried to look away. Oh, light, she had to think. Her belly was clenched in a knot. I will do as I am told. Alviarin smiled that chilly smile. You see, that did not hurt very much. 
Suddenly she stepped back, spreading her skirts in a moderate curtsy. With your permission, I will withdraw and let you find some sleep in what remains of the night. You have an early morning ahead, with orders to issue for High Captain Chu Bane and apartments to search. We have to decide when to let the tower know about the Ashaman, too. Her tone made it clear that she would decide. And perhaps we should begin planning our next move against Althor. It is about time the tower stood openly and called him to heal, don't you think? Think well. I give you good night, Elida. Dazed, wanting to sick up, Elida watched her go. Stand openly? That would invite attack by these... What had the woman called them? These Ashaman. This could not be happening to her. Not to her. Before she realized what she was doing, she hurled the goblet across the room to shatter against a tapestry of flowers. Seizing the pitcher with both hands, she raised it overhead with a shriek of fury and flung that, too, in a spray of punch. The foretelling had been so certain. She would... Abruptly, she stopped, frowning at the tiny shards of crystals clinging to the tapestry, the larger pieces scattered across the floor. The foretelling. Surely that had spoken of her triumph? Her triumph! Alviarin might have her minor victory, but the future belonged to Elida, as long as Alviarin could be gotten rid of. But it had to be done quietly, in some way so that even the hall would want silence a way that would not point to Elida until it was too late, should Alviarin's sails gain wind. And suddenly the why came to her. Alviarin would not believe if she was told. No one would. Could Alviarin have seen her smile then, the woman's knees would have turned to jelly. Before she was done, Alviarin would envy Galena, alive or dead. Pausing in the hallway outside Elida's apartments, Alviarin studied her hands by the light of the stand lamps. They did not shake, which surprised her. She had expected the woman to fight harder, to resist longer. But it was begun and she had nothing to fear. Unless Elida learned that no fewer than five Ajas had passed mention of Althor to her in the last few days, the deposing of Kola Vair had sent every Aja's agent in Kyrian flying for a pen. No, if Elida did learn, she was safe enough, with the hold she had on the woman now, and with Messana as patron. Elida, though, was finished, whether she realized or not. Even if the Ashaman failed to trumpet their crushing of Tovain's expedition, and she was sure they would crush it after what Messana had told her of events of Dumai's wells, all the eyes and ears in Camelin truly would gain wings once they learned. Lacking a miracle, such as the rebels appearing at the gates, Elida would suffer Swan Sanchez's fate in a matter of weeks. In any case, it had begun, and if she wished she knew what it was, all she really had to do was obey, and watch, and learn. Perhaps she would wear the seven-striped stole herself when all was done. In the early morning sunlight streaming through her windows, Siane dipped the pen, but before she could write the next word, the door to the hall opened and the armorlin swept in. Siane's thick black eyebrows rose. She would have expected anyone else at all before Elida, perhaps not excluding Randall Thor himself. Still, she set the pen down and rose smoothly, 
pulling down the silver-white sleeves she had pushed up to keep clear of the ink. She made the degree of curtsy proper to the Armalin seat from a sitter in her own apartments. I do hope you haven't found any white sisters hiding away Angreal, mother. She did hope it quite fervently. Elida's descent on the greens a few hours ago, while most of them slept, was probably still producing wails and gnashing of teeth. In living memory, no one had been ordered birched for keeping back an Angreal, and now there were to be two. The Amerlin must have been in one of her infamous cold furies. But if she had been then, no sign of it remained now. For a moment she regarded Siane silently, cool as a winter pond in her red-slashed silks, then glided to the carved sideboard where painted ivory miniatures of Siane's family stood, all years dead, but she still loved every one. You did not stand to raise me, Amerlin, Elida said, picking up the picture of Siane's father. She set it down hastily and took up her mother instead. Siane's eyebrows almost rose again, but she tried to make it a rule not to let herself be surprised more than once in a day. I was not informed that the hall was sitting until afterward, mother. After all these years, a touch of Lugard still clung to her voice. Yes, yes. Abandoning the paintings, Elida glided to the fireplace. Siane had always had a fondness for cats, and carved wooden cats of every sort crowded the mantelpiece, some in amusing poses. The Amerlin frowned at the display, then squeezed her eyes shut and gave her head a tiny shake. But you remained, she said, turning quickly. Every sitter who was not informed fled the tower and joined the rebels. Except you. Why? Siane spread her hands. What else could I do but stay, mother? The tower must be whole. Whoever the Amerlin, she added to herself. And what's wrong with my cats, if I may ask? Not that she ever would allowed, of course. Sarela Bagand had been a fierce mistress of novices before being raised Amerlin's seat, the very year she herself earned the shawl, and a fiercer Amerlin than Elida could be with a sore tooth. Siane had had the proprieties driven into her too hard and deep for mere years to shift, or any dislike for the woman who wore the stole. One did not have to like an Amerlin. The tower must be whole, Elida agreed, rubbing her hands together. It must be whole. Now why was she nervous? She had ninety-nine kinds of temper, all hard as a knife and twice as sharp, but nervous the woman was not. What I say to you now is sealed to the flame, Siane. Her mouth twisted wryly and she shrugged, giving her stole an irritable twitch. If I knew how to make the seal stronger, I would, she said, dry as yesterday's dust. I will hold your words in my heart, mother. I want you, I command you, to undertake an inquiry, and you must indeed hold it in your heart. The wrong ear hearing of it might mean death and disaster for the whole tower. Siane's eyebrows twitched. Death and disaster for the whole tower? In my heart, she said again. Will you sit yourself, mother? That was proper in her own apartments. May I pour you some mint tea or plum punch? Waving away the offer of refreshment, Elida took the most comfortable chair, carved by Siane's father as a gift when she received the shawl, though of course the cushions had been replaced many times since. The Amerlin made the country chair seem a throne, all stiff back and iron countenance. 
Most ungraciously, she did not give permission for Cien to sit too, so Cien folded her hands and remained standing. I have thought long and hard on treason, Cien, since my predecessor and her keeper were allowed to escape. Helped to escape? Treason must have been at the core of that, and I fear only a sister or sisters could have effected it. That would certainly be a possibility, Mother. Elida frowned at the interruption. We can never be sure who has the shadow of treason in her heart, Cien. Why, I suspect that someone arranged for an order of mine to be countermanded. And I have reason to believe that someone has communicated privately with Randall Thor. To what end, I cannot say. But that surely is treason against me and against the Tower. Cien waited for more, but the Armorlin only looked back at her, slowly smoothing her red-slashed skirts. Exactly what inquiry do you wish me to make, mother? she asked cautiously. Elida bounded to her feet. I charge you to follow the stench of treason, no matter where it leads or how high, even to the keeper herself. Yes, even to her. What you find, whoever it leads to, you will bring before the Amarlin seat alone, Cien. No one else must know. Do you understand me? I understand your commands, mother. Which, she thought, once Elida had departed even more swiftly than she had come, was about all she did understand. In order to think, she took the chair the Amarlin had vacated, fists pressed beneath her chin in just the way her father had always sat thinking. Everything fell to logic, eventually. She would not have stood against Swan Sanche had she proposed the girl as Amerlin in the first place. But once it was done and all the forms were followed, however sparely, aiding her escape certainly had been treason, and deliberately countermanding an Amerlin's order just as much. Probably communicating with Althor was, too. That depended on what was communicated, with what intent. Finding who had changed the Amarlin's command would be difficult without knowing what command. At this late date, learning who might have helped Swan escape stood about as much chance of success as learning who might be writing to Althor. So many pigeons flew into and out of the tower coats every day that at times the sky seemed to be raining feathers. If Elida knew more than she had said, she had certainly gone around the barn. This all made very little sense. Treason ought to make Elida boil with rage, but she had not been angry. She had been nervous, and anxious to be gone, and secretive, as if she did not want to tell everything she knew or suspected, almost as though she was afraid to. What kind of treason would make Elida nervous or afraid? Death and disaster for the whole tower. Like the pieces of a blacksmith's puzzle all fell into place, and Cien's eyebrows tried to climb onto her scalp. It fit. It all fit. She felt the blood draining from her face. Her hands and feet were suddenly icy, sealed to the flame. She had said she would keep this in her heart, but everything had changed since she spoke those words. She only let herself be afraid when it was logical to be, and right then she was terrified. She could not face this alone. But who? Under the circumstances, who? This answer came much more easily. Gathering herself took a little time, but she hurried from her rooms and out of the white quarters, walking a good deal faster than she usually did. 
Servants scurried through the corridors as always, though she walked so quickly that she was past most before they could begin bow or curtsy, but there seemed fewer sisters about than the early hour could account for. Many fewer. Yet if most were staying close to their quarters for some reason, the few she saw made up for it in one way. Sisters swanned along the tapestry-hung hallways, faces all serenity, and their eyes seemed to have steam behind them. Here and there, two or three women spoke together, with sharp eyes darting to see who might be listening. Always two or three of the same Aja. Even yesterday she was sure she had still seen women sharing friendship between Ajas. Whites were supposed to put emotion away entirely, but she had never seen the reason for blinding herself as some did. Suspicion made the air in the tower like hot jelly. Not a new thing, unfortunately. The Amerlin had begun it with her harsh measures, and the rumors about Loghain had only exacerbated the situation, but this morning seemed worse than ever. Talene Minley came around a corner ahead of her, her shawl not just across her shoulders, but spread down her arms as though to display the green fringe. For that matter, she realized that every green she had seen this morning wore her shawl. Talene, golden-haired and statuesque and lovely, had stood to depose Swan, but she had come to the tower while Cian was accepted, and that decision had not dented their long friendship. Talene had had reasons Cian accepted, if not agreed with. Today her friend stopped, watching her warily. So many sisters seemed to watch one another that way of late. Another time she would have stopped, but not with what made her head want to burst open like a spoiled melon. Talene was a friend, and she thought she could be sure of her, but thinking was not enough for this. Later, if possible, she would approach Talene. Hoping it would be possible, she hurried past with only a nod. In the red quarters, the mood was even worse, the air thicker. As with the other Ajas, there were many more rooms than there were sisters to fill them now. That had been so long before the first rebel fled. But the red was the largest of the Ajas, and sisters filled the levels still in use. Reds frequently wore their shawls when there was no need— but now every last woman sported her red fringe like a banner. Conversation stopped as Cian approached, and cold eyes followed her in a bubble of icy silence. She felt an invader deep in enemy country as she crossed those peculiar floor tiles, white with the teardrop flame of Tarvalin in red. But then any part of the tower might be enemy country. Looking another way, those scarlet flames might be taken for red dragon's fangs, she had never believed those irrational tales about the reds and false dragons, but why would none of them deny it? She had to ask directions. I will not disturb her if she is busy, she said. We were close friends once, and I would like us to be again. Now more than ever the Ajas cannot afford to drift apart. All true, though the Ajas seemed to be splitting apart rather than drifting— but the Domani woman listened with a face that could have been cast in copper. There were not many Domani reds, and those few usually meaner than snakes caught in a fence. I will show you, sitter, the woman said at last, and not very respectfully. She led the way, then watched while Cian knocked on the door, as though she could not be trusted here alone. The door panels were carved with the flame, too, lacquered the color of fresh blood. Come, a brisk voice called from within. 
Siane opened the door, hoping she was right. Siane, Pevara exclaimed cheerfully. What brings you here this morning? Come, shut the door and sit. It was as if all the years since they were novice and accepted together had melted away. Quite plump and not tall, in truth, for a Kandori she was short, Pevara was also quite pretty, with a merry twinkle in her dark eyes and a ready smile. It was sad that she had chosen red, no matter how good her reasons, because she still liked men. The red did attract women who were naturally suspicious of men, of course, but others chose it because the task of finding men who could channel was important. Whether they liked men or disliked them, or did not care one way or the other in the beginning, however, not many women could belong to the red for long without taking a jaundiced view of all men. Siane had reason to believe Pivara had served a penance shortly after attaining the shawl for saying that she wished she had a warder. Since reaching the safer heights of the hall, she had openly said warders would make the red ajah's work easier. Not that that had any part in Siane trusting her. Of all the sisters in the tower, though, Pevara was the one she was sure she could trust with this. "'I cannot tell you how happy I am to see you,' Pevara said once they were ensconced in armchairs, carved in the spirals popular in Candor a hundred years ago, with delicate butterfly-painted cups of blueberry tea in hand. "'I have often thought how I should go to you, but I admit to fearing what you would say after I gave you the cut direct so many years ago.' Sworn on the blade, Siane, I'd not have done it, except Tessian Jorhald practically had me by the scruff of my neck, and I was too new to the shawl to have much backbone yet. Can you forgive me? Of course I can, Siane replied. I understood. The red firmly discouraged friendships outside the Aja, quite firmly and quite efficiently. We cannot go against our Ajas when we are young and later it seems impossible to retrace our steps. A thousand times I've remembered us whispering together after last. Oh, and the pranks. Do you recall when we dusted Sarancha's shift with powdered itch-oak? But I'm shamed to say it took being terrified out of my wits to stir my feet. I do want us to be friends again, but I need your help, too. You are the only one I'm sure I can trust. Sarancha was a prig then and still is, Pivara laughed. The grey is a good place for her. But I can't believe you terrified at anything. Why, you never decided it was logical to be afraid until we were back in our beds. Short of a promise to stand in the hall without knowing what for, whatever help I can give is yours, Siane. What do you need? Brought to the point, Siane hesitated, sipping her tea. Not that she had any doubts about Pivara, but pushing the words out of her mouth was difficult. The Armorlin came to see me this morning, she said finally. She instructed me to make an inquiry, sealed to the flame. Pivara frowned slightly, but she did not say that in that case Siane should not be speaking of it. Siane might have planned how to carry out most of their pranks as girls, but Pivara had been the one with the audacity to think most of them up, and she had provided most of the nerve to go through with them. She was very circumspect, but after a little thought it was clear to me what she wanted. I am to hunt out. At the last, courage failed her tongue. Dark friends in the tower.
Pivara's eyes, as dark as her own were blue, became stone and swept the mantle above her fireplace, where miniatures of her own family made a precise line. They had all died while she was a novice. Parents, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles and all, murdered in a quickly suppressed uprising of dark friends, who had become convinced the dark one was about to break free. That was why Siane had been sure she could trust her. That was why Pivara had chosen red, though Siane still thought she could have done as well and been happier as a green, because she believed a red hunting men who could channel had the best chance of finding dark friends. She had been very good at it. That plump exterior covered a core of steel. And she possessed the courage to say calmly what Siane had been unable to bring herself to utter. The Black Aja. Well, no wonder Elida would be circumspect. Pevara, I know she's always denied its existence harder than any three other sisters combined, but I'm certain sure that's what she meant, and if she is convinced... Her friend waved her off. You have no need to convince me, Siane. I have been sure the Black Aja exists for... Strangely, Pevara became hesitant, peering into her teacup like a fortune teller at a fair. What do you know of events right after the Aiel War? Two Amerlins dying suddenly in the space of five years, Siane said carefully. She assumed the other woman meant events in the tower. Truth to tell, until being raised a sitter nearly fifteen years ago, just a year after Pavara, she had not given much attention to anything outside the tower. And not that much inside, really. A great many sisters died in those years, as I recall. Do you mean to say you think the... The Black Aja had a hand in that? There, she had said it, and the name had not burned her tongue. I don't know, Pivara said softly, shaking her head. You've done well to wrap yourself deep in philosophy. There were things done then and sealed to the flame. She drew a troubled breath. Siane did not press her. She herself had committed something akin to treason by breaking that same seal, and Pavara would have to decide on her own. Looking at reports will be safer than asking questions with no idea who we're really asking. Logically, a black sister must be able to lie despite the oaths. Otherwise, the black Aja would have been revealed long since. That name seemed to be coming more easily with use. If any sister wrote that she did one thing when we can prove she did another, then we have found a dark friend. Pivara nodded. Yes. Perhaps the Black Aja has no hand in the rebellion, but I cannot think they would let this turmoil pass without taking advantage. We must look closely at this last year, I think. To that, Siane agreed reluctantly. There would be fewer pieces of paper to read and more questions to ask concerning recent months. Deciding who else to make part of the inquiry was even harder, especially after Pavara said, You were very brave coming to me, Siane. I've known dark friends to kill brothers, sisters, parents, to try hiding who they are and what they've done. I love you for it, but you were very brave indeed. Siane shivered as if a goose had walked on her grave. Had she wanted to be brave, she would have chosen green. She almost wished Elida had gone to someone else. There was no turning back now, though. Chapter 33 A Bath 
The days after sending Perrin away seemed endless to Rand, and the nights longer. He retreated to his rooms and stayed there, telling the maidens to allow no one to enter. Only Nandera was allowed past the doors with the Gilded Sons, bringing his meals. The sinewy maiden would set down a covered tray and list those who had asked to see him, then give him a look of rebuke when he repeated that he would see no one. Often he heard disapproving comments from the maidens outside before she pulled the door shut behind her. He was intended to hear, else they would have used hand talk. But if they thought to chivy him out by claiming that he was sulking, the maidens did not understand, and might not if he explained, if he could have brought himself to. He picked at the meals without appetite and tried to read, but his favorite books could divert him for only a few pages, even in the beginning. At least once every day, though he had promised himself he would not, he lifted the massive wardrobe of polished black wood and ivory in his bedchamber, floated it aside on flows of air, and carefully unraveled the traps he had set and the mask of mirrors that made the wall seem smooth, all inverted so no other eyes but his could see. There, in a niche hollowed out with the power, stood two small statues of white stone about a foot tall, a woman and a man, each in flowing robes and holding a clear crystal sphere overhead in one hand. The night he set the army in motion toward Ilion, he had gone to Rudion alone to fetch these Tirangrial. If he needed them, he might not have much time. That was what he had told himself. His hand would stretch toward the bearded man, the only one of the pair a man could use, stretch out and stop, shaking. One finger touching, and more of the one power than he could imagine could be his. With that, no one could defeat him, no one stand against him. With that, Lanfeard said once, he could challenge the Creator. It is mine by right, he muttered each time, with his hand trembling just short of the figure. Mine. I am the dragon reborn. And each time he made himself draw back, reweaving the mask of mirrors, reweaving the invisible traps that would burn anyone to a cinder who tried to pass them without the key. The huge wardrobe wafted back into place like a feather. He was the dragon reborn, but was that enough? It would have to be. I am the dragon reborn. He whispered at the walls sometimes, and sometimes shouted at them. I am the dragon reborn. Silently and aloud he raged at those who opposed him, the blind fools who could not see, and those who refused to see, for ambition, or avarice, or fear. He was the dragon reborn, the only hope of the world against the dark one, and the light helped the world for it. But his rages and thoughts of using the Tirangrial were only attempts to escape other things, and he knew it. Alone, he picked at his meals, though less every day, and tried to read, though seldom, and attempted to find sleep. That he tried more often as the days passed, not caring whether the sun was down or high. Sleep came in fitful snatches, and what harrowed his waking thoughts also stalked his dreams and chased him awake too soon for any rest. No amount of shielding could keep out what was already inside. He had the forsaken to face, and sooner or later the dark one himself. He had fools who fought him or ran away when their only hope was to stand behind him. 
Why would his dreams not let him be? From one dream he always sprang awake before it more than began. To lie there filled with self-loathing and muddled with lack of sleep. But the others... He deserved them all, he knew. Colover confronted him sleeping, her face black and the scarf she had used to hang herself still buried in the swollen flesh of her neck. Colover silent and accusing, with all the maidens who had died for him arrayed behind her in silent, staring ranks. All the women who died because of him. He knew every face as well as his own, and every name but one. From those dreams he woke weeping. A hundred times he hurled Perrin across the Grand Hall of the Sun, and a hundred times he was overwhelmed by blazing fear and rage. A hundred times he killed Perrin in his dreams and woke to his own screams. Why had the man chosen the Aes Sedai prisoners to use for their argument? Rand tried not to think about them. He had done his best to ignore their existence from the beginning. They were too dangerous to keep long as captives, and he had no idea what to do with them. They frightened him. Sometimes he dreamed of being bound inside the box again, of Galena and Arian and Katarine, and the rest taking him out to beat him. Drained and woke whimpering, even after he convinced himself his eyes were open and he was outside. They frightened him because he feared he might give way to the fear and the anger, and then... He tried not to think of what he might do then, but sometimes he dreamed it and woke shaking in a cold sweat. He would not do that. Whatever he had done, he would not do that. In dreams he gathered the Ashaman to attack the White Tower and punish Elida. He leaped from a gateway filled with righteous anger and Saedine and learned that Alviaran's letter had been a lie, saw her stand alongside Elida, saw Egwene beside her too, and Nynaeve, and even Elaine, all with Aes Sedai faces, because he was too dangerous to let run free. He watched the Ashaman destroyed by women who had years of studying the one power behind them, not just a few months of harsh tutoring, and from those dreams he could never wake until every man in a black coat was dead, and he stood alone to face the might of the Aes Sedai. Alone. Again and again, Cadswain spoke those words about madmen hearing voices, till he flinched at them as at blows of a whip, flinched in his sleep when she appeared. In dreams and waking, he called to lose Theron, shouted at him, screamed for him, and only silence answered. Alone. That small bundle of sensations and emotions in the back of his head, the sense of Alana's almost touch, slowly became a comfort. In many ways, that frightened him most of all. On the fourth morning, he woke groggily from a dream of the White Tower, flinging up a hand to shield grainy eyes from what he thought was a flare of Sayadar-wrought fire. Dust motes sparkled in the sunlight streaming through the window to reach his bed, with its great square blackwood posts inlaid with ivory wedges. Every piece of furnishing in the room was polished blackwood and ivory, square and stark and heavy enough to suit his mood. For a moment he lay there, but if sleep returned, it would only bring another dream. Are you there, Luce Theron? he thought without any hope of answer. 
and wearily pushed himself to his feet, tucking his wrinkled coat straight. He had not changed his clothes since first shutting himself away. When he staggered into the anteroom, at first he thought he was dreaming again, the dream that always woke him straight off in shame and guilt and loathing. But Min looked up at him from one of the tall gilded chairs, a leather-bound book on her knees, and he did not wake. Dark ringlets framed her face, big dark eyes so intent he almost felt her touch. Her breeches of brocaded green silk fit her like a second skin, and her coat of matching silk hung open, a cream-colored blouse rising and falling with her breath. He prayed to wake. It had not been fear or anger or guilt over Colliver or Luzthern's disappearance that drove him to shut himself away. There's a feast of sorts in four days, she said brightly, at the half-moon. The day of repentance, they call it for some reason, but there will be dancing that night. Sedate dancing, I hear, but any dancing is better than none. Carefully tucking a thin strip of leather into the book, she placed it on the floor beside her. That's just time to have a dress made if I set the seamstress to work today. That is, if you mean to dance with me. He pulled his gaze away from her, and it fell on a cloth-covered tray beside the tall doors. Just the thought of food made him queasy. Nandera was not supposed to let anyone in, burn her, least of all men. He had not mentioned her by name, but he had said no one. Men, I... I don't know what to say. I... Sheepherder, you look like what the dogs fought over. Now I understand why Alana was so frantic, even if I don't see how she knew... She practically begged me to speak to you, after the maidens turned her away for about the fifth time. Nandera wouldn't have let me in, if she wasn't in a lather about you not eating, and even so I had to do a little begging myself. You owe me, country boy. Rand flinched. Images of himself flashed in his head. Him tearing at her clothes, forcing himself on her like a mindless beast. He owed her more than he could ever pay. Raking a hand through his hair, he made himself turn to face her. She had tucked her feet up so she sat cross-legged in the chair, leaning her fists on her knees. How could she look at him so calmly? Min, there's no excuse for what I did. If there was any justice, I'd go to the gallows. If I could, I'd put the rope around my neck myself. On oath, I would. The words tasted bitter. He was the dragon reborn, and she would have to wait on justice until the last battle. What a fool he had been to want to live past Tarmangaden. He did not deserve to. What are you talking about, sheepherder? she said slowly. I'm talking about what I did to you, he groaned. How could he have done that, to anyone, but most of all to her? Men, I know how hard it is for you to be in the same room with me. How could he recall the soft feel of her so, the silkiness of her skin, after he had torn her clothes off? I never thought I was an animal, a monster. But he was. He loathed himself for what he had done, and loathed himself worse because he wanted to do it again. The only excuse I have is madness. Catswain was right. I did hear voices. Luz Theron's voice, I thought. Can you? No. No, I have no right to ask you to forgive me. 
but you have to know how sorry I am, Min. He was sorry, and his hands ached to run down her bare back over her hips. He was a monster. Bitterly sorry. At least know that. She sat there motionless, staring at him as if she never before had seen his like. Now she could stop pretending. Now she could say what she really thought of him, and however vile it was, it would not be half vile enough. So that's why you've been keeping me away, she said finally. You listen to me, you wooden-headed numbskull. I was ready to cry myself to dust because I'd seen one death too many, and you, you were about to do the same for the same reason. What we did, my innocent lamb, was comfort one another. Friends comfort one another at times like that. Close your mouth, you two rivers hay hair. He did, but only to swallow. He thought his eyes were going to fall onto the floor stones. He nearly spluttered getting words out. Comforted? Men, if the women circle back home heard what we did called comforting, they'd be lining up to peel our hides if we were fifty. At least it's we now instead of I, she said grimly. Rising smoothly, she advanced toward him, shaking a furious finger. Do you think I'm a doll, farm boy? Do you think I am too dim-witted to let you know if I didn't want your touch? Do you think I couldn't let you know in no uncertain terms? Her free hand produced a knife from under her coat, gave it a flourish, and tucked it back without slowing the torrent. I remember ripping your shirt off your back because you couldn't pull it over your head fast enough to suit me. That's how little I wanted your arms around me. I did with you what I've never done with any man, and don't think I was never tempted. And you say it was all you. As if I wasn't even there! The back of his legs hit a chair, and he realized he'd been backing away from her. Frowning up at him, she muttered, I don't think I like you looking down at me right now. Abruptly, she kicked him hard in the shin, planted both hands on his chest, and shoved. He toppled into the chair so hard, it nearly went over backward. Ringlets swayed as she gave her head a toss and adjusted her brocaded coat. That's as may be, men, but... That's as is, sheep herder, she cut in firmly. And if you say different again, you had best shout for the maidens and channel for all you're worth, because I'll thump you around this room till you squeal for mercy. You need a shave. And a bath. Rand took a deep breath. Perrin had such a serene marriage with a smiling, gentle wife. Why was it that he always seemed drawn to women who spun his head like a top? If only he knew the tenth part of what Matt did about women, he would have known what to say to all that. But as it was, all he could do was blunder on. In any case, he said cautiously, there's only one thing I can do. And what might that be? She folded her arms tight beneath her breasts, and her foot began tapping ominously, but he knew this was the right thing to do. Send you away. Just as he had Elaine and Avienda. If I had any self-control, I wouldn't have... That foot started tapping faster. Maybe better to leave that alone. Comforted? Light. Men, anyone close to me is in danger. The Forsaken aren't the only ones who would harm somebody near me just on the chance it might harm me, too. And now there's me as well. 
I can't control my temper anymore. Min, I nearly killed Perrin. Cadswain was right. I'm going mad or there already. I have to send you away so you'll be safe. Who is this Cadswain? she said, so calmly that he gave a start at noticing that her foot was still tapping. Alana mentioned that name as if she was the creator's sister. Now don't tell me I don't care. Not that she gave him one hair of a gap to tell anything. I don't care about Perrin either. You would hurt me as soon as him. I think that great public fight of yours was a fake, is what I think. I don't care about your temper, and I don't care whether you're mad. You can't be very mad, or you'd not be worrying about it so. What I do care about... She bent until those very big, very dark eyes were level with his, not a great distance away. And suddenly there was such a light glaring in them that he seized Saiyadeen, ready to defend himself. Send me away to be safe, she growled. How dare you! What right do you think you have to send me anywhere? You need me, Randolph Thor. If I told you half the viewings I've had about you, half your hair would curl and the rest would fall out. You dare! You let the maidens face any risk they want, and you want to send me away like a child? I don't love the maidens. Floating deep in the emotionless void, he heard those words spring from his tongue, and shock shattered the emptiness and sent Saiyadeen flying. Well, Min said, straightening. A small smile added more curve to her lips. That's out of the way. And she sat down on his lap. She had said he would not hurt Perrin any more than he would her, but he had to hurt her now. He had to, for her own good. I love Elaine, too, he said brutally. And Avienda. You see what I am? For some reason, that did not seem to faze her at all. Ruark loves more than one woman, she said. Her smile seemed almost of Aes Sedai serenity. So does Bale. And I never noticed any Trollocs' horns on either. No, Rand. You love me, and you can't back out of that. I ought to string you up on tenterhooks for what you've put me through, but... Just so you'll know, I love you, too. The smile faded in a frown of internal struggle, and finally she sighed. Life would be a deal easier sometimes if my aunts hadn't brought me up to be fair, she muttered. And to be fair, Rand, I have to tell you that Elaine loves you, too. So does Avienda. If both of Mandelaine's wives can love him, I suppose three women can manage to love you. But I'm here, and if you try to send me away, I'll tie myself to your leg. Her nose wrinkled. Once you start bathing again, anyway. But I won't go, no matter what. Just exactly like a top, his head spun. You love me? he said incredulously. How do you know what Elaine feels? How do you know anything about Avienda? Light. Mandolin can do what he likes, men. I'm not Aiel. He frowned. What was that you said about telling me half of what you see? I thought you told me everything. And I am too sending you somewhere safe. And stop doing your nose like that. I don't smell. He jerked the hand he had been scratching with from under his coat. Her arched eyebrows spoke volumes, but of course her tongue had to have its bit too. You 
dare take that tone? Like you don't believe it? Suddenly her voice began to rise by the word, and she augured a finger against his chest as though she meant to drive it through him. Do you think I'd go to bed with a man I did not love? Do you? Or maybe you think you aren't worth loving, is that it? She made a sound like a stepped-on cat. So I'm some little bit of fluff without a brain in her head, falling in love with a worthless lout, am I? You sit there gaping like a sick ox and slander my wits, my taste, my... If you don't quiet down and talk sense, he growled, I swear I'll smack your bottom. That leaped out of nowhere, out of sleepless nights and confusion. But before he could begin to form an apology, she smiled. The woman smiled. At least you're not sulking anymore, she said. Don't ever whine, Rand. You're no good at it. Now then, you want sense? I love you and I will not go. If you try to send me away, I'll tell the maidens you ruined me and cast me aside. I'll tell everybody who will listen. I will... He raised his right hand and studied the flat of his palm, where the branded heron stood clear, then looked at her. She eyed his hand warily and shifted herself on his knees, then conspicuously ignored everything except his face. I won't go, Rand, she said quietly. You need me. How do you do it? he sighed, slumping back in the chair. Even when you stand me on my head, you make all my troubles shrink. Min sniffed. You need to be stood on your head more often. Tell me, this Avienda, I don't suppose there's any chance she's bony and scarred like Nandera. He laughed in spite of himself. Light, how long since he had laughed with pleasure. Min, I'd say she is as pretty as you, but how can you compare two sunrises? For a moment she stared at him with a small smile, as if she could not decide whether to be surprised or delighted. You are a very dangerous man, Randolph Thor, she murmured, leaning toward him slowly. He thought he might fall into her eyes and be lost. All those times before when she sat on his lap and kissed him, all those times he had thought she was only teasing a country boy, he had nearly crawled out of his skin wanting to kiss her forever. Now, if she kissed him again now... Taking her firmly by the arms, he stood and set her on her feet. He loved her, and she loved him, but he had to remember that he wanted to kiss Elaine forever when he thought about her and Avienda. Whatever men said about Ruark or any Aielman, she had made a poor bargain the day she fell in love with him. You said half, Min, he said quietly. What viewings haven't you told me? She looked up at him with what almost might have been frustration, except, of course, that it could not have been. You're in love with the dragon reborn, Min Farshaw, she grumbled, and best you remember it. Best you did too, Rand, she added, pulling away. He let her go reluctantly, eagerly. He did not know which. You've been back in Carrion half a week, and you still have done nothing about the sea folk. Berlin thought you might drag your feet again. She left me a letter asking me to keep reminding you. Only you wouldn't let me... Well, never mind that. Berlin thinks they're important to you somehow. 
She says you're the fulfillment of some prophecy of theirs. I know all about that, men. I... He had thought to leave the sea folk out of being tangled with him. They were not mentioned in the prophecies of the dragon that he could find. But if he was going to let men stay near him, let her risk the dangers... She had won, he realized. He had watched Elaine walk away with his heart sinking, watched Avienda go with his stomach in knots. He could not do it again. Men stood there waiting. I'll go to their ship. I'll go today. The sea folk can kneel to the dragon reborn in all his splendor. I don't suppose there was ever any hope for anything else. Either they're mine or they're my enemies. That is how it always seems to be. Will you tell me about those viewings now? Rand, you should study what they're like before you... The viewings. She folded her arms and frowned up at him through her lashes. She chewed her lip and frowned at the door. She shook her head and muttered under her breath. At last she said, There was only one, really. I was exaggerating. I saw you and another man. I couldn't make out either face, but I knew one was you. You touched and seemed to merge into one another. And... Her mouth tightened worriedly, and she went on in a very small voice. I don't know what it means, Rand, except that one of you dies and one doesn't. I... Why are you grinning? This isn't a joke, Rand. I do not know which of you dies. I'm grinning because you've given me very good news, he said, touching her cheek. The other man had to be Luz Theron. I'm not just insane and hearing voices, he thought jubilant. One lived and one died, but he had known for a long time that he was going to die. At least he was not mad, or not as far mad as he had feared. There was still the temper he could barely control. You see, I... Suddenly he realized that he had gone from touching her cheek to cupping her face in both hands. He pulled them away as if burned. Min pursed her lips and gave him a reproving look, but he was not going to take advantage of her. It would not be fair to her. Luckily, his stomach rumbled loudly. I need something to eat if I'm going to see the sea folk. I saw a tray. Min made a sound more snort than sniff as he turned away, but the next moment she was sailing toward the tall doors. You need a bath if we're going to the sea folk. Nandera was delighted, nodding enthusiastically and sending maidens running. Though she did lean close to Min and say, I should have let you in the first day. I wanted to kick him, but it is not done, kicking the Kaakarn. By her tone, it should have been done. She spoke softly, yet not so softly he could not hear. He was sure that was deliberate. She directed too sharp a glare at him for it not to be. Maidens lugged in the big copper tub themselves, flashing hand talk once they set it down, laughing and too excited to let the Sun Palace servants do the work, or bring in the stream of buckets filled with hot water either. Rand had a hard time taking his own clothes off. For that matter, he had a hard time washing himself, and he could not escape Nandera lathering his hair. Flaxen-haired Somera and fiery-haired Anila insisted on shaving him as he sat chest-deep in the tub, 
Concentrating so intently, they seemed afraid they might cut his throat. He was used to that from other times they had refused to let him handle brush and razor himself. He was used to the maidens who stood around watching, offering to scrub his back or his feet, hands flickering in silent chatter, and still more than half scandalized at the sight of someone sitting in water. Besides, he managed to get rid of some, at least, by sending them off carrying orders. What he was not used to was Min, sitting cross-legged on the bed with her chin on her hands, watching the whole thing in very evident fascination. In all the crowd of maidens, he had not realized she was there until he was naked, and all there was to do then was sit down as fast as he could, splashing water over the sides of the tub. The woman would have done very well as a maiden herself. She discussed him with the maidens quite openly, with never a blush. He was the one who blushed. Yes, he is very modest, she said, agreeing with Malandera, a woman more rounded than most maidens, with the darkest hair Rand had seen on any Aiel. Modesty is a man's crowning glory. Malandera nodded soberly, but Min wore a grin that nearly split her cheeks. And, oh no, Demila, it would be a shame to spoil such a pretty face with a scar. Demila, grayer than Andera, leaner, and with a thrusting chin, insisted that he was not pretty enough to do without a scar to set off what beauty he had. Her words. The rest was worse. The maidens had always seemed to enjoy making his face red. Men certainly did. You have to dry off sooner or later, Rand, she said, holding up a long piece of white toweling with both hands. She stood a good three paces from the tub, and the maidens had all backed into a watching ring. Min's smile was so innocent, any magistrate would have found her guilty on that alone. Come and get dry, Rand. He had never been so relieved to pull on clothes in his life. By that time, all his orders had been carried out, and everything was in readiness. Randall Thor might have been routed in a bathtub, but the dragon reborn was going to the sea folk in a style that would send them plummeting to their knees with awe. Chapter 34 Taviran All was ready as Rand had ordered in the courtyard at the front of the Sun Palace. Or almost all. The morning sun slanted shadows from the stepped towers, so only ten paces in front of the tall bronze gates lay in full light. Dashiva and Flynn and Arishima, the three Ashaman he had retained, waited beside their horses. Even Dashiva resplendent with the silver sword and red and gold dragon on his black collar, though he still touched the sword at his hip as if constantly surprised to find it there. A hundred of Dobrain's armsmen sat their mounts behind Dobrain himself, with two long banners that hung down in the still air, their dark armor newly lacquered so it glistened in the sun, and silk streamers of red and white and black tied below the heads of their lances. They raised a cheer when Rand appeared, his sword belt with its gilded dragon buckle strapped over a red coat heavy with gold. Althor, 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 filled the courtyard. People crowding the archers' balconies joined in, Tyron and Kyrienen in their silks and laces, who just a week before had no doubt cheered Colaveras loudly. Men and women, who would as soon he had never returned to Kyrien, some of them waving their arms and giving voice. He raised the dragon scepter to acknowledge them, and they roared louder. 
A thunderous roll of drums and a blare of trumpets rose through the cheers, produced by a dozen more of Dobrain's men, who wore crimson tabards with the black-and-white disc on the chest, half carrying long trumpets draped in identical cloths, the other half with kettle drums also decorated, slung on either side of the horses. Five Aes Sedai in their shawls came to meet him as he descended the broad stairs. At least, they glided toward him. Alana gave him one searching look with those big, dark, penetrating eyes. The tiny knot of emotions in his skull said she was calmer, more relaxed, than he ever remembered. Then she made a small motion, and Min touched his arm and went aside with her. Bera and the others made small curtsies, inclining their heads slightly, as Aiel streamed out of the palace behind him. Nandera led two hundred maidens, they were not about to be outshone by the oath-breakers, and Kamar, a rangy bent-peaked Darine, grayer than Nandera and half a head taller than Rand, led two hundred Seyadun, who would not be outshone by Fardarai's Mai, let alone Kyrienen. They swung past on either side of him in the Aes Sedai to ring the courtyard. Bera, like a proud farm-wife, and Alana, like some darkly beautiful queen in their green-fringed shawls, and plump Rafella, even darker wrapped in her blue, watching him anxiously, and cool-eyed Faldrin, yet another green, her thin braids worked with colored beads, and slim Marana in her gray, whose frown made Rafella seem a picture of Aes Sedai serenity. Five. Where are Karuna and Varen? he demanded. I called for all of you. So you did, my lord dragon, Bera answered smoothly. She made another curtsy, too. Only the slightest dip, but it took him aback. We could not find Varen. She is somewhere in the Aiel tents. Questioning the... Her smooth tone faltered for one instant. The prisoners... I believe, in an attempt to learn what was planned once they reached Tarvalin. Once he reached Tarvalin. She knew enough not to blurt that where anyone could hear. And Karuna is consulting with Soralia on a matter of protocol. But I'm quite certain she will be more than happy to join us if you send a personal summons to Soralia. I could go myself if you... He waved that away. Five should be enough. Perhaps Varen could learn something. Did he want to know? And Karuna? A matter of protocol? I'm glad you are getting on with the wise ones. Bera started to speak, then closed her mouth firmly. Whatever Alana was saying to Min, scarlet spots had flared in Min's cheeks, and she had raised her chin, though oddly she seemed to be replying calmly enough. He wondered whether she would tell him. One thing he was sure of about women was that every last one had secret places in her heart, sometimes shared with another woman, but never with a man. The only thing he was sure of about women. I didn't come out here to stand all day, he said irritably. The Aes Sedai had arranged themselves with Bera in the lead, the others half a step back. If it had not been her, it would have been Karuna. Their own arrangements, not his. He did not really care so long as they held to their oaths, and he might have left it alone if not for Min and Alana. Marana will speak for you from now on. You will take your orders from her. By the suddenly widened eyes, you would have thought he had slapped every one of them, 
including Marana. Even Alana's head whipped around. Why should they be startled? True, Bera and Karuna had done almost all the talking since Dumai's wells, but Marana had been the ambassador sent to him at Camelon. If you are ready, men, he said, and without waiting for a reply, strode out into the courtyard. The big, fiery-eyed black gelding he had ridden back from Dumai's wells had been brought out for him, with a high-cantled saddle all worked in gold and a crimson saddlecloth embroidered with a disc of black and white at each corner. The trappings suited the animal and his name. Taidashar, in the old tongue, Lord of Glory. Horse and trappings both suited the dragon reborn. As he mounted, Min led up the mouse-colored mare she had ridden back, snugging on her riding gloves before swinging into the saddle. Sayer is a fine animal, she said, patting the mare's arched neck. I wish she was mine. I like her name, too. We call the flower a blue eye around Berlon, and they grow everywhere in the spring. She's yours, Rand said. Whichever Aes Sedai the mare belonged to would not refuse to sell to him. He would give Karuna a thousand crowns for Tadai Shar. She could not complain then. The finest stallion of Tyran bloodstock never cost a tenth of that. Did you have an interesting conversation with Alana? Nothing that would interest you, she said offhandedly. But a faint touch of red stained her cheeks. He snorted softly, then raised his voice. Lord Dobrain, I've kept the sea folk waiting long enough, I think. The procession drew crowds along the broad avenues and filled the windows and rooftops as word raced ahead. Twenty of Dobrain's lancers led to clear the way, along with thirty maidens and as many black eyes, then drummers, booming away, droom, 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 and the trumpeters punctuating that with flourishes. Shouts from the onlookers nearly drowned drums and trumpets alike, a wordless roar that could have been rage as easily as approbation. The banners streamed out, just ahead of Dobrain and behind Rand, the white dragon banner and the scarlet banner of the light, and Veiled Aeel trotted alongside the lancers, whose streamers also floated in the air. Now and then, a few flowers were hurled at him. Maybe they did not hate him. Maybe they only feared. It had to do. A train worthy of any king, Marana said loudly, to be heard. Then it's enough for the dragon reborn, he replied sharply. Will you stay back? And you too, Min. Other rooftops held assassins. The arrow or crossbow bolt meant for him would not find its target in a woman today. They did fall back behind his big black, for all of three paces, and then they were right beside him again, Min telling him what Berylaine had written about the sea folk on the ships, about the Jendai prophecy and the Koromur, and Morana adding what she knew of the prophecy, though she admitted that was not very much, little more than Min. Watching the rooftops, he listened with half an ear. He did not hold Saedine, but he could feel it in Dashiva and the other two, right behind him. He did not feel the tingle that would announce the Aes Sedai embracing the source, but he had told them not to, without permission. Perhaps he should change that. They did seem to be keeping their oath. How could they not? They were Aes Sedai. A fine thing if he took an assassin's blade while one of the sisters tried to decide whether serving meant saving him or obeying meant not channeling. 
Why are you laughing? Min wanted to know. Sayera pranced closer, and she smiled up at him. This is no laughing matter, my lord dragon, Marana said acidly on the other side. The Athanmi air can be very particular. Any people grow fastidious when it comes to their prophecies. The world is a laughing matter, he told her. Min laughed along with him, but Marana sniffed and went right back to the sea folk as soon as he stopped. At the river, the high city walls ran out into the water, flanking long greystone docks that stretched out from the quay. River ships and boats and barges of every kind and size were tied everywhere, the crews on deck to see the commotion, but the vessel Rand sought stood ready and waiting, lashed end-on to the end of a dock where all the laborers had already been cleared off. A longboat, it was called, a low, narrow splinter without any masts, just one staff in the bow, four paces tall, topped by a lantern, and another at the stern. Nearly thirty paces in length and lined with as many long oars, it could not carry the cargo a sailing vessel the same size would, but it had no need of the wind either, and with a shallow draft it could travel day and night, using rowers in shifts. Longboats ran the rivers with cargoes of importance and urgency. It had seemed appropriate. The captain bowed repeatedly as Rand came down the boarding ramp with Min on his arm and the Aes Sedai and Ashaman at his heels. Elva Shana was even skinnier than his craft, in a yellow coat of Mirandian cut that hung to his knees. It's an honor to be carrying you, my lord dragon, he murmured, mopping his bald head with a large handkerchief. An honor it is. An honor indeed. An honor. Plainly the man would rather have had his ship brimful of live vipers. He blinked at the Aes Sedai's shawls and stared at their ageless faces and licked his lips, eyes flickering back to Rand uneasily. The Ashaman dropped his mouth open once he put their black coats together with rumor, and thereafter he avoided so much as a glance in their direction. Shana watched Dobrain lead the men with the banners aboard, and the trumpeters and the drummers lugging their drums, then eyed the horsemen lining the dock as if he suspected they might want to board too. Nandera with twenty maidens and Kamar with twenty black eyes, all with Shufa wrapped around their heads, though unveiled, made the captain step hastily to put the Aes Sedai between him and them. The Aeel wore scowls for the heartbeat that needing to veil might slow them, but the sea folk might well know what a veil meant, and it would hardly do for them to think they were under attack. Rand thought Shana's handkerchief might yet rub away what thin gray fringe of hair he had left. The longboat swept away from the dock on its long oars, the two banners rippling in the bows, and the drums pounding and the trumpets blaring. Out in the river, people appeared in the decks of ships to watch, even climbed into the rigging. On the Seafolk ship they came out too, many in bright colors, unlike the drab clothing on crews of the other vessels. The White Spray was a larger craft than most of the rest, yet somehow sleeker as well with two large masts raked back sharply, and spars laid across them squarely, where nearly all the other ships had slanting spars longer than the masts to hold most of their sails. Everything about it spoke of difference, but in one thing Rand knew, the Athan Mier had to be like everyone else. They could either agree to follow him on their own, or be forced to it. The prophecies said he would bind together the people of every land— 
The north shall he tie to the east, and the west shall be bound to the south, it said, and no one could be allowed to stand aside. He knew that now. Sending out orders from his bath, he had not had an opportunity to give details of what he intended on reaching Whitespray, so he announced them now. The details produced grins among the Ashaman, as expected. Well, Finn and Arishma grinned, Deshiva blinked absently, and frowns among the Aiel, also as expected. They did not like being left behind. Dobrain merely nodded. He knew he was only here for show today. What Rand did not expect was the Aiel reaction. It shall be as you command, my lord dragon, Marana said, making one of those small curtsies. The other four exchanged glances, but they were curtsying and murmuring as you command right behind her. Not one protest, not one frown, not a single haughty stare or recital of why it should be done any way but what he wanted. Could he begin to trust them? Or would they find some eyes had eye way to wriggle around their oath as soon as his back was turned? They will keep their word, Min murmured abruptly, just as if she had read his thoughts. With an arm wrapped around his and both hands holding his sleeve, she kept her voice for his ears alone. I just saw these five in your hand, she added in case he did not understand. He was not sure he could fix his mind around that, even if she had seen it in a viewing. He did not have long to try. The longboat flew through the water, and in no time at all was backing oars some twenty paces from the much taller white spray. Drums and trumpets fell silent, and Rant channeled, making a bridge of air laced with fire that connected the longboat's railing to that of the Seafolk ship. With men on his arm, he started to cross, to every eye but that of an Ashaman, walking upward on nothing. He half expected men to falter, at least at first, but she simply walked at his side as though there were stone beneath her green-heeled boots. I trust you, she said quietly. She smiled, too, partly a comforting smile, and partly, he thought, because she was amused at reading his mind once more. He wondered how much she would trust if she knew that this was as far as he could weave a bridge like this. One pace farther, one foot, and the whole thing would have given way at the first step. At that point it became like trying to lift yourself with the power, an impossibility. Even the Forsaken did not know why, any more than they knew why a woman could make a longer bridge than a man, even if she was not as strong. It was not a matter of weight. Any amount of weight could cross any bridge. Just short of White Spray's railing, he stopped, standing in midair. For all Marana's descriptions, the people staring back at him were a shock. Dark women and bare-chested men with colorful slashes that dangled to the knee, and gold or silver chains around their necks and rings in their ears, in their noses of all places on some of the women, who wore a rainbow of blouses above their dark baggy breeches. None had any more expression than an Aes Sedai who was trying hard. Four of the women, despite being barefoot like the rest, wore bright silks, two of them brocades, and they had more necklaces and earrings than anyone else as well, with a chain strung with gold medallions running from an earring to a ring in the side of the nose. They said nothing, only stood together watching him, sniffing at small lacy golden boxes that hung from chains around their necks. He addressed himself to them. I am the dragon reborn. 
I am the Koromur. A collective sigh ran through the crew. Not among the four women, though. I am Arine Dintogara Two Winds, wave mistress to Clan Shodine, announced the one with the most earrings, a handsome full-mouthed woman in red brocade wearing five fat little gold rings in each ear. There were white streaks through her straight black hair and fine lines at the corners of her eyes. She had an impressive dignity. I speak here for the mistress of the ships. If it pleases the light, the Koromor may come aboard. For some reason she gave a start, and so did the three with her, but that sounded entirely too much like permission. Rand stepped onto the deck with men wishing he had not waited. He let the bridge go, and Saedine, but immediately felt another bridge replace it. In short order, the Ashaman and the Aes Sedai were with him, the sisters no more flustered than men had been, though perhaps one or two did straighten her skirts a bit more than necessary. They were still not so easy around the Ashaman as they pretended. The four Seafolk women took one look at the Aes Sedai and immediately gathered in a close huddle, whispering. Harine did a lot of the talking, and so did a young pretty woman in green brocade with eight earrings altogether, but the pair in plain silk put in occasional comments. Marana coughed delicately and spoke softly into the hand she used to cover it. I heard her name you the Koromor. The Atha'an Mier are great bargainers, I've heard, but I think she gave away something then. Nodding, Rand glanced down at Min. She was squinting at the Seafolk women, but as soon as she noticed his look, she shook her head ruefully. She saw nothing yet that might help him. Harine turned so calmly, there might never have been any hasty conference. This is Shalan Din Togara Morning Tide, Windfinder to Clan Shodine, she said with a small bow toward the woman in green brocade. And this is Dera Din Salan Rising Wave, sailmistress of White Spray. Each woman bowed slightly as she was named, and touched fingers to her lips. Dara, a handsome woman a little short of her middle years, wore plain blue and also eight earrings, though her earrings, nose ring, and the chain that ran between was finer than Harine's or Shallon's. The welcome of my ship to you, Dara said, and the grace of the light be upon you until you leave his decks. She made a small bow toward the fourth woman in yellow. This is Tavaldin Chennai Nine Gulls, windfinder of white spray. Only three rings hung from each of Tavel's ears, fine like those of the sailmistress. She looked younger than Shallon, no older than himself. Harine took it up again, gesturing toward the raised stern of the ship. We will speak in my cabin if it pleases you. A sorer is not a large vessel, Randalthor, and the cabin is small. If it pleases you to come alone, all here stand surety for your safety. So, from the Koromur to plain Randolph Thor, she would take back what she had given if she could. He was about to open his mouth and agree, anything to get this done. Irene was already moving that way, still gesturing for him to follow, the other woman with her, when Mirana gave another tiny cough. The windfinders can channel, she murmured hastily into her hand. You should take two sisters with you, or they'll feel they've gained the upper hand. 
Rand frowned. The upper hand? He was the dragon reborn, after all. Still... I will be pleased to come, Wave Mistress, but Min here goes everywhere with me. He patted Min's hand on his arm. She had not let go an instant. And Harine nodded. Tavel was already holding the door open. Dara made one of those small bows, gesturing him toward it. And Dashiva, of course. The man gave a start at his name, as if he had been asleep. At least he was not staring wide-eyed around the deck like Flynn and Narishma. Staring at the women. Stories spoke of the alluring beauty and grace of seafolk women, and Rand could certainly see that. They walked as if they would begin dancing on the next step, swaying sinuously. But he had not brought the men here to ogle. Keep your eyes open, he told them harshly. Narishma colored, jerking himself stiffly erect, and pressed fist to chest. Flynn simply saluted, but both seemed more alert. For some reason, Min looked up at him with the tiniest wry smile. Harine nodded a little more impatiently. A man stepped out from the crew in baggy green silk breeches and with an ivory-hilted sword and dagger thrust behind his sash. More white-haired than she, he also wore five fat little rings in each ear. She waved him away even more impatiently. As it please you, Randall Thor, she said. And of course, Rand added, as though an afterthought, I must have Marana and Rafella. He was not certain why he chose the second name, perhaps because the plump tyrant sister was the only one not green except Marana. But to his surprise, Marana smiled in approval. For that matter, Bera nodded, and so did Faldrin and Alana. Harine did not approve. Her mouth tightened before she could control it. As it pleases you she said, not quite so pleasantly as before. Once he was inside the stern cabin, where everything except a few brass-bound chests seemed built into the walls, Rand was not so sure the woman had not gained whatever she wanted just bringing him there. For one thing, he was forced to stand hunched over, even between the roof beams, or whatever they were called on a ship. He had read several books about ships, but none mentioned that. The chair he was offered at the foot of the narrow table would not pull out, being fastened to the deck, and once Min showed him how to unlatch the chair arm and swing it out so he could sit, his knees hit the bottom of the table. There were only eight chairs. Irene sat at the far end, her back to the stern's red-shuttered windows, with her windfinder to her left, and the sailmistress to her right, and Tavel below her. Marana and Rafaela took the chairs below Shalon, while Min sat to Rand's left. Dashiva, with no chair, took a place beside the door, standing upright quite easily, though the roof beams almost brushed his head, too. A young woman in a bright blue blouse, with one thin earring in each ear, brought thick cups of tea, brewed black and bitter. Let's be done with this, Rand said testily as soon as the woman left with her tray. He left his cup on the table after one sip. He could not stretch out his legs. He hated being confined. Thoughts of being doubled inside the chest flashed in his head, and it was all he could do to rein his temper. The stone of Tyr has fallen. The Aiel have come over the dragon wall. All the parts of your Jendai prophecy have come to pass. I am the Koramur. Harine smiled across her cup, a cool smile with no amusement in it.
That may be so, as it pleases the light, but... It is so, Rand snapped, despite a warning glance from Marana. She went so far as to nudge his leg with her foot. He ignored that, too. The cabin walls seemed closer somehow. What is it that you don't believe, wave mistress? That I said I serve me? Rafaela, Marana, he gestured sharply. All he wanted was for them to come to him and be seen to come, but they set down their cups and rose gracefully, glided to either side of him, and knelt. Each took one of his hands in both of hers and pressed her lips to the back of it, right on the shining golden-maned head of the dragon that wound around his forearm. He just managed to conceal his shock, not taking his eyes from Harreen. Her face went a little gray. I said I serve me, and so will the sea folk. He motioned the sisters back to their seats. Oddly, they looked a touch surprised. That is what the Jendai prophecy says. The sea folk will serve the Koramur. I am the Koramur. Yes, but there is the matter of the bargain. That word was plainly capitalized in Harin's tone. The Jendai prophecy says you will bring us to glory, and all the seas of the world will be ours. As we give to you, you must give to us. If I do not make the bargain well, Nesta will hang me naked in the rigging by my ankles and call the first twelve of Clan Shodine to name a new wave mistress. A look of utter horror stole across her face as those words came out of her mouth, and her black eyes went wider and wider by the word with disbelief. Her wavefinder goggled at her, and Dara and Tavel tried so hard not to, their eyes fastened to the table, that it seemed their faces might break. And suddenly Rand understood. Taviran. He had seen the effects, the sudden moments when the least likely thing happened because he was near, but he had never known what was going on before until it was finished. Easing his legs as best he could, he leaned his arms on the table. The Athaan Mier will serve me, Harin. That is given. Yes, we will serve you, but... Harin half reared out her chair, spilling her tea. What are you doing to me, I said I, she cried, trembling. This is not fair bargaining. We do nothing, Marana said calmly. She actually managed to drink a swallow of that tea without wincing. You are in the presence of the dragon reborn, Raffaella added. The Koramur your prophecy calls you to serve, as I believe. She laid a finger to one round cheek. You said you speak for the mistress of the ships. Does that mean your word is binding on the Athan Mier? Yes, Irene whispered hoarsely, falling back in her seat. What I say binds every ship and all to the mistress of the ships herself. It was impossible for one of the sea folk to go white in the face, yet staring at Rand, she came as near as she could. He smiled at Min to share the moment. At last a people would come to him without fighting every step of the way, or splitting apart like the Aiel. Maybe Min thought he wanted her to help clinch matters, or maybe it was Taviran. She leaned toward the wave mistress. You will be punished for what happens here today, Harine. But not so much as you fear, I think. At least, one day you will be the mistress of the ships. Harine frowned at her, then glanced to her windfinder. She is not Aes Sedai, Shallan said, and Harine seemed caught between relief and disappointment. 
until Rafella spoke. Several years ago I heard reports of a girl with a remarkable ability to see things. Are you she, Min? Min grimaced into her cup, then nodded reluctantly. She always said that the more people knew what she could do, the less good came of it. Glancing across the table at the Aes Sedai, she sighed. Raffaella only nodded, but Marana was staring at her, hazel eyes avid in a mask of serenity. No doubt she expected to corner Min as soon as possible and find out what this talent was and how it worked, and no doubt Min expected it too. Rand felt a prickle of irritation. She should have known he would protect her from being bothered. A prickle of irritation, and a warmth that he could protect her from that, at least. You may trust what Min says, Harine, Rafella said. The reports I heard say that what she sees always seems to come true. And even if she does not realize it, she has seen something else. Her round face tilted to one side, and a smile curved her mouth. If you will be punished for what happens here, then it must mean you will agree to whatever your Koramur wants. Unless I agree to nothing, Irene blustered. If I make no bargain... Her fists clenched on the tabletop. She had already admitted she had to make the bargain. She had admitted the sea folk would serve. What I require of you is not onerous, Rand said. He had thought about this since deciding to come. When I want ships to carry men or supplies, the sea folk will give them. I want to know what is happening in Taraban and Aradoman, and in the lands between. Your ships can learn, will learn, what I want to know. They call in Tanchico and Bandar Eben, and a hundred fishing villages and towns between. Your ships can travel farther out to sea than anyone else's. The sea folk will keep watch as far west in the Arath Ocean as they can sail. There is a people, the Shonchan, who live beyond the Arath Ocean, and one day they will come to try to conquer us. The sea folk will let me know when they come. You require much, Irene muttered bitterly. We know of these Shonchan, who come from the islands of the dead, it seems, from which no ship returns. Some of our ships have encountered theirs. They use the One Power as a weapon. You require more than you know, Koramur. For once, she did not pause at the title. Some dark evil has descended upon the Arath Ocean. No ship of ours has come from there in many months. Ships that sail west vanish. Rand felt a chill. He turned the dragon scepter, made from part of a Shanchan spear, in his hands. Could they have returned already? They had been driven back once at Falma. He carried the spearhead to remind him that there were more enemies in the world than those he could see, but he had been sure it would take the Shanchan years to recover from their defeat, driven into the sea by the dragon reborn and the dead heroes called back by the Horn of Valir. Was the horn still in the White Tower? He knew it had been taken there. Suddenly he could not bear the confines of the cabin any longer. He fumbled with a latch on the chair arm. It would not open. Gripping the smooth wood, he tore the arm off in splinters with one convulsive heave. We've agreed the sea folk will serve me, he said, pushing himself up. The low ceiling made him hunch over the table threateningly. The cabin did feel smaller. 
If there is any more to your bargain, Mirana and Rafella here will see to it with you. Without waiting for an answer, he spun for the door, where Deshiva appeared to be muttering to himself again. Mirana caught him there, caught his sleeve, and spoke swiftly and low. My lord dragon, it would be for the best if you remained. You have seen what your being Taviran has done already. With you here, I believe she will continue to reveal what she wants to hide and give agreement before we give anything. You are Grayaja, he told her harshly. Negotiate! Deshiva, come with me! On deck, he drew deep breaths. The cloudless sky was open overhead. Open. It took him a moment to notice Bera and the other two sisters watching him expectantly. Flynn and Narishma kept what they were supposed to do, a quarter of an eye on the ship, and the rest on the riverbanks, the city on one side, and the half-rebuilt granaries on the other. A ship in mid-river was a vulnerable place to be if one of the Forsaken decided to strike. For that matter, anywhere was a dangerous place then. Rand could not understand why one of them had not at least tried to destroy the Sun Palace around his ears. Min took his arm, and he gave a start. I'm sorry, he said. I shouldn't have left you. That's all right, she laughed. Mirana is already setting to work. I think she means to get you Harine's best blouse, and maybe her second best as well. The wave mistress looks like a rabbit caught between two ferrets. Rand nodded. The sea folk were his, or as good as. What matter whether the Horn of Valir was in the White Tower? He was Taviran. He was the dragon reborn in the Koromor. The golden sun still burned well short of its noon peak. The day is young yet, men. He could do anything. Would you like to see me settle the rebels? A thousand crowns to a kiss their mine before sunset. Chapter 35 into the woods. Sitting cross-legged on Rand's bed, Min watched him in his shirt sleeves rooting through the coats in the huge ivory inlaid wardrobe. How could he sleep in this room with all its black, heavy furniture? A part of her thought absently about moving everything out, replacing it with some carved pieces she had seen in Camelin, lightly touched with gilding, and pale draperies and linens that he would find less oppressive Odd. She had never cared one way or another about furniture or linens. But that one tapestry of a battle, of a lone swordsman surrounded by enemies and about to be overwhelmed, that definitely had to go. Mostly, though, she just watched him. There was such an intent look in his morning blue eyes, and the snowy shirt tightened across the broad of his back when he turned to reach deep into the wardrobe's interior. He had very good legs and marvelous calves, shown off well in dark, close-fitting breeches, with his boots turned down. Sometimes he frowned, combing fingers through dark reddish hair. No amount of brushing could make it ruly. It always curled slightly around his ears and on the nape of his neck. She was not one of those fool women who tossed their brains at a man's feet along with their hearts. It was just that sometimes near him, thinking clearly became a trifle difficult. That was all. Coat after embroidered silk coat came out and was tossed to the floor, atop the one he had worn to the Seafolk ship. Could the negotiations still be going half so well without his Taviran presence? If only she had a really useful viewing of the Seafolk. 
As always to her eyes, images and colorful auras flickered around him, most gone too quickly to make out, all but one meaningless to her at the moment. That one viewing came and went a hundred times a day, and whenever Matt or Perrin were present, it encompassed them too, and sometimes others. A vast shadow lurked over him, swallowing up thousands upon thousands of tiny lights like fireflies that hurled themselves into it in an attempt to fill up the darkness. Today there seemed to be countless tens of thousands of fireflies, but the shadow seemed larger too. Somehow that viewing represented his battle with the shadow, but he almost never wanted to know how it stood. Not that she could really say, except that the shadow always seemed to be winning to one degree or another. She sighed with relief to see the image go. A tiny stab of guilt made her shift her seat on the coverlet. She had not really lied when he asked what viewings she had kept back. Not really. What good to tell him he would almost certainly fail without a woman who was dead and gone. He became bleak too easily as it was. She had to keep his spirits up, make him remember to laugh. Except, I don't think this is a good idea, Rand. Saying that might be a mistake. Men were strange creatures in so many ways. One minute they took reasonable advice, and the next did just the opposite. Deliberately did the opposite, it seemed. For some reason, though, she felt protective toward this towering man who could probably lift her with either hand and that without his channeling. It is a wonderful idea, he said, tossing down a blue coat with silver embroidery. I'm Taviran, and today it seems to be working in my favor for a change. A green coat with gold embroidery went to the floor. Wouldn't you rather comfort me again? He stopped dead, staring at her with a silver-worked red coat hanging forgotten in his hands. She hoped she was not blushing. Comforting. Where did that idea ever come from, she wondered silently. The ants who had raised her were gentle, kind women, but they had strong notions of proper behavior. They had disapproved of her wearing breeches, disapproved of her working in stables, the job she loved best, since it brought her into contact with horses. There was no question what they would think of comforting with a man she was not married to. If they ever found out, they would ride all the way from Bearlawn just to skin her. And him, too, of course. I need to keep moving while I'm sure it is still working, he said slowly, then turned quite quickly back to the wardrobe. This will do, he exclaimed, pulling out a plain coat of green wool. I didn't know this was in there. It was the coat he had worn coming back from Dumai's Wells, and she could see his hands tremble as he remembered. Trying to be casual, she got up and went to put her arms around him, crushing the coat between them as she laid her head against his chest. I love you, was all she said. Through his shirt, she could feel the round, half-heeled scar on his left side. She could recall when he got it as if it were yesterday. That had been the first time she ever held him in her arms, while he lay unconscious and near death. His hands pressed against her back, squeezing her tight, squeezing the breath out of her, but then, disappointingly, they fell away. She thought he muttered something about not fair under his breath. Was he thinking about the sea folk while she hugged him? He should be, really. 
Marana was a grey, yet it was said the sea folk could make a Domani sweat. He should be, but she thought about kicking his ankle. Gently he moved her away and began pulling on the coat. Rand, she said firmly, you can't be sure it will have any effect, just because it did on Harine. If you being Taviran always affected everything, you'd have every ruler kneeling at your feet by now, and the white cloaks too. I'm the dragon reborn, he replied haughtily, and today I can do anything. Scooping up his sword belt, he fastened it around his waist. It bore a plain brass buckle now. The gilded dragon lay atop the coverlet on the bed. Gloves of thin black leather went on to cover the gold-maned heads on the backs of his hands, and the herons branded on his palms. But I don't look like him, do I? He spread his arms, smiling. They won't know until it's too late. She almost threw up her hands. You don't look much like a fool, either. And let him take that how he would. The idiot eyed her askance, as if he was not sure. Rand, as soon as they see the Aiel, they will either run or start fighting. If you won't take any of the Aes Sedai, at least take those Ashaman. One arrow and you're dead, whether you're the Dragon Reborn or a goat herd. But I am the Dragon Reborn Min, he said seriously, and Taviran. We are going alone, just you and me. That is, if you still want to come. You're not going anywhere without me, Randalthor. She stopped herself from saying he would trip over his own feet if he did. This euphoria was almost as bad as the dark bleakness. Nandera won't like this. She did not know exactly what went on between him and the maidens. Something very peculiar indeed by the things she had seen, but any hope that that might stop him guttered out when he grinned like a small boy evading his mother. She won't know, Min. He even had a twinkle in his eye. I do this all the time, and they never know. He held out a gloved hand, expecting her to jump when he called. There really was nothing to do but straighten her green coat, glance into the stand mirror to make sure of her hair, and take his hand. The trouble was, she was ready to leap if he crooked a finger. She just wanted to make sure he never found out. In the anteroom, he made a gateway atop the golden rising sun set in the floor, and she let him lead her through onto a hilly forest floor carpeted with dead leaves. A bird flashed away, flaring red wings. A squirrel appeared on a branch and chittered at them, lashing a furry white-tipped tail. It was hardly the sort of woods she remembered from near Bearlawn. There were not many real forests anywhere close to the city of Kyrian. Most of the trees stood four or five or even ten paces apart, tall leather leaves and pines, taller oaks and trees she did not know, running across the flat she and Rand stood on and up a slope that began only a few spans off. Even the undergrowth seemed thinner than back home. The bushes and vines and briars spread out in patches, though some of those were not small. Everything was brown and dry. She plucked a lace-edged handkerchief from her sleeve and dabbed at the sweat that suddenly seemed to pop out on her face. Which way do we go? she asked. By the sun, north lay over the slope, the direction she would choose. The city should lie about seven or eight miles in that direction. With luck, they could walk all the way back without encountering anyone. 
or better, given her heeled boots and the terrain, not to mention the heat, Rand could decide to give up and make another gateway back to the Sun Palace. The palace rooms were cool compared to this. Before he could answer, crackling brush and leaves announced someone coming. The rider who appeared on a long-legged gray gelding with bright-fringed bridle and reins was a Kyrianan woman, short and slender in a dark blue, nearly black, silk riding dress, horizontal slashes of red and green and white running from her neck to below her knees. The sweat on her face could not diminish her pale beauty or make her eyes less than large, dark pools. A small, clear green stone hung on her forehead from a fine golden chain, fastened in black hair that fell in waves to her shoulders. Min gasped, and not for the hunting crossbow the woman carried, casually raised in one green-gloved hand. For a moment she was sure it was Moiraine. But I do not recall seeing either of you in the camp, the woman said in a throaty, almost sultry voice. Moiraine's voice had been crystal. The crossbow lowered still quite casually, until it pointed rock-steady at Rand's chest. He ignored it. I thought I might like to take a look at your camp, he said with a slight bow. I believe you are the Lady Caroline Damodred? The slender woman inclined her head, acknowledging the name. Min sighed regretfully, but it was not as if she had really expected Moiraine to turn up alive. Moiraine was the only viewing of hers that had ever failed. But Caroline Damodred herself, one of the leaders of the rebellion against Rand here in Kyrian and a claimant to the Sun Throne, he really was pulling all the threads of the pattern around him to have her appear. Lady Caroline slowly raised the crossbow to one side. The cord made a loud snap, launching the broadhead bolt into the air. I doubt one would do any good against you, she said, walking her gelding slowly toward them, and I would not like you to think I was threatening you. She looked once at Min, just a glance that ran head to toe, though Min was sure everything about her was filed away. But aside from that, Lady Caroline kept her eyes on Rand. She drew rein three paces away, just far enough so he could not reach her afoot before she could dig in her heels. I can only think of one grey-eyed man with your height who might suddenly appear out of nowhere, unless perhaps you are an Aiel in disguise. But perhaps you will be so kind as to supply a name. I am the Dragon Reborn, Rand said, every bit as arrogant as he had been with the Sea Folk. Yet if any Taviran swirling of the pattern was at work, the woman on the horse gave no evidence. Rather than leaping down to fall to her knees, she merely nodded, pursing her lips. I have heard so very much about you. I have heard you went to the tower to submit to the Armalyn seat. I have heard you mean to give the Sun Throne to Elaine Tracand. I have also heard that you killed Elaine and her mother. I submit to no one, Rand replied sharply. He stared up at her with eyes fierce enough to snatch her out of the saddle by themselves. Elaine is on her way to Camelin as we speak, to take the throne of Andor, after which she will have the throne of Kyrian as well. Min winced. Did he have to sound like a pillow stuffed full of haughty? She had hoped he had calmed down a bit after the sea folk.
Lady Caroline laid her crossbow across the saddle in front of her, running a gloved hand along it, perhaps regretting that loosed bolt. I could accept my young cousin on the throne, better she than some at least, but those big dark eyes that had seemed so liquid suddenly became stone. But I am not sure I can accept you in Kyrian, and I do not mean only your changes to laws and customs. You change fate by your very presence. Every day since you came, people die in accidents so bizarre no one can believe them. So many husbands abandon their wives and wives their husbands that no one even comments upon it now. You will tear Kyrian apart just by remaining here. Balance, Min broke in hastily. Rand's face was so dark he looked ready to burst. Maybe he had been right to come after all. Certainly there was no point letting him throw this meeting away in a tantrum. She gave no one a chance to speak. There is always a balance of good against bad. That's how the pattern works. Even he doesn't change that. As night balances day, good balances harm. Since he came, there hasn't been a single stillbirth in the city, not one child born deformed. There are more marriages some days than used to be in a week, and for every man who chokes to death on a feather, a woman tumbles head over heels down three flights of stairs and instead of breaking her neck, stands up without a bruise. Name the evil and you can point to the good. The turning of the wheel requires balance, and he only increases the chances of what might have happened anyway in nature. Suddenly she colored, realizing they were both looking at her, staring more like. Balance, Rand murmured, eyebrows lifting. I've been reading some of Master Fell's books, she said faintly. She did not want anyone to think she was pretending to be a philosopher. Lady Caroline smiled at her tall saddle-bow and toyed with her reins. The woman was laughing at her. She would show this woman what she could laugh at. Abruptly, a tall black gelding with the look of a warhorse came crashing through the undergrowth, ridden by a man well into his middle years with close-cropped hair and a pointed beard. Despite his yellow tyron coat, the fat sleeves striped with green satin, eyes of a startling pretty blue looked out of his damp dark face like pale polished sapphires. Not a particularly pretty man, but those eyes made up for a too long nose. He carried a crossbow in one leather gauntleted hand and brandished a broad-head bolt in the other. This came down inches from my face, Caroline, and it has your markings. Just because there's no game is no reason. He became aware of Rand and Min just then, and his drawn crossbow lowered toward them. Are these strays, Caroline? Or did you find spies from the city? I've never believed Al Thor would continue to let us sit here unhindered. Half a dozen more riders appeared behind him, sweating men in fat-sleeved coats with satin stripes and perspiring women in riding dresses with wide, thick lace collars all carrying crossbows. The last of those riders had not halted, horses stamping and tossing heads, before twice as many came struggling through the brush from another direction and pulled up near Caroline, slight pale men and women in dark clothes with stripes of color, sometimes to below the waist, all with crossbows. Servants afoot came after, laboring and panting with the heat, 
the men who would dress and carry any downed game. It hardly seemed to matter that none had more than a skinning knife at his belt. Min swallowed and unconsciously began patting her cheeks with her handkerchief a little more vigorously. If even one person recognized Rand before he knew it, Lady Caroline did not hesitate. Not spies, darling, she said, turning her horse to face the tyrant newcomers. The High Lord Darlin Cisnera. All that was needed now was Lord Toram Riotin. Min wished Rand's Taviran tugging at the pattern could be just a little less complete. A cousin and his wife, Caroline went on, come from Andor to see me. May I present Thomas Trakand from a minor branch of the house, and his wife, Jaisi. Min almost glared at her. The only Jaisi she had ever known had been a dusty prune before she was twenty and sour and bad-tempered to boot. Darlin's gaze swept over Rand again, lingered a moment on Min. He lowered his crossbow and bowed his head just a hair, a high lord of tear to a minor noble. You are welcome, Lord Tomas. It takes a brave man to join us in our present circumstances. Al Thor may loose the savages on us any day. The Lady Caroline gave him an exasperated look that he made a show of not seeing. He noted that Rand's return bow was no more than his, however, noted and frowned. A darkly handsome woman in his retinue muttered angrily under her breath. She had a long, hard face, well-practiced in anger, and a stout fellow, scowling and sweating in a red-striped coat of pale green, heeled his horse forward a few steps as if thinking to ride Rand down. The wheel weaves as the wheel wills, Rand said coolly, as though he noticed nothing. The dragon reborn to... The dragon reborn to just about anybody was what it was. Arrogance on a mountaintop. Not much happens as we expect. For instance, I heard you were in Tyr, in Haddon Merck. Min wished she dared speak up, dared say something to soothe him. She settled for stroking his arm, casually. A wife. Now there was a word that suddenly sounded fine. A wife idly patting her husband. Another fine word. Light it was hard being fair. It was hardly fair having to be fair. The High Lord Darlin is but lately come by longboat with a few of his close friends, Thomas. Caroline's throaty tone never changed, but her gelding suddenly pranced, no doubt at a sharp heel, and under cover of regaining control, she turned her back to Darlin and shot Rand a brief warning frown. Do not trouble the High Lord, Thomas. I do not mind, Caroline. Darlin said, slinging his crossbow from his saddle by a loop. He rode a little closer and rested an arm on his tall saddle-bow. A man should know what he is stepping into. You may have heard the tales about Althor going to the tower, Tomas. I came because Aes Sedai approached me months ago with suggestions that might happen, and your cousin informed me she had received the same. We thought we might put her on the sun throne before Colaver could take it. Well, Althor is no fool. Never believe he is. Myself, I think he played the tower like a harp. Colaver is hanged. He sits secure behind Kyrian's walls. Without an Aes Sedai halter, I'll wager, no matter what rumor says. 
And until we find some way to extricate ourselves, we sit in his hand, waiting for him to make a fist. A ship brought you, Rand said simply. A ship could take you away. Abruptly, Min realized he was gently patting her hand on his arm, trying to soothe her. Startlingly, Darlin threw back his head and laughed. A great many women would forget his nose for those eyes and that laugh. So it would, Thomas. But I've asked your cousin to marry me. She will not say yes or no, but a man cannot abandon even a possible wife to the mercies of the Aiel, and she will not leave. Caroline Damodred drew herself up on her saddle, face cold enough to shame an eyes Sedai, but suddenly auras of red and white flashed around her and Darlin, and Min knew. The colors never seemed to matter, but she knew that they would marry, after Caroline had led him a merry chase. More, to her eyes, a crown suddenly appeared on Darlin's head, a simple golden circlet with a slightly curved sword lying on its side above his brows. The king's crown he would wear one day, though of what country she could not say. Tyr had high lords instead of a king. Image and auras vanished as Darlin pulled his horse around to face Caroline. There's no game to be found today. Toram has already returned to camp. I suggest we do the same. Those blue eyes scanned the surrounding trees quickly. It seems your cousin and his wife have lost their horses. They will wander in a careless moment, he added to Rand in a kindly tone. He knew very well they had no horses. But I'm sure Rover and Inez will give up their mounts. A walk in the air will do them good. The stout man in the red-striped coat swung down from his tall bay immediately with a toadying smile for Darlin, and one markedly less warm, if just as greasy, for Rand. The angry-faced woman was a moment later in climbing stiffly from her silver-gray mare. She did not look pleased. Neither was Min. You mean to go into their camp? She whispered as Rand led her to the horses. Are you mad? She added before thinking. Not yet, he said softly, touching her nose with the tip of one finger. Thanks to you, I know that. And he boosted her onto the mare, then climbed into the bay's saddle and heeled the animal up beside Darlin. Heading north and a little toward the west across the slope, they left Rovere and Inez standing beneath the trees, frowning at one another sourly. As they fell in behind with the Kyrianen, the other tyrants shouted laughing wishes that the pair would enjoy the walk. Min would have ridden alongside Rand, but Caroline put a hand on her arm, drawing her in back of the two men. I want to see what he does, Caroline said quietly. Which one, Min wondered. You are his lover, Caroline asked. Yes, Min told her defiantly, once she could catch a breath. Her cheeks felt like fire. But the woman only nodded, as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Maybe it was in Kyrian. Sometimes she realized that all the sophistication she had picked up talking to worldly people was about as thick as her blouse. Rand and Darlin rode knee to knee just ahead, the younger man half a head taller than the older, each wrapped in pride like a cloak, but talking just the same. Listening was not easy. They spoke quietly, and the dead leaves rustling under the horse's hooves, fallen branches cracking, 
often was enough to muffle their words. The cry of a hawk overhead or the chattering of a squirrel in a tree drowned them. Still, it was possible to overhear snatches. If I may say so, Tomas, Darlin said at one point as they headed down after the first rise, and under the light I offer no disrespect, you are fortunate in having a beautiful wife. The light willing, I will have one as beautiful myself. Why do they not speak of something important? Caroline muttered. Min turned her head to hide a small smile. The Lady Caroline did not look half as displeased as she sounded. She herself had never cared whether anyone thought her pretty or not. Well, until she met Rand, anyway. Maybe Darlin's nose was not all that long. I would have let him take Callandor from the stone, Darlin said some time later as they climbed a sparsely treed slope. But I could not stand aside when he brought Aeel invaders into Tyr. I've read the prophecies of the dragon, Rand said, leaning forward on the bay's neck and urging the animal on. A fine, glossy appearance the horse had, but no more bottom than his owner, Min suspected. The stone had to fall before he could take Kalandor, Rand continued. Other Tyran lords follow him, so I hear. Darlin snorted. They cringe and lick his boots. I could have followed if that was what he wanted. If, with a sigh, he shook his head. Too many ifs, Thomas. There is a saying in Tyr. Any quarrel can be forgiven, but kings never forget. Tyr has not been under a king since Arthur Hawkwing, but I think the dragon reborn is very like a king. No, he has attainted me with treason, as he calls it, and I must go on as I began. The light willing, I may see Tyr sovereign on its own land once more before I die. It had to be Taviran work, Min knew. The man would never have spoken this way to someone casually met, Caroline Damodred's supposed cousin or not. But what did Rand think? She could hardly wait to tell him about the crown. Topping that hill, they suddenly came on a knot of spearmen, some with a dented breastplate or helmet, most without either, who bowed as soon as they saw the party. To left and right through the trees, men could see other groups of sentries. Below, the camp lay spread out in what seemed a permanent haze of dust, down a nearly treeless slope, and across the hill valley and up the next hill. Each of the few tents was large, with some noble's banner hanging limply on a staff above the peak. Almost as many horses stood tied to picket lines as there were people, and thousands of men and a handful of women wandered among the cook fires and wagons. None raised a cheer as their leaders rode in. Min studied them over the handkerchief she pressed to her nose against the dust, not caring whether Caroline saw what she was doing. Dispirited faces watched them pass, and grim faces, people who knew they were in a trap. Here and there a house's con stood stiffly above some man's head, yet most seemed to be wearing whatever they could find, bits and pieces of armor that often neither matched nor fitted very well. A good many, though, men too tall for Kyrian, wore red coats under their battered breastplates. Min eyed a nearly obscured white lion worked on a filthy red sleeve. Darlin could only have brought a few people with him on a longboat, perhaps no more than his hunting party. Caroline looked to neither side as they rode through the camp, but whenever they came near those men in red coats, 
her mouth tightened. Darlin dismounted before a tremendous tent, the largest Min had ever seen, larger than any she had ever imagined, a great red-striped oval, shining in the sunlight like silk, with no fewer than four high conical peaks, each with the rising sun of Kyrian stirring above in a lazy breeze, gold on blue. The strumming of harps drifted out amid the murmur of voices like the sounds of geese. As servants took away the horses, Darlin offered his arm to Caroline. After a very long pause, she laid her fingers lightly on his wrist with no expression whatsoever, letting him escort her inside. "'My lady wife,' Rand murmured with a smile, extending his arm. Min sniffed and put her hand atop his. She would rather have hit him. He had no right to make a joke of that. He had no right to bring her here, Taviran or no Taviran. He could be killed here, burn him.' But did he care if she spent the rest of her life weeping? She touched one of the striped door flaps as they went in and shook her head in wonder. It was silk. A silk tent. No sooner were they inside than she felt Rand stiffen. Darlin's shrunken retinue and Caroline's jostled around them with insincere murmurs of apology. Between the four main tent poles, Long trestle tables groaning with food and drink stood about the colorful carpets that had been laid for a floor, and there were people everywhere. Kyrian and nobles in their finery, a few soldiers with the fronts of the heads shaved and powdered, plainly men of high rank by the fine cut of their coats. A handful of bards strolled playing through the crowd, picked out as much by a loftier air than any noble, as by the carved and gilded harps they carried. Yet Min's eyes flew as if pulled to the sure source of Rand's worry. Three eyes Sedai talking together in shawls fringed green and brown and gray. Images and colors flashed around them, but not a thing she could make sense of. A swirl in the crowd revealed another, a comfortably round-faced woman. More images, more flaring colors, but all Min needed was the red-fringed shawl looped over her plump arms. Rand tucked her hand under his arm and patted it. Don't worry, he said softly. Everything is going well. She would have asked him what they were doing there, but she was afraid he would tell her. Darlin and Caroline had vanished into the crowd along with their followers, yet as a bowing serving man with stripes of red, green, and white on his dark cuffs offered a tray of silver goblets to Rand and Min, she reappeared, shaking off the importunings of a hatchet-faced fellow in one of those red coats. He glared at her back as she took a goblet of punch and waved the servant away, and Min's breath caught at the aura that suddenly flashed around him, bruised hues so dark they seemed nearly black. Don't trust that man, Lady Caroline. She could not stop herself. He will murder anyone he thinks is in his way. He'll kill for a whim, kill anybody. She clamped her teeth shut before saying more. Caroline glanced over her shoulder as the hatchet-faced man turned away abruptly. I could believe it easily of David Hanlon, she said wryly. His white lions fight for gold, not Kyrian, and loot worse than the Aeel. Andor became too hot for them, it seems. That with an arch glance at Rand. Toram has promised them a great deal of gold, I think, and estates, I know. She tilted her eyes up to Min. 
Do you know the man, Jaisi? Min could only shake her head. How to explain what she did know about Hanlon now? That his hands would be red with more rapes and murders before he died? If she had known when or who, but all she knew was that he would. Anyway, telling about a viewing never changed it. What she saw happened, no matter who she warned. Sometimes before she had learned better, it had happened because she warned. I've heard of the White Lions, Rand said coldly. Look among them for dark friends and you won't be disappointed. They had been some of Gabriel's soldiers. Men knew that much, and little more, except that Lord Gabriel had really been Ravine. It stood to reason that soldiers serving one of the Forsaken would include dark friends. What of him? Rand nodded toward a man across the tent whose long, dark coat had as many stripes as Caroline's dress. Very tall for a Kyrianan, perhaps less than a full head shorter than Rand, he was slender except for broad shoulders and strikingly good-looking, with a strong chin and just a touch of gray at his dark temples. For some reason, Min's eyes were drawn to his companion, a skinny little fellow with a large nose and wide ears, in a red silk coat that did not fit him very well. He kept fingering a curved dagger at his belt, a fancy piece with a golden sheath and a large red stone capping the hilt that seemed to catch the light darkly. She saw no auras around him. He seemed vaguely familiar. They were both looking at her and Rand. That, Caroline breathed in a tight voice, is Lord Toram Riotan himself, and his constant companion these past days, Master Jerail Mordeth. Odious little man. His eyes make me want to take a bath. They both make me feel unclean. She blinked, surprised at what she had said, but recovered quickly. Min had the feeling little put Caroline Domadred off her stride for long. In that, she was very like Moiraine. I would be careful were I you, Cousin Tomas, she went on. You may have wrought some miracle or Taviran work on me, and perhaps even on Darlin, though I cannot say what it might come to. I make no promises. But Toram hates you with a passion. It was not so bad before Mordeth joined him, yet since... Toram would have us attack the city immediately in the night. With you dead, he says, the Aeel would go, but I think it is you dead he seeks now, even more than he does the throne. Mordeth, Rand said. His eyes were locked to Toram Riotan and the skinny fellow. His name is Padan Fane, and there are one hundred thousand golden crowns on his head. Caroline nearly dropped her goblet. Queens have been ransomed for less. What did he do? He ravaged my home because it was my home. Rand's face was frozen, his voice ice. He brought Trollocs to kill my friends because they were my friends. He is a dark friend and a dead man. Those last words came through clenched teeth. Punch splashed the carpet as the silver goblet bent in his gloved fist. Min felt sick for him, for his pain. She had heard what Fane had done in the two rivers, but she put a hand on Rand's chest in near panic. If he gave way now, channeled with who knew how many eyes to die around, 
For the light's sake, take hold of yourself, she began, and a woman's voice spoke pleasantly behind her. Will you present me to your tall young friend, Caroline? Min looked over her shoulder right into an ageless face, cool-eyed beneath iron-gray hair pulled up into a bun from which dangled small golden ornaments. Swallowing a squeak, Min coughed. She had thought Caroline had taken her in in one glance, but these cool eyes seemed to know things about her she herself had forgotten. The eyes that eyes smile as she adjusted her green-fringed shawl was not nearly so pleasant as her voice. Of course, Catswain said I. Caroline sounded shaken, but she smoothed her tone well before she finished introducing her visiting cousin and his wife. But I fear Kyrian is no place for them at present, she said, all self-possession once more, smiling regret that she could not keep Rand and Min longer. They have agreed to take my advice and return to Andor. Have they? Cadswain said dryly. Min's heart sank. Even if Rand had not spoken of her, it was clear from the way she looked at him that she knew him. Tiny golden birds and moons and stars swayed as she shook her head. Most boys learn not to stick their fingers into the pretty fire the first time they are burned, Thomas. Others need to be spanked to learn. Better a tender bottom than a seared hand. You know I'm no child, Rand told her sharply. Do I? She eyed him from head to toe and made it seem no very great distance. Well, it seems I shall soon see whether or not you need spanking. Those cool eyes drifted to Min, to Caroline, and with a final hitch to her shawl, Cadswain herself drifted away into the crowd. Min swallowed the lump in her throat and was pleased to see Caroline do the same, self-possession or no. Rand, the blind fool, stared after the eyes Sedai as though intending to go after her. This time it was Caroline who laid a hand on Rand's chest. I take it you know, Catswain, she said breathily. Be careful of her. Even the other sisters stand in awe of her. Her throaty tones took on a note of gravity. I have no idea what will come of today, but whatever it is, I think it is time you were gone, Cousin Tomas. Pastime. I will have horses. This is your cousin, Caroline, said a deep, rich man's voice, and Min jumped in spite of herself. Toram Riotan was even better looking close up than at a distance, with the sort of strong male beauty and air of worldly knowledge that would have attracted Min before she met Rand. While she still found them attractive, just not as much as she did Rand. His firm-lipped smile was quite appealing. Toram's gaze fell to Caroline's hand still on Rand's chest. The Lady Caroline is to be my wife, he said lazily. Did you know that? Caroline's cheeks reddened angrily. Do not say that, Toram. I have told you I will not and I will not. Toram smiled at Rand. I think women never know their minds until you show them. What do you think, Jerail? Jerail? He looked around, scowling. Min stared at him in amazement. And he was so pretty, with just the right air of... She wished she could call up viewings at will. She very much wanted to know what the future held for this man. I saw your friend scurry off that way, Toram, 
mouth twisted with distaste, Caroline gave a vague wave of her hand. You will find him near the drink, I think, or else bothering the serving girls. Later, my precious. He tried to touch her cheek and looked amused when she stepped back. Without a pause, he transferred his amusement to Rand and the sword at his side. Would you care for a little sport, cousin? I call you that because we will be cousins once Caroline is my wife. With practice swords, of course. Certainly not, Caroline laughed. He is a boy, Toram, and scarce knows one end of that thing from the other. His mother would never forgive me if I allowed... Sport, Rand said abruptly. I might as well see where this leads. I agree. Chapter 36 Blades Min did not know whether to groan or shout or sit down and cry. Caroline, staring wide-eyed at Rand, seemed in the same quandary. With a laugh, Toram began rubbing his hands together. Listen, everyone, he shouted. You are going to see some sport. Clear a space. Clear a space. He strode off, waving people away from the center of the tent. Sheep herder, Min growled. You're not wool-brained. You don't have any brains. I would not put it quite so, Caroline said in a very dry voice. But I suggest you leave now. Whatever tricks you think you might use, there are seven Aes Sedai in this tent. Four of them Red Aja lately arrived from the south on their way to Tarvalon. Should one of them so much as suspect, I very much fear that whatever might have come of today never will. Leave. I won't use any tricks. Rand unbuckled his sword belt and handed it to Min. If I've touched you and Darlin in one way, maybe I can touch Toram in another. The crowd was pushing back, opening up an area twenty paces across between two of the great center poles. Some looked to Rand, and there was a great deal of rib-nudging and sly laughter. The Aes Sedai were offered pride of place, of course. Cadsuain and her two friends on one side, four ageless women in red Aja shawls on the other. Cadsuane and her companions were eyeing Rand with open disapproval and as close to irritation as any eyes Sedai ever let show, but the Red Sisters looked more concerned with those three. At least, although they stood directly opposite, they managed to seem oblivious of the presence of any other sisters. No one could be that blind without trying. Listen to me, cousin. Caroline's low voice almost crackled with urgency. She stood very close, her neck craned to look up at him. Barely reaching his chest, she seemed ready to box his ears. If you use none of your special tricks, Caroline went on, he can hurt you badly, even with practice swords, and he will. He has never liked another touching what he thinks is his, and he suspects every pretty young man who speaks to me of being my lover. When we were children, he pushed a friend, a friend, down the stairs and broke his back, because Darrowen rode his pony without asking. Go, cousin. No one will think less. No one expects a boy to face a blade master. Jaisi, whatever your real name is, help me convince him. Min opened her mouth, and Rand laid a finger across her lips. I am who I am, he smiled, and I don't think I could run from him if I wasn't. So he's a blade master. Unbuttoning his coat, he strode out into the cleared area. Why must they be so stubborn when you least wish it? 
Caroline whispered in tones of frustration. Men could only nod in agreement. Toram had stripped to shirt and breeches and carried two practice swords, their blades bundles of thin lathes tied together. He raised an eyebrow at the sight of Rand with his coat simply hanging open. You will be confined in that, cousin, Rand shrugged. Without warning, Toram tossed one of the swords. Rand caught it out of the air by the long hilt. Those gloves will slip, cousin. You want a firm grip. Rand took the hilt in both hands and turned slightly sideways, blade down and left foot forward. Toram spread his hands as if to say he had done all he could. Well, at least he knows how to stand, he laughed, and on the last word darted forward, practice sword streaking for Rand's head with all his might behind it. With a loud clack, bundled lathes met bundled lathes. Rand had moved nothing except his sword. For a moment, Toram stared at him, and Rand looked back calmly. Then they began to dance. That was all men could call it, that gliding, flowing movement, wooden blades flickering and spinning. She had watched Rand practice the sword against the best he could find, often against two or three or four at once, but that had been nothing to this. So beautiful, and so easy to forget that had those lathes been steel, blood could have flowed except that no blade, steel, or lathes touched flesh. Back and forth they danced, circling one another, swords now probing, now slashing, Rand attacking, now defending, and every movement punctuated by those loud clacks. Caroline gripped Min's arm hard without taking her eyes from the contest. He is also a blade master, she breathed. He must be. Look at him. Min was looking, and hugging Rand's sword belt and scabbarded blade as if they were him, back and forth in beauty, and whatever Rand thought, Toram clearly wished his blade was steel. Cold rage burned on his face, and he pressed harder, harder. Still no blade touched anything but another, yet now Rand backed away constantly, sword darting to defend, and Toram moved forward, attacking, eyes glittering with icy fury. Outside, someone screamed, a wail of utter horror, and suddenly the huge tent snapped up into the air, vanishing into a thick grayness that hid the sky. Fog billowed on every side, filled with distant shrieks and bellows. Thin tendrils wafted into the clear, inverted bowl left by the tent. Everyone stared in amazement. Almost everyone. Toram's lathe blade smashed into Rand's side with a bone-crack sound, doubling him over. You are dead, cousin, Toram sneered, lifting his sword high to strike again, and froze, staring, as part of the heavy gray mist overhead solidified. A tentacle of fog it might have been, a thick three-toed arm reaching down, closed around the stout red sister, snatching her into the air before anyone had a chance to move. Katsuane was the first to overcome shock. Her arms rose, shaking back her shawl. Her hands made a twist, and a ball of fire seemed to shoot upward from each palm, streaking into the mist. Above, something suddenly burst into flame, one violent gout that vanished immediately, and the red sister fell back into sight, dropping with a thud face down on the carpets near where Rand knelt on one knee, clutching his side. At least she would have been face down, 
had not her head been twisted around so her dead eyes stared up into the fog. Whatever scraps of composure remained in the tent fled with that. The shadow had been given flesh. Screaming people fled in every direction, knocking over tables, nobles clawing past servants and servants past nobles. Buffeted, men fought her way to Rand with fists and elbows and his sword as a club. Are you all right? she asked, pulling him to his feet. She was surprised to see Caroline on the other side helping him too. For that matter, Caroline looked surprised. He took his hand from beneath his coat, fingers thankfully free of blood. That half-healed scar so tender had not broken open. I think we best move, he said, taking his sword belt. We have to get out of this. The inverted bowl of clear air was noticeably smaller. Almost everyone else had fled. Out in the fog, screams rose, most cutting off abruptly but always replaced by new. I agree, Tomas, Darlin said. Sword in hand, he planted himself with his back to Caroline between her and the fog. The question is in which direction, and also how far do we have to go? This is his work, Toram spat. Al Thor's. Hurling down his practice sword, he stalked to his discarded coat and calmly donned it. Whatever else he was, he was no coward. Jerail, he shouted at the fog as he fastened his sword belt. Jerail, the light burn you man, where are you? Jerail. Mordeth, Fane, did not answer, and he went on shouting. The only others still there were Cadswain and her two companions, faces calm but hands running nervously over their shawls. Cadswain herself might have been setting out for a stroll. I should think north, she said. The slope lies closer that way and climbing may take us above this. Stop that caterwauling, Toram. Either your man's dead or he can't hear. Toram glared at her, but he did stop shouting. Cadswain did not appear to notice or care, so long as he was silent. North, then. We three will take care of anything your steel can't handle. She looked straight at Rand when she said that, and he gave a whisker of a nod before buckling his sword belt and drawing his blade. Trying not to goggle, Min exchanged glances with Caroline. The other woman's eyes looked as large as teacups. The eyes said I knew who he was, and she was going to keep anyone else from knowing. I wish we had not left our warders back in the city, the slim yellow sister said. Tiny silver bells in her dark hair chimed as she tossed her head. She had almost as commanding an air as Cadswain, enough that you did not realize how pretty she was at first, except that that toss of her head seemed, well, a touch petulant. I wish I had Roshan here. A circle, Cadswain? the gray asked. Head turning this way and that to peer at the fog, she looked like a plump, pale-haired sparrow with her sharp nose and inquisitive eyes. Not a frightened sparrow, but one definitely ready to take wing. Should we link? No, Neander, Cadswain sighed. If you see something, you must be able to strike at it without waiting to point it out for me. Samitsu, stop worrying about Roshan. We have three fine swords here, two of them Heronmark, I see. They will do. Toram showed his teeth on seeing the heron engraved on the blade Rand had unsheathed. If it was a smile, it held no mirth. His own bared blade bore a heron, too. Darlin's did not, 
but he gave Rand and his sword a weighing look, then a respectful nod that was considerably deeper than he had offered plain Thomas Tracand of a minor branch of the house. The gray-haired Green had taken charge, clearly, and she kept it despite attempted protests from Darlin, who, like many tyrants, seemed not to relish Aes Sedai a great deal, and Toram, who just seemed to dislike anyone giving orders but himself. For that matter, so did Caroline, but Cadsuane ignored her frowns as completely as she did the men's voiced complaints. Unlike them, Caroline appeared to realize complaints would do no good. Wonder of wonders, Rand meekly let himself be placed to Cadsuane's right as she quickly arranged everyone. Well, not exactly meekly. He stared down his nose at her in a way that would have made men slap him if he did it to her. Cadsuane just shook her head and muttered something that reddened his face, but at least he kept his mouth shut. Right then, men almost thought he would announce who he was, and maybe expect the fog to vanish in fear of the dragon reborn. He smiled at her as though fog in this weather was nothing, even a fog that snatched tents and people. They moved into the thick mist in a formation like a six-pointed star, Cadsuane herself in the lead, and Aes Sedai at each of two other points, a man with a sword at three. Toram, of course, protested loudly at bringing up the rear, until Cadsuane mentioned the honor of the rear guard or some such. That quieted him down. Min had no objection whatsoever to her own position with Caroline in the center of the star. She carried a knife in either hand and wondered whether they would be any use. It was something of a relief to see the dagger in Caroline's fist tremble. At least her own hands were steady. Then again, she thought she might be too frightened to shake. The fog was cold as winter. Grayness closed around them in swirls, so heavy it was difficult to see the others clearly. Hearing was all too easy, though. Shrieks drifted through the murk, men and women crying out, horses screaming. The fog seemed to deaden sound, make it hollow, so that thankfully those awful sounds seemed distant. The mist ahead began to thicken, but fireballs immediately shot from Cadswain's hands, sizzling through the icy gray, and the thickening erupted in one roaring flare of flame. Roars behind, light flashing against the fog like lightning against clouds, spoke of the other two sisters at work. Min had no desire to look back. What she could see was more than enough. Past trampled tents half obscured by gray haze they moved, past bodies and sometimes parts of bodies not nearly obscured enough. A leg, an arm, a man who was not there from the waist down, once a woman's head that seemed to grin from where it sat on the corner of an overturned wagon. The land began to slope upward, steeper. Men saw her first living soul besides them and wished she had not. A man wearing one of the red coats staggered toward them, waving his left arm feebly. The other was gone, and wet white bone showed where half his face had been. Something that might have been words bubbled through his teeth, and he collapsed. Samitsu knelt briefly beside him, putting her fingers against the bloody ruin of his forehead. Rising, she shook her head, and they moved on. Up slope and up, until Min began wondering whether they were climbing a mountain instead of a hill. Right in front of Darlin, the fog suddenly began to take on form, a man-high shape, but all tentacles and gaping mouths full of sharp teeth. 
The High Lord might have been no blade master, but he was not slow either. His blade sliced through the middle of the still coalescing shape, looped and slashed it top to bottom. Four clouds of fog, thicker than the surrounding mist, settled to the ground. Well, he said, at least we know steel can cut these creatures. The thicker chunks of fog oozed together, began to rise once more. Catswain stretched out a hand, droplets of fire falling from her fingertips. One bright flash of flame seared the solidifying fog from existence. But no more than cut, so it seems, she murmured. Ahead to their right, a woman suddenly appeared in the swirling gray, silk skirts held high as she half ran, half fell down the slope toward them. Thank the light, she screamed. Thank the light, I thought I was alone. Right behind her, the fog drew together, a nightmare all teeth and claws looming above her. Had it been a man, Min was sure Rand would have waited. His hand rose before Cadswain could move, and a bar of something, liquid white fire brighter than the sun, shot out over the running woman's head. The creature simply vanished. For a moment there was clear air where it had been, and along the line that the bar had burned, until the fog began closing in. A moment while the woman froze where she stood. Then, shrieking at the top of her lungs, she turned and ran from them, still down slope, fleeing what she feared more than nightmares in these mists. You! Toram roared, so loudly that Min spun to face him with her knives raised. He stood pointing his sword at Rand. You are him. I was right. This is your work. You will not trap me, Althor. Suddenly he broke away at an angle, scrambling wildly up the slope. You will not trap me. Come back, Darlin shouted after him. We must stick together. We must... He trailed off, staring at Rand. You are him. The light burn me, you are. He half moved as if to place himself between Rand and Caroline, but at least he did not run. Calmly, Cadswain picked her way across the slope to Rand, and slapped his face so hard his head jerked. Min's breath caught in shock. You will not do that again, Cadswain said. There was no heat in her voice, just iron. Do you hear me? Not balefire. Not ever. Surprisingly, Rand only rubbed his cheek. You were wrong, Cadswain. He's real. I'm certain of it. I know he is. Even more surprisingly, he sounded as if he very much wanted her to believe. Min's heart went out to him. He had mentioned hearing voices. He must mean that. She raised her right hand toward him, forgetting for the moment that it held a knife, and opened her mouth to say something comforting, though she was not entirely sure she would ever be able to use that particular word innocuously again. She opened her mouth and Padan Fane seemed to leap out of the mists behind Rand, steel gleaming in his fist. Behind you, Min screamed, pointing with the knife in her outstretched right hand as she threw the one in her left. Everything seemed to happen at once, half seen in wintry fog. Rand began to turn, twisting aside, and Fane also twisted to lunge for him. For that twist, her knife missed, but Fane's dagger scored along Rand's left side. It hardly seemed to more than slice his coat, yet he screamed. 
He screamed, a sound to make Min's heart clench, and clutching his side, he fell against Kedzawain, catching at her to hold himself up, pulling both of them down. Move out of my way, one of the other sisters shouted. Samitsu, Min thought, and suddenly Min's feet jerked out from under her. She landed heavily, grunting as she hit the slope together with Caroline, who snapped a breathless, blood and fire, everything at once. Move, Samitsu shouted again as Darlin lunged for Fane with his sword. The bony man moved with shocking speed, throwing himself down and rolling beyond Darlin's reach. Strangely, he cackled with laughter as he scampered to his feet and ran off, swallowed in the murk almost immediately. Min pushed herself up, shaking. Caroline was much more vigorous. I will tell you now, Aes Sedai, she said in a cold voice, brushing at her skirts violently. I will not be treated so. I am Caroline Domodred, high seat of house... Min stopped listening. Cadsuane was sitting on the slope above, holding Rand's head in her lap. It had only been a cut. Fane's dagger could not have more than touched... With a cry, Min threw herself forward. Eyes Sedai or no, she pushed the woman away from Rand and cradled his head in her arms. His eyes were closed, his breathing ragged, his face felt hot. Help him! she screamed at Cadzuane, like an echo of the distant screams in the mist. Help him! A part of her said that did not make much sense after pushing her away, but his face seemed to burn her hands, to burn sense. Samitsu, quickly, Katswain said, standing and rearranging her shawl. He's beyond my talent for healing. She laid a hand on the top of Min's head. Girl, I will hardly let the boy die when I haven't taught him manners yet. Stop crying now. It was very strange. Min was fairly sure the woman had done nothing to her with the power, yet she believed. Teach him manners? A fine tussle that would be. Unfolding her arms from around his head, not without reluctance, Min backed away on her knees. Very strange. She had not even realized that she was crying, yet Cadzuane's reassurance was enough to stop the flow of tears. Sniffing, she scrubbed at her cheeks with the heel of her hand as Samitsu knelt beside him, placing fingertips on his forehead. Min wondered why she did not take his head in both hands the way Moiraine did. Abruptly, Rand convulsed, gasping and thrashing so hard that a flailing arm knocked the yellow over on her back. As soon as her fingers left him, he subsided. Min crawled nearer. He breathed more easily, but his eyes were still closed. She touched his cheek. Cooler than it had been, but still too warm and pale. Something is amiss, Samitsu said peevishly as she sat up. Pulling Rand's coat aside, she gripped the slice in his blood-stained shirt and ripped a wide gap in the linen. The cut from Fane's dagger, no longer than her hand and not deep, ran right across the old round scar. Even in the dim light, Min could see that the edges of the gash looked swollen and angry, as if the wound had gone untended for days. It was no longer bleeding, but it should have been gone. That was what healing did. Wounds knitted themselves up right before your eyes. This, Samitsu said in a lecturing tone, lightly touching the scar, seems like a cyst, but full of evil instead of pus. And this, she drew the finger down the gash, seems full of a different evil. 
Suddenly she frowned at the green standing over her, and her voice became sullen and defensive. If I had the words, Cadzuane, I would use them. I have never seen the like. Never. But I will tell you this. I think if I had been one moment slower, perhaps if you had not tried first, he would be dead now. As it is... With a sigh, the yellow sister seemed to deflate, her face sagging. As it is, I believe he will die. Men shook her head, trying to say no, but she could not seem to make her tongue move. She heard Caroline murmuring a prayer. The woman stood gripping one of Darlin's coat sleeves with both hands. Darlin himself frowned down at Rand as though trying to make sense of what he saw. Katsuane bent to pat Samitsu's shoulder. You are the best living, perhaps the best ever, she said quietly. No one has the healing to compare with you. With a nod, Samitsu stood, and before she was on her feet, she was all eyes sedai serenity once more. Cadsawain, scowling down at Rand with her hands on her hips, was not. Faw! I will not allow you to die on me, boy, she growled, sounding as though it were his fault. This time, instead of touching the top of Min's head, she wrapped it with a knuckle. Get to your feet, girl. You're no milksop. Any fool can see that, so stop pretending. Darlin', you will carry him. Bandages must wait. This fog is not leaving us, so we had better leave it. Darlin' hesitated. Maybe it was Cadswain's peremptory frown, and maybe the hand Caroline half raised to his face— but abruptly he sheathed his sword, muttering under his breath, and hoisted Rand across his shoulders with arms and legs dangling. Men took up the heronmark blade and carefully slid it into the scabbard hanging from Rand's waist. He will need it, she told Darlin, and after a moment he nodded. A lucky thing for him he did. She had bundled all her confidence into the green sister, and she was not about to let anyone think differently. Now be careful, darling, Caroline said in that throaty voice once Cadsawain made their marching order clear. Be sure to stay behind me, and I will protect you. Darlin laughed till he wheezed, and was still chuckling when they began climbing through the cold fog and the distant shrieks once more, with him carrying Rand in the center and the women in a circle around him. Min knew she was only another pair of eyes, just like Caroline on the other side of Cadsawain, and she knew the knife she carried unsheathed was no use against the mist shapes, but Padan Fain might still be alive out there. She would not miss again. Caroline carried her dagger, too, and by the looks she cast over her shoulder at Darlin staggering uphill under Rand's weight, maybe she also intended to protect the dragon reborn. And then again, maybe it was not him. A woman could forgive any amount of nose for that laugh, Shapes still formed in the mist and died by fire, and once a huge something tore a shrieking horse in two off to their right before any eyes Sedai could slay it. Min was quite noisily sick after that, and not a bit ashamed. People were dying, but at least the people had come here by their own choice. The meanest soldier could have run away yesterday had he chosen, but not that horse. Shapes formed and died and people died, screaming always in the distance, it seemed, though they still stumbled past torn carrion that had been human an hour gone. Men began to wonder whether they would ever see daylight again. With shocking suddenness and no warning, she stumbled into it, one moment surrounded by gray, the next with the sun burning golden high overhead in a blue sky, 
all so bright she had to shade her eyes. And there, perhaps five miles across all but treeless hills, Kyrian rose solid and square on its own prominences. Somehow it did not look quite real anymore. Staring back at the edge of the fog, she shivered. It was an edge, a billowing wall, stretching through the trees on this hilltop, and far too straight, with no eddies or thinning. Just clear air here and there, thick gray. A little more of a tree right in front of her became visible, and she realized the mist was creeping back, perhaps being burned off by the sun, but far too slowly to make the retreat natural. The others stared at it just as hard as she, even the eyes Sedai. Twenty paces off to their left, a man suddenly scrambled into the clear air on all fours. The front of his head was shaved, and by the battered black breastplate he wore, he was a common soldier. Staring about wildly, he did not appear to see them, and went scrambling on down the hillside, still on hands and knees. Farther to the right, two men and a woman appeared, all running. She had stripes of color across the front of her dress, but how many was hard to say since she had gathered her skirts as high as she could to run faster, and she matched the men stride for stride. None of them looked to either side, only launched themselves down the hill, falling, tumbling, and coming back to their feet running again. Caroline studied the slim blade of her dagger for a moment, then thrust it hard into its sheath. So vanishes my army, she sighed. Darlin, with Rand still unconscious across his shoulders, looked at her. There is an army in tear, if you call. She glanced at Rand, hanging like a sack. Perhaps, she said. Darlin turned his head toward Rand's face with a troubled frown. Cadswain was all practicality. The road lies that way, she said, pointing west. It will be faster than walking cross-country, an easy stroll. Easy was not what men would have called it. The air seemed twice as hot after the fog's cold. Sweat rolled out of her and seemed to drain her strength. Her legs wobbled. She tripped over exposed roots and fell flat on her face. She tripped over rocks and fell. She tripped over her own heeled boots and fell. Once her feet just went out from under and she slid a good forty paces down the hillside on the seat of her breeches, arms flailing until she managed to snag a sapling. Caroline went sprawling as many times and maybe more. Dresses were not made for this sort of travel, and before long, after a tumble head over heels ended with her skirts around her ears, she was asking Min the name of the seamstress who made her coat and breeches. Darlin did not fall. Oh, he stumbled and tripped and skidded every bit as much as they, but whenever he started to fall, something seemed to catch him, to steady him on his feet. In the beginning, he glared at the eyes Sedai, all proud, tyrant high lord who would carry Rand out without any help. Cadzawain and the others affected not to see. They never fell. They simply walked along, chatting quietly among themselves, and caught Darlin before he could. By the time they reached the road, he looked both grateful and hunted. Standing in the middle of the broad road of hard-packed earth in sight of the river, Cadzawain flung up a hand to stop the first conveyance that appeared— a rickety wagon drawn by two moth-eaten mules and driven by a skinny farmer in a patched coat who hauled on his reins with alacrity. What did the toothless fellow think he had run into? Three ageless eyes sedai complete with shawls who might have stepped down from a coach a moment before. 
a sweat-soaked Kyrian woman of high rank by the stripes on her dress, or maybe a beggar who had clothed herself from a noblewoman's rag closet by the state of that dress. An obvious Tyran nobleman, with sweat dripping from his nose and pointed beard and carrying another man across his shoulders like a sack of grain, and herself. Both knees out of her breeches and another tear in the seat that her coat covered, thank the light, though one sleeve hung by a few threads. More stains and dust than she wanted to think about. Not waiting for anyone else, she drew a knife from her sleeve, popping most of those few threads, and gave it a flourish the way Tom Marilyn had taught her, hilt snaking through her fingers so the blade flashed in the sun. We require a ride to the Sun Palace, she announced, and Rand himself could not have done better. There were times when being peremptory saved argument. Child, Cadswain said chidingly, I'm sure Kiruna and her friends would do everything they could, but there isn't a yellow among them. Samitsu and Corel really are two of the best ever. Lady Arillan has very kindly lent us her palace in the city, so we will take him. No. Min had no idea where she found the courage to say that word to this woman, except it was Rand they were talking about. If he wakes, she stopped to swallow, he would wake. If he wakes in a strange place, surrounded by strange eyes, said I again, I can't imagine what he might do. You don't want to imagine it. For a long moment she met that cool gaze, and then the eyes Sedai nodded. The Sun Palace, Cadswain told the farmer, and as fast as you make these flea bags move. Of course it was not quite so simple, even for eyes Sedai. Under Toll had a wagon load of scraggly turnips he intended to sell in the city, and no intention of going anywhere near the Sun Palace where he told them the dragon reborn ate people who were cooked on spits by Aiel women ten feet tall. Not for any number of Aes Sedai would he venture within a mile of the palace. On the other hand, Cadswain tossed him a purse that made his eyes pop when he looked inside, then told him she'd just bought his turnips and hired him and his wagon. If he did not like the notion, he could give the purse back. That, with her fists on her hips and a look on her face that said he might just eat his wagon on the spot if he tried giving the purse back. Ander Toll was a reasonable man, it turned out. Samitsu and Nianda unloaded the wagon, turnips simply flying into the air to land in a tidy pile by the roadside. By their icy expressions, this was in no way a use to which they had ever expected to put the one power. By Darlin's expression, standing there with Rand still on his shoulders, he was relieved they had not called on him to do it. Ander Toll sat on the wagon seat with his jaw trying to reach his knees, fingering the purse as though wondering whether it was enough after all. Once they were settled in the wagon bed with the straw that had been beneath the turnips all gathered to make a bed for Rand, Cadswain faced men across him. Master Toll was flapping his reins and finding a surprising turn of speed in those mules. The wagon lurched and jounced horribly, the wheels not only shaking, but apparently out of round. Wishing she had kept just a little of the straw for herself, Min was amused to see Samitsu and Nianda growing tighter in the face as they were bounced up and down. Caroline smiled at them quite openly, the high seat of House Damodred not bothering to hide her pleasure that the eyes Sedai were for once riding rough. Though in truth, slight as she was, she bounced higher and came down with harder thumps than they. 
Darlin, holding on to the side of the wagon, appeared unaffected, however hard he was shaken. He kept frowning and looking from Caroline to Rand. Cadswain was another who apparently did not care whether her teeth rattled. I expect to be there before nightfall, Master Toll, she called, producing more flapping if no more speed. Now tell me, she said, turning to Min, exactly what happened the last time this boy woke surrounded by strange eyes, Sedai? Her eyes caught Min's and held them. He wanted it kept secret if it could be for as long as it could be. But he was dying, and the only chance he had that Min saw rested in these three women. Maybe knowing could not help. Maybe knowing could at least make them understand something of him. They put him in a box, she began. She was not sure how she went on, except that she had to, or how she kept from bursting into tears, except that she was not going to break down again when Rand needed her. But somehow she continued through the confinement and the beatings without a tremor in her voice, right to Kiruna and the rest kneeling to swear fealty. Darlin and Caroline looked stunned. Samitsu and Nianda looked horrified, though not for the reason she would have supposed it turned out. He stilled three sisters? Samitsu said shrilly. Suddenly she slapped a hand over her mouth and twisted around to lean over the side of the swaying wagon and retch loudly. Nianda joined her almost before she began, the pair of them hanging there emptying their bellies. And Cadzwain. Cadzwain touched Rand's pale face, brushed strands of hair from his forehead. Do not be afraid, boy, she said softly. They made my task harder and yours, but I will not hurt you more than I must. Min turned to ice inside. Guards at the city gates shouted at the racing wagon, but Cadzwain told Master Toll not to stop, and he flailed at his mules all the harder. People in the streets leaped out of the way to avoid being run down, and the wagon's progress left behind shouts and curses, overturned sedan chairs and coaches run into street vendors' stalls. Through the streets and up the broad ramp to the Sun Palace, where guards in Lord Dobrain's colors spilled out as though preparing to fight off hordes. While Master Toll was squealing at the top of his lungs that Aes Sedai made him do it, the soldiers saw Min. Then they saw Rand. Min had thought she was in a whirlwind before, but she had been wrong. Two dozen men tried to reach into the wagon at once to lift Rand out, and those who managed to lay hands on him handled him as gently as a babe, four to either side with their arms beneath. Cadswain must have repeated a thousand times that he was not dead as they hurried into the palace and along corridors that seemed longer than men remembered, with more Kyrianan soldiers crowding along behind. Nobles began appearing from every doorway and crossing hall, it seemed, faces bloodless, staring as Rand passed. She lost track of Caroline and Darlin, realized she could not remember seeing them since the wagon, and wishing them well forgot them. Rand was the only thing she cared about, the only thing in the world. Nandera was with the far Daris Mai, guarding the doors to Rand's rooms with their gilded rising suns. When the graying maiden saw Rand, stone-faced Aiel composure shattered. What has happened to him? she wailed, eyes going wide. What has happened? Some of the other maidens began to moan, a low, hair-raising sound like a dirge. Be quiet, Cadswain roared, slapping her hands together in a thundercrack. You, girl, 
He needs his bed. Hop. Nandera hopped. Rand was stripped and in his bed in a twinkling, with Samitsu and Nianda both hovering over him, the Kyrianan chased out and Nandera at the door repeating Kadzuane's instructions that he was not to be disturbed by anyone. All so fast, Min felt dizzy. She hoped one day to see the confrontation between Kadzuane and the wise one Cerulea. It had to come, and it would be memorable. Yet if Katsuane thought her instructions were really going to keep everyone out, she was mistaken. Before she had more than moved a chair, floating it on the power to sit beside Rand's bed, Kiruna and Bera strode in like the two faces of pride, ruler of a court and ruler of her farmhouse. What is this I hear about? Kiruna began furiously. She saw Katsuane. Bera saw Katsuane. To Min's amazement, they stopped there with their mouths hanging open. He is in good hands, Kadzuane said. Unless one of you has suddenly found more talent for healing than I recall. Yes, Kadzuane, they said meekly. No, Kadzuane. Min closed her own mouth. Samitsu took an ivory-inlaid chair against the wall, spreading her dark yellow skirts, and sat with her hands folded, watching Rand's chest rise and fall beneath the sheet. Neander went to Rand's bookshelf and selected a book before she sat near the windows. Reading! Kiruna and Bera started to sit, then actually looked to Kadzwain and waited for her impatient nod before they sat down. Why aren't you doing something? Min shouted. That is what I might ask, Amis said, walking into the room. The youthful, white-haired wise one stared at Rand for a moment, then shifted her deep brown shawl and turned to Kiruna and Bera. You may go, she said. And Kiruna, Sorilia wishes to see you again. Kiruna's dark face paled, but the pair of them rose and curtsied, murmuring, Yes, Amis, even more meekly than for Kadzuane, before leaving with embarrassed glances at the green sister. Interesting. Katzwain said when they were gone. Her dark eyes locked with Amis's blue, and Katzwain at least seemed to like what she saw. At any rate, she smiled. I should like to meet this Sorilia. She is a strong woman. She seemed to emphasize the word strong. The strongest I have ever known, Amis said simply, calmly. You would never have thought Rand lay senseless in front of her. I do not know your healing, I said I. I trust that you have done what can be done. Her tone was flat. Min doubted how much Amis did trust. What can be done has been, Katzwain sighed. All we can do now is wait. While he dies, a man's harsh voice said, and Min jumped. Dashiva strode into the room, his plain face contorted in a scowl. Flynn! he snapped. Neander's book thudded to the floor from apparently nerveless fingers. She stared at the three men in black coats as she would have at the dark one himself. Pale-faced, Samitsu muttered something that sounded like a prayer. At Dashiva's command, the grizzled Asha man limped to the bed on the opposite side from Kedswain and began running his hands along the length of Rand's still body a foot above the sheet. Young Narishma stood frowning by the door, fingering the hilt of his sword, those big dark eyes trying to watch all three Aes Sedai at once. The Aes Sedai and Amis. 
He did not look afraid, just a man confidently waiting for those women to show themselves his enemies. Unlike the Aes Sedai, Amis ignored the Ashaman, except for Flynn. Her eyes followed him, smooth face, utterly expressionless, but her thumb ran along the haft of her belt knife in a very expressive manner. What are you doing? Samitsu demanded, leaping up from her chair. Whatever her unease about Ashaman, concern for her unconscious patient had overcome it. You, Flynn, or whoever you are. She started toward the bed, and Narishma flowed to block her. Frowning, she tried to go around, and he put a hand on her arm. Another boy with no manners, Kadzwain murmured. Of the three sisters, only she displayed no alarm whatsoever at the Ashaman. Instead, she studied them over steepled fingers. Narishma flushed at her comment and removed his hand, but when Samitsu tried to go around him again, he once more stepped in front of her. She settled for glaring past his shoulder. You, Flynn, what are you doing? I won't have you killing him with your ignorance. Do you hear me? Min practically danced from foot to foot. She did not think an Ashaman would kill Rand, not on purpose, but he trusted them, but Light even Amis did not seem sure, frowning from Flynn to Rand. Flynn stripped the sheet down to Rand's waist, exposing the wound. The gash looked neither better nor worse than she remembered, a gaping, angry, bloodless wound slicing across the round scar. He appeared to be sleeping. He can't do any worse than Rand already is, Min said. Nobody paid her any mind. Dashiva made a guttural sound, and Flynn looked at him. You see something, Ashaman? I have no talent for healing, Dashiva said, twisting his mouth wryly. You're the one who took my suggestion and learned. What suggestion? Samitsu demanded. I insist that you be quiet, Samitsu, Kadzuane said. She seemed to be the only one in the room who was calm aside from Amis, and from the way the wise one kept stroking her knife hilt, Min was not certain about her. I think the last thing he wants to do is harm the boy. But Ketsuane, Neander began urgently. That man is... I said, be quiet, the gray-haired Aes Sedai told her firmly. I assure you, Dashiva said, managing to sound oily and harsh at the same time. Flynn knows what he is about. Already he can do things you Aes Sedai never dreamed of. Samitsu sniffed. Loudly. Katsuane merely nodded and sat back in her chair. Flynn traced his finger along the puffy gash in Rand's side and across the old scar. That did seem more tender. These are alike, but different, as if there's two kinds of infection at work. Only it isn't infection, it's darkness. I can't think of a better word. He shrugged, eyeing Samitsu's yellow-fringed shawl as she frowned at him, but it was a considering look she gave him now. Get on with it, Flynn, Dashiva muttered. If he dies, nose wrinkled as though it a bad smell, he seemed unable to look away from Rand. His lips moved as he talked to himself, and once he made a sound, half sob, half bitter laugh, without his face changing one line. Drawing a deep breath, Flynn looked around the room at the eyes Sedai, at Amis. When he caught sight of Min, he gave a start, and his leathery face reddened. Hastily, he rearranged the sheet to cover Rand to his neck, 
leaving only the old wound and the new exposed. I hope nobody minds if I talk, he said, beginning to move calloused hands above Rand's side. Talking seems to help a mite. He squinted, focusing on the injuries, and his fingers writhed slowly. Very much as though he was weaving threads, men realized. His tone was almost absent, only part of his mind on the words. It was healing made me go to the Black Tower, you might say. I was a soldier till I took a lance in my thigh. Couldn't grip a saddle proper after that or even walk far. That was the fifteenth wound I took in near forty years in the Queen's Guards. Fifteen that counted, anyway. It don't if you can walk or ride after. I've seen a lot of friends die in them forty years. So I went, and the Mahale taught me healing, and other things. A rough sort of healing. I was healed by an Aes Sedai once, oh, nigh on thirty years back now, and this hurts compared to that. Works as well, though. Then one day Dashiva here, pardon, Ashaman Dashiva says he wonders why it's all the same, no matter if a man's got a broke leg or a cold, and we got to talking, and, well, he's got no feel for it himself, but me seems I got the knack, you might say, the talent. So I started thinking, what if I... There. Best I can do. Dashiva grunted as Flynn abruptly sat back on his heels and wiped the back of his hand across his forehead. Sweat beaded on his face, the first time men had seen an Ashaman perspire. The slash in Rand's side was not gone, yet it seemed a little smaller, less red and angry. He still slept, but his face seemed less pale. Samitsu darted past Narishma so quickly he had no chance to intervene. What did you do? she demanded, laying fingers on Rand's forehead. Whatever she found with the power, her eyebrows climbed halfway to her hair, and her tone leaped from imperious to incredulous. What did you do? Flynn shrugged his shoulders regretfully. Not much. I couldn't really touch what's wrong. I sort of sealed them away from him for a time, anyhow. It won't last. They're fighting each other now. Maybe they'll kill off each other while he heals himself the rest of the way. Sighing, he shook his head. On the other hand, I can't say that they won't kill him, but I think he has a better chance than he did. Dashiva nodded self-importantly. Yes, he has a chance now. You would have thought he had done the healing himself. To Flynn's evident surprise, Samitsu rounded the bed to help him rise. You will tell me what you did, she said, regal tone at strong odds with the way her quick fingers straightened the old man's collar and smoothed his lapels. If only there was some way you could show me. But you will describe it. You must. I will give you all the gold I possess. Bear your child, whatever you wish. But you will tell me all that you can. Apparently not sure herself whether she was commanding or begging, she led a very bemused Flynn over by the windows. He opened his mouth more than once, but she was too busy trying to make him talk to see it. Not caring what anyone thought, Min climbed onto the bed and lay so she could tuck Rand's head under her chin and wrap her arms around him. A chance. Furtively, she studied the three people gathered around the bed, Kadzwain in her chair, Amis standing opposite, Dashiva leaning against one of the square bedposts at the foot, 
all with unreadable auras and images dancing around them, all with their eyes intent on Rand. No doubt Amis saw some disaster for the Aeel if Rand died, and Dashiva, the only one with any expression, a dark yet worried scowl, disaster for the Ashaman. And Kadzuane, Kadzuane, who was not only known to Bera and Kiruna, but made them jump like girls for all their oaths to Rand. Kadzuane, who would not hurt Rand any more than she had to. Kadzuane's gaze met Min's for a moment, and Min shivered. Somehow, she would protect him while he could not protect himself, from Amis and Dashiva and Kadzuane. Somehow. Unconsciously, she began to hum a lullaby, rocking Rand gently. Somehow. Chapter 37 A Note from the Palace The day after the Festival of Birds dawned to strong winds off the Sea of Storms that actually cut the heat in Ebudar. A sky without a cloud, and the red-gold dome of the sun on the horizon, gave promises for once the wind died, though. Matt hurried down through the Tarasan Palace with his green coat undone and his shirt only half-laced in anticipation. He did not quite jump at every sound, but he did give a start, considerably more wide-eyed than he liked whenever one of the serving women passed, swishing her petticoats and smiling at him. Every last one of them smiled, in a particularly knowing way. It was all he could do not to run. At the last, he slowed, easing onto the shaded walk bordering the stable yard almost on tiptoe. Between the fluted columns of the walk, yellowish reedy plants in big red pottery bowls and vines with wide red-striped leaves dangling from metal baskets on chains formed a thin screen. Unconsciously, he tugged his hat lower to obscure his face. His hands ran along his spear, an Ashandarai, Brigitte called it, unthinkingly fingering the haft as if he might need to defend himself. The dice tumbled inside his head fiercely, yet that had nothing to do with his uneasiness. The source of that was Tylan. Six closed coaches with the green anchor and sword of Hasmitsubar lacquered in the doors already waited in line before the tall arched outer gates with teams hitched and liveried drivers mounted. He could see Nalisian yawning in a yellow-striped coat on the far side of them, and Vannon sat slumped atop an upended barrel not far from the stable doors, apparently asleep. Most of the other red arms were squatting patiently on the stable-yard flagstones. A few tossed dice in the shadow of the huge white stables. Elaine stood between Matt and the coaches, just the other side of the screen of plants. Rihanna Corley was with her, and close by, seven more of the women who were at that peculiar meeting he had burst into the evening before. Rihanna was the only one not wearing the red belt of a wise woman. He had half expected them not to appear this morning. They had the features of women used to ordering their own lives and others, and most had at least a bit of gray in their hair. Yet they watched fresh-faced Elaine with an air of expectation, seemingly on their toes as though ready to jump at her command. The whole lot caught less than half his attention, though. None of them was the woman who had him ready to jump out of his skin. Tylan made him feel, well, helpless was the only word that seemed to fit, however ridiculous it seemed. We do not need them, Mistress Corley, Elaine said. The daughter heir sounded like a woman patting a child on the head. I've told them to remain here until we return. 
we will attract less attention, especially across the river, without anyone recognizably eyes to die. Her notion of what to wear visiting the roughest part of the city without attracting attention was a wide green hat with green dyed plumes, a light dust cloak of green linen worked in golden scrolls hanging down her back, and a high-necked green silk riding dress with gold embroidery climbing the divided skirts and thickly emphasizing the oval that exposed half her bosom. She even wore one of those necklaces for a marriage knife. That broad band of woven gold would make every thief's hand in the Rahad itch. She carried no weapon beyond a small belt knife. But as to that, what weapon did a woman who could channel need? Of course, every one of those red belts had a curved dagger tucked beneath it. So did Rihanna's belt of plain-worked leather. Rihanna removed a large blue straw hat, frowned at it, then put it back on and retied the ribbons. Elaine's tone did not seem to be what was bothering her. She put on a diffident smile with the hat and a timid tone. But why does Meralilla Sedai think we are lying, Elaine Sedai? They all do, one of the red belts said breathlessly. All of them wore Ebudari dresses in sober colors with narrow plunging necklines and skirts sewn up on one side to expose layered petticoats, but only this one, bone-lean and with more white than black in her long hair, had the olive skin and dark eyes of an Ebudari. Saritha Sedai called me liar to my face, about our numbers, about— She cut off short at a frown and a be quiet to Marla from Rihanna. Mistress Cory might be ready to curtsy and simper for a child if the child was Aes Sedai, but she kept a tight rein on her companions. Matt frowned up at the windows overlooking the stable yard, those he could see from where he stood. Elaborate white wrought iron screens covered some— white wooden screens of intricately carved piercework others. Not likely Tylan was up there. Not likely she would appear in the stable yard. He had been very careful not to wake her getting dressed. Besides, she would not try anything here. At least, he did not think she would. Then again, was anything past the woman, who had had a half a dozen serving women, seize him in the halls last night and drag him into her apartments? The bloody woman treated him like a toy— he was not going to put up with it any more. He was not. Light, who was he trying to fool? If they did not grab this bull of the winds and get out of Ebudar, Tylen would be pinching his bottom and calling him her little pigeon again tonight. It's your ages, Rihanna. Elaine did not exactly sound hesitant. She never did that. But her tone became very careful. It is considered rude among Aes Sedai to speak of age, but... Rihanna, apparently no Aes Sedai since the breaking has lived as long as any of you in the knitting circle claim. That was the odd name these kin gave their ruling council. In your own case, not by over a hundred years. The red belts gasped, going wide-eyed. A slender brown-eyed woman with pale honey hair gave a nervous giggle and instantly covered her mouth at Rihanna's whip-quick, Famella! That can't be possible, Rihanna said faintly to Elaine. Surely I said I must... Good morning, Matt said, stepping past the screen of plants. The whole discussion was idiotic. Everyone knew I said I lived longer than anybody else. Instead of wasting time, they should be on their way to the Rahad. Where are Tom and Julian? And Nynaeve? She had to have come back last night, or Elaine would have been in a swivet. 
Blood and ashes. I don't see Brigida either. We need to be on our way, Elaine, not standing around. Is Avienda coming? She frowned at him slightly with just a flicker of her eyes toward Rihanna, and he knew she was deciding what performance to give him. Wide-eyed innocence might damage her standing with these women as much as flashing her dimple at him would. Elaine always expected that dimple to work where all else failed. Her chin rose slightly. Tom and Julian are helping Avienda and Brigitte watch Cardin's palace, Matt. It was to be the daughter heir in near full bloom. Not the whole flowering, since she surely knew how he would react to that. But a voice full of certainty, cool blue eyes demanding, and that pretty face chill, if not exactly frozen with arrogance. Was there any woman in the world who was just one person? Nynaeve will be down shortly, I'm sure. There is no reason for you to come, you know, Matt. Nelesian and your soldiers are a more than adequate bodyguard. You could enjoy yourself right here in the palace until we return. Corridan, he cried. Elaine, we aren't staying in Ebudar to settle Jacob Corridan. We are getting the bowl. Then you or Nynaeve is going to make a gateway, and we are leaving. Is that clear? And I am going with you to the Rahad. Enjoy himself. The light only knew what Tynan would get up to if he remained in the palace all day. The very thought made him want to laugh hysterically. Icy stares stabbed at him from the wise woman. Stout Sumeko pursed her lips angrily, and Melora, a plump Damani in her middle years, whose bosom he had enjoyed eyeing yesterday, planted fists on hips with a face like a thunderhead. They should have known from yesterday that he was not intimidated by Aes Sedai, yet even Rayana gave him such a scowl he half thought she might try to box his ears. Apparently, if they were going to fall all over themselves around Aes Sedai, then everybody else had to as well. Elaine struggled with herself visibly, her lips compressed, but one thing he had to give her. She was too smart to go on with what obviously would not work. On the other hand, she was snooty to the bone, however she tried. And the other women were watching. Matt, you know we cannot leave until we have used the bowl. That haughty chin remained high, and her tone was at best halfway between explaining and telling. It might require days for us to be sure of how to use it, perhaps even half a week or more. And we might as well finish Carradin, if we can in that time. Such a crackle entered her voice on the white cloak's name that you might have thought she bore the man a personal grudge. But something else leaped out and clamped a fist on his thoughts. Half a week! Feeling strangled, he put a finger behind the scarf, knotted around his neck, and tugged to ease it. Tylan had used that length of black silk to tie his hands last night before he knew what she was doing. Half a week? Or more? Despite his best efforts, his voice became a touch frantic. Elaine, surely you can use the bowl anywhere. It doesn't have to be here. Egwene must want you back as soon as possible. She can use a friend or two, I'll wager. By the last he had seen, she could use a few hundred. Maybe once he got these women back, Egwene would be ready to give up that nonsense about being Amarlin and let him take her to Rand along with Elaine and Nynaeve and Avienda. And what about Rand, Elaine? Camelin? The Lion Throne? Blood and ashes, you know you want to reach Camelin quick as you can so Rand can give you the Lion Throne. For some reason, her face grew darker almost by the word, and her eyes flashed. He would have said she was indignant, except, of course, that she had no cause. 
She opened her mouth angrily to argue as soon as he finished, and he set himself, ready to list her promises, into the pit of doom with what that did to her in the eyes of Rihanna and the rest. By their faces, they would have snubbed him short already in her place. Before anyone could say anything, though, a round graying woman in House Mitsu Bar livery was curtsying, first to Elaine, then to the women wearing red belts, and finally to him. Queen Tylen sends this, Master Cawthon, Laren said, holding out a basket with a striped cloth over the contents and small red flowers woven around the handle. You did not breakfast, and you must maintain your strength. Matt's cheeks warmed. The woman merely looked at him, but she had seen considerably more of him than when she first showed him into Tylen's presence. Considerably more. She had brought supper on a tray last night, while he tried to hide under the silk bedsheet. He did not understand it. These women had him jumping about and blushing like a girl. He just could not understand. "'Are you sure you wouldn't rather remain here?' Elaine asked. "'I'm sure Tylen would enjoy your company for breakfast. "'The Queen said she finds you wonderfully entertaining and courteously compliant,' she added in a doubtful tone. Matt fled for the coaches with the basket in one hand and his Ashandarai in the other. "'Are all northern men so shy?' Laren said. He risked a glance over his shoulder without stopping and heaved a sigh of relief. The serving woman was already gathering her skirts, turning to walk through the screen of plants, and Elaine was motioning Rihanna and the wise women into a circle close around her. Even so, he shivered. Women were going to be the death of him yet. Rounding the nearest coach, he nearly dropped the basket at the side of Beslan, seated on the coach step, sunlight gleaming along the narrow blade of his sword as he examined the edge. "'What are you doing here?' Matt exclaimed. Beslan slid the sword into its sheath, a grin splitting his face. "'Coming with you to the Rahad. I suspect you'll find more fun for us.' "'There had better be some fun,' Nelesian yawned into his hand. "'I didn't get very much sleep last night, and now you drag me off when there are sea-folk women about.' Vannon sat up on his barrel, looked around, found nothing moving, and settled himself back again with his eyes shut. "'There'll be no fun if I can help it,' Matt muttered. "'Nalesian had not gotten much sleep? "'Ha! "'The whole lot of them had been out enjoying themselves at the festival. "'Not that he had not enjoyed himself in patches, "'but only when he could forget he was with a woman "'who thought he was some sort of bloody doll. "'What sea-folk women?' "'When Nynaeve Sedai returned last night, "'she brought a dozen or more, Matt.' Beslin blew out his breath, and his hands made swaying motions. The way they move, Matt. Matt shook his head. He was not thinking clearly. Tylen was scrambling his brains. Nynaeve and Elaine had told him about the Windfinders, reluctantly and in sworn secrecy, after trying to hold back even where Nynaeve wanted to go, much less why. And not a single blush at the effort, either. Women keep promises in their own way, so the saying went. Come to think of it, Lawton and Belvin were not with the rest of the Red Arms. Maybe Nynaeve thought to make up for the other by keeping them with her now. In their own way. But if she had the Windfinders already in the palace, surely it would not take half a week to use the bowl. Light, please not. As if thinking of her had been a summons, Nynaeve came strolling through the screen of plants into the stable yard. Matt's jaw dropped. 
The tall man in a dark green coat on her arm was Lan. Or rather, she was on his, clinging to it with both hands, smiling up at him. With any other woman, Matt would have said she was moon-eyed and dreaming. But this was naive. She gave a start once she realized where she was, and took a hasty step to one side, though she still held on to Lan's hand for a moment. Her choice of dresses was no better than Elaine's, all blue silk and green embroidery cut low enough to show a heavy gold ring that would have rattled on her two thumbs together, dangling into her cleavage on a thin gold chain. The white hat she carried by its ribbons was trimmed with blue plumes, her dust cloak green linen embroidered in blue. She and Elaine made the other women drab by comparison in their woolens. In any case, whether or not she had been calf-eyes a moment before, she was all herself now, shifting her braid around. "'Join the other men now, Lan,' she said peremptorily, "'and we can go. "'The last four coaches are for the men.' "'As you say,' Lan replied, "'bowing with a hand on his sword hilt. "'She watched him stride toward Matt with an expression of wonder, "'probably unable to believe he was obeying so meekly, "'then gave herself a shake and recovered her bristly self again.' Gathering up Elaine and the other women, she herded them toward the first two coaches like a woman shooing geese. By the way, she shouted for someone to open the stableyard gates. No one would have known she had been the one delaying their departure. She shouted at the drivers, too, setting them to snatching up their reins and flourishing their long whips. It was a marvel they waited for anyone to climb aboard. Scrambling awkwardly after Lan and Elysian and Beslan into the third coach... Matt propped his spear across the door and sat down hard with the basket on his lap as the coach lurched forward. "'Where did you come from, Lan?' he burst out as soon as introductions were out of the way. "'You're the last man I expected to see. Where have you been? Light, I thought you were dead. I know Rand's afraid you are. And letting Nynaeve order you around? Why in the light would you do that?' The stone-faced warder seemed to consider which question to answer. Nynaeve and I were married last night by the mistress of the ships, he said finally. The Arthur Anmier have several unusual marriage customs. There were surprises for both of us. A small smile touched his mouth, if nothing else. He shrugged slightly. Seemingly, that was all the answer he intended to give. The blessing of the light be upon you and your bride, Beslan murmured politely with as much of a bow as the confines of the coach would allow, and Elysian mumbled something, though it was plain from his expression that he thought Lan must be mad. Elysian had had a good bit of Nynaeve's company. Matt just sat there, swaying with the coach's motion and staring. Nynaeve? Married? Lan? Married to Nynaeve? The man was mad! No wonder his eyes looked so bleak. Matt would as soon have stuffed a rabid fox down his own shirt. Only a fool married, and only a madman would marry Nynaeve. If Lan noticed that not everyone was overjoyed, he gave no sign. Except for his eyes, he looked no different than Matt remembered. Maybe a little harder, if that was possible. There is something more important, Lan said. Nynaeve doesn't want you to know, Matt but you need to hear it. Your two men are dead, killed by Mogedian. I'm sorry, but if it is any consolation, 
They truly were dead before they knew. Nani thinks Mogedian must be gone, or she'd have tried again, but I am not so certain. It seems she has a personal enmity toward Nynaeve, although Nynaeve managed to avoid telling me why. Again the smile. Lan seemed unaware of it. Not all of it, at least. And it does not matter. Best you know what might be facing us beyond the river, though. Mogedian, Beslin breathed, eyes shining. The man was probably seeing fun. Mogedian, Nelesian breathed, but in his case it was more of a groan, and he gave his pointed beard a fitful jerk. Those bloody flaming women, Matt muttered. I hope you don't include my wife, Lance said coldly, one hand gripping the hilt of his sword, and Matt quickly raised his own hands. Of course not. Just Elaine and... and the kin... After a moment, Lan nodded, and Matt breathed a small sigh of relief. It will be just like Nynaeve to get him killed by her husband. Her husband? When sure as bread was brown, she would have hidden the fact that one of the Forsaken might be in the city. Even Mogedian did not really frighten him, not so long as he had the fox head around his neck. But the medallion could not protect Nelesian or any of the rest. No doubt Nynaeve thought she and Elaine would do that. They let him bring along the red arms, all the while laughing up their sleeves at him while they... Aren't you going to read my mother's note, Matt? Until Beslin mentioned it, he had not realized there was a sheet of paper, folded small, tucked in between the basket and the striped cloth. Just enough showed to reveal the green seal impressed with the anchor and sword. He broke the wax with his thumb and unfolded the page, holding it so Beslin could not see what was written. As well he did... Or then again, considering how the other man saw things, maybe it did not matter. Either way, Matt was just as glad no eyes but his saw those words. His heart sank deeper by the line. Matt, my sweet, I'm having your things moved to my apartments. So much more convenient. By the time you return, Rosella will be in your old rooms to look after young Oliver. He seems to enjoy her company. I have seamstresses coming to measure you. I will enjoy watching that. You must wear shorter coats, and new breeches, of course. You have a delightful bottom. Duckling, who is this daughter of the nine moons I made you think of? I have thought of several delicious ways to make you tell me. Tylan. The others were all looking at him expectantly. Well, Lan was simply looking, but his gaze was more unnerving than the rest. That stare seemed almost... dead. The Queen thinks I need new clothes, Matt said, stuffing the note into his coat pocket. I think I'll take a nap. He pulled the brim of his hat down over his eyes, but he did not close them, staring out the window, where the tied-back curtain let in occasional eddies of dust. It also let in the wind, though, which was considerably better than the heat of a closed coach. Mogedian and Tylan. Of the two, he would rather confront Mogedian. He touched the fox head hanging in the open neck of his shirt. At least he had some protection against Mogedian. Against Tylan, he had no more than he did against the daughter of the bloody Nine Moons, whoever she was. Unless he could find some way to make Nynaeve and Elaine leave Ebudar before tonight, everybody was going to know. Sullenly, he tugged his hat lower. 
these flaming women really were making him act like a girl. In another minute, he was afraid, he might just start crying. Chapter 38 Six Stories Matt would have gotten out and pulled the coach himself if he could. He thought they might have moved faster. The streets were already full with the sun not all the way up, wagons and carts wending their way noisily through the crowds and wind-blown dust to shouts and curses both from drivers and those forced to get out of the way. So many barges slid along the canals and the bargemen's poles that a man almost could have walked the canals like streets, stepping from one barge to the next. A noisy hum hung over the gleaming white city. Ebudar seemed to be trying to make up for time lost yesterday, not to mention at High Chaseline, and the Feast of Lights, and well it might, considering that tomorrow night was the Feast of Embers, with Madden's Day celebrating the founder of Altara two days after that, and the Feast of the Half Moon the following night. Southerners had a reputation for industry, but he thought it was because they had to work so hard to make up for all the festivals and feast days. The wonder was that they had the strength for it. Eventually the coaches did reach the river, drawing up at one of the long stone landings that jutted out into the water, all lined with steps for boarding the boats tied alongside. Sticking a wedge of dark yellow cheese and a butt end of bread into his pocket, he stuffed the basket well under the seat. He was hungry, but someone in the kitchens had been in too much of a hurry. Most of the basket was filled with a clay pot full of oysters, but the kitchens had forgotten to cook them. Scrambling down behind Lan, he left Nelesian and Besselin to help Vannon and the others down from the last coaches. Nearly a dozen men, and not even the Karienen really small, they had been jammed in like apples in a barrel and clambered out stiffly. Matt strode ahead of the warder toward the lead coach, the Ashandarai slanted across his shoulder. Nynaeve and Elaine were both going to get a piece of his mind, no matter who was listening. Trying to keep Mogedian hidden, not to mention two of his men dead. He was going to... Suddenly very conscious of Lan towering behind him like a stone statue with that sword on his hip, he amended his thoughts. The daughter heir, at least, was going to hear about keeping that sort of secret. Nynaeve was standing on the landing, tying on her blue-plumed hat and talking back up into the coach when he reached it. We'll work out, of course, but who would think the sea folk of all people would demand such a thing, even just in private? But Nynaeve, Elaine said as she stepped down with her green-plumed hat in her hand, if last night was as glorious as you say, how can you complain about... That was when they became aware of him and Lan. Of Lan, really. Nynaeve's eyes opened wider and wider, filling her face as it reddened to shame two sunsets. Maybe three... Elaine froze with one foot still on the coach step, giving the water such a frown you would have thought he had sneaked up on them. Lan gazed down at Nynaeve, though, with no more expression than a fence post, and for all Nynaeve appeared ready to crawl under the coach and hide, she stared up at Lan as if no one else existed in the world. Realizing her frown was wasted there, Elaine took her foot off the step and moved out of the way of Rihanna and the two wise women who had shared the coach, to Marla and a graying Saldean woman named Janira. But the daughter heir did not give up. Oh, no. She transferred that scowl to Matt Cawthon. And if it altered a whit, it was to deepen. He snorted and shook his head. Usually when a woman was in the wrong, she could find so many things to blame on the nearest man that he wound up thinking maybe he really was at fault. In his experience, old memories or new, there were only two times a woman admitted she was wrong. When she wanted something, 
and when it snowed at midsummer. Nynaeve seized at her braid, but not as if her heart was in it. Her fingers fumbled and fell away, and she started wringing her hands instead. Lan, she began unsteadily, you mustn't think I would talk about... The warder cut in smoothly, bowing and offering her his arm. We are in public, Nynaeve. Whatever you say in public, you may. May I escort you to the boat? Yes, she said, nodding so vigorously that her hat nearly fell off. She straightened it hurriedly with both hands. Yes, in public. You will escort me. Taking his arm, she regained some measure of composure, at least insofar as her face went. Gathering her dust cloak in her free hand, she practically dragged him across the quay toward the landing. Matt wondered whether she might be ill. He rather enjoyed seeing Nynaeve drop to peg or six, but she hardly ever let it last two breaths. I said I could not heal themselves. Maybe he should suggest to Elaine that she deal with whatever was wrong with Nynaeve. He avoided healing like death or marriage himself, but it was different for other people as he saw it. First, though, he had a few choice words to say about secrets. Opening his mouth, he raised an admonitory finger. And Elaine poked him in the chest with hers, her scowl beneath that plumed hat so cold it made his toes hurt. Mistress Corley, she said in the icy voice of a queen pronouncing judgment, explain to Nynaeve and me the significance of those red flowers on the basket, which I see at least you have shame enough to have hidden. His face went redder than Nynaeve's had thought of. A few paces away, Rihanna Corley and the other two were tying on hats and adjusting dresses the way women did every time they stood up, sat down, or moved three steps. Yet, despite giving their attention to their clothes, they had enough left over for glances in his direction, and for once they were neither disapproving nor startled. He had not known the bloody flowers meant anything. Ten sunsets would not have done for his face. So... Elaine's voice was low for his ears alone, but it dripped disgust and contempt. She gave her cloak a twitch to keep it from touching him. It's true. I could not believe it of you, not even you. I'm sure Nynaeve couldn't. Any promise I made to you is abolished. I would not keep any promise to a man who could force his attentions on a woman, on any woman, but especially on a queen who has offered him... Me force my attentions on her, he shouted. Or rather, he tried to shout. Choking made it come out in a wheeze. Seizing Elaine's shoulders, he pulled her away from the carriages a little distance. Shirtless dockmen in stained green leather vests hurried by, carrying sacks on their shoulders or rolling barrels along the quay, some pushing low barrows loaded with crates, all giving the coaches a wide berth. The Queen of Altara might not have much power, but her sigil on a coach door ensured that commoners would give it room. Nelesian and Beslan were chatting as they led the red arms onto the landing, Vannon bringing up the rear and staring gloomily at the choppy river. He claimed to have a tender belly when it came to boats. The wise women from both coaches had gathered around Rihanna, watching, but they were not close enough to overhear. He whispered hoarsely just the same. You listen to me. That woman won't take no for an answer. I say no and she laughs at me. She's starved me, bullied me, chased me down like a stag. She has more hands than any six women I ever met. She threatened to have the serving women undress me if I didn't let her... Abruptly what he was saying hit him, and who he was saying it to. 
He managed to close his mouth before he swallowed a fly. He became very interested in one of the dark metal ravens inlaid in the haft of the Ashandarai, so he would not have to meet her eyes. What I mean to say is, you don't understand, he muttered. You have it all backwards. He risked a glance at her under the edge of his hat brim. A faint blush crept into her cheeks, but her face became solemn as a marble bust. It appears that I may have misunderstood, she said soberly. That is very bad of Tylen. He thought her lips twitched. Have you considered practicing different smiles in a mirror, Matt? Startled, he blinked. What? I have heard reliably that that is what young women do who attract the eyes of kings. Something cracked the sobriety of her voice, and this time her lips definitely twitched. You might try batting your eyelashes, too. Catching her lower lip under her teeth, she turned away, shoulders shaking, dust cloak streaming behind her as she hurried toward the landing. Before she darted beyond hearing, he heard her chortle something about a taste of his own medicine. Rihanna and the wise woman scurried in her wake, a flock of hens following a chick instead of the other way around. The few bare-chested boatmen up on their boats stopped coiling lines or whatever they were doing and bowed their heads respectfully as the procession went by. Snatching off his hat, Matt considered throwing it down and jumping on it. Women! He should have known better than to expect sympathy. He would like to throttle the bloody daughter heir. And Nynaeve, too, on general principle. Except, of course, that he could not. He had made promises, and those dice were still using his skull for a dice cup, and one of the Forsaken might be around somewhere. Settling the hat squarely back on his head, he marched down the landing, brushed past the wise woman, and caught up to Elaine. She was still trying to fight down giggles, but every time she cut her eyes his way, the color in her cheeks renewed itself, and so did the giggles. He stared straight ahead. Bloody women! Bloody promises! Removing his hat long enough to pull the leather cord from around his neck, he reluctantly shoved it in her direction. The silver fox head dangled beneath his fist. You and Nynaeve will have to decide which of you wears this. But I want it back when we leave Abu Dhar. You understand? The moment we leave... Suddenly he realized he was walking alone. Turning, he found Elaine standing stock still two paces back, staring at him with Rihanna and the rest clustered behind her. What's the matter now? he demanded. Oh, yes, I know all about Magedian. A skinny fellow with red stones on his brass hoop earrings bending over a mooring line jerked around so fast at that name that he pitched over the side with a loud yell and a louder splash. Matt did not care who heard. Trying to keep her secret, and two of my men dead, after you promised? Well, we'll talk about that later. I made a promise, too. I promised to keep the pair of you alive. If Mogedian shows up, she'll go after you, too. Now here... He pushed the medallion at her again. She shook her head slowly in puzzlement, then turned to murmur to Rihanna. Only after the older women were on their way toward where Nynaeve stood beckoning them at the head of a flight of boat stairs, did Elaine take the fox head, turning it over in her fingers. Do you have any notion what I would have done to have this for study? She said quietly. Any notion at all? She was tall for a woman, but she still had to look up at him. She might never have seen him before. 
"'You are a troublesome man, Matt Cawthon. "'Lenny would say I was repeating myself, but you—' "'Expelling her breath, Elaine reached up to pull his hat off "'and slipped the cord over his head. "'She actually tucked the fox head into his shirt "'and patted it before handing him his hat. "'I won't wear that while Nynaeve still doesn't have one, or Avienda. "'And I think they feel the same. "'You wear it. "'After all—' You can hardly keep your promise if Morgadian kills you. Not that I think she's still here. I think she believes she killed Nynaeve, and I would not be surprised if that was all she came for. You must be careful, though. Nynaeve says there's a storm coming, and she doesn't mean this wind. I... That faint blush returned to her cheeks. I am sorry I laughed at you. She cleared her throat, looking away. Sometimes I forget my duty to my subjects. You are a worthy subject, Matram Cawthon. I will see that Nynaeve understands the right of... of you and Tylen. Perhaps we can help. No, he spluttered. I mean, yes. I mean, that is... Oh, kiss a flaming goat if I know what I mean. I almost wish you didn't know the truth. Nynaeve and Elaine sitting down to discuss him with Tylen over tea. Could he ever live that down? Could he ever again look any of them in the eye afterward? But if they did not... He was between the wolf and the bear with nowhere to run. Oh, sheep swallop! Sheep swallop and bloody buttered onions! He nearly wished she would call him down for his language the way Nynaeve would, just to change the subject. Her lips moved silently, and for an instant he had the strange impression that she was repeating what he had just said. Of course not. He was seeing things, that was all. Aloud, she said, I understand, sounding just as if she did. Come along now, Matt. We can't waste time standing in one spot. Gaping, he watched her lift skirts and cloak to make her way along the landing. She understood? She understood, and not one acid little comment, not one cutting remark. And he was her subject, her worthy subject. Fingering the medallion, he followed. He had been sure the fight would be to ever get it back. If he lived as long as two Aes Sedai, he still would never understand women, and noble women were purely the worst. When he reached the steps Elaine had gone down, the boat's two brass-earring doorsmen were already using their long sweeps to push the vessel away. Elaine was herding Rihanna and the last of the wise women into the cabin, and Lan stood up in the bows with Nynaeve. A shout from Besselin called him on to the next boat, which held all of the men except the warder. Nynaeve said there wasn't any room for any of us, Nelesian said as the boat rocked its way out into the elder. She said we'd crowd them. Besselin laughed, looking around their own boat. Vannon sat beside the cabin door with his eyes closed, trying to pretend he was somewhere else. Harnan and Tad Candle, and Endoran, despite being as dark as either of the boatmen, had climbed atop the cabin. The rest of the Red Arms hunkered about the deck, trying to keep out of the way of the rowers. Nobody went into the cabin, all apparently waiting to see whether Matt and Elysian and Beslin wanted it. Matt put himself beside the tall bow post, peering after the other boat, crawling on its sweeps just ahead. The wind whipped the dark choppy waters, and his scarf as well, and he had to hold on to his hat. What was Nynaeve up to? 
The other nine women on the second boat were all in the cabin, leaving the deck to her and Lan. They stood up in the bows, Lan with his arms folded, Nynaeve gesturing as though explaining. Except that Nynaeve seldom explained anything. Better say never than seldom. Whatever she was doing, it did not last long. There were whitecaps out in the bay, where seafolk rakers and skimmers and soarers heaved at their anchors. The river was not so bad, but the boat still wallowed more than Matt remembered from any previous trip. Before long, Nynaeve was draped over the railing, losing her breakfast while Lan held her. That reminded Matt of his own belly. Tucking his hat under his arm so it could not blow away, he pulled out the wedge of cheese. Beslin, is this storm likely to break before we come back from the Rahad? He took a bite of the sharp-tasting cheese. They had fifty different sorts in Ebudar, all good. Nynaeve was still hanging over the side. How much had the woman eaten this morning? I don't know where we'll shelter if we're caught. He could not think of a single inn he had seen in the Rahad that he would take the women into. No storm, Veslin said, seating himself on the railing. These are the winter trade winds. The trades come twice a year, in late winter and late summer. But they have to blow much harder before it comes to storm. He directed a sour look out toward the bay. Every year those winds bring, brought, ships from Taraban and Aradaman. I wonder whether they ever will again. The wheel weaves, Matt began and choked on a crumb of cheese. Blood and ashes, he was starting to sound like some gray hair resting his aching joints in front of the fireplace. Worrying about taking the women into a rough inn? A year ago, half a year, he would have taken them and laughed when their eyes popped, laughed at every prim sniff. Well, maybe we'll find you some fun in the Rahad anyway. At the least, somebody will try to cut a purse or pull Elaine's necklace off. Maybe that was what he needed to clean the taste of sobriety from his tongue. Sobriety? Light. What a word to apply to Matt Cawthon. Tylen must be scaring him more than he thought if he was shriveling up this way. Maybe he needed some of Beslin's sort of fun. That was crazy. He had never seen the fight he would not rather walk around. But maybe... Beslin shook his head. If anyone can find it, you can, but... We'll be with seven wise women, Matt. Seven. With just one at your side, you could slap a man, even in the Rahad, and he would swallow his tongue and walk away. And the women. What's the fun of kissing a woman without the risk she'll decide to stick a knife in you? Burn my soul, Nelesian muttered into his beard. It sounds as though I've dragged myself from bed for a dull morning. Beslan nodded in commiseration. If we're lucky, though, the Civil Guard does send patrols to the Rahad occasionally, and if they're after smugglers, they dress like anyone else. They seem to think nobody will notice a dozen or so men together carrying swords, whatever they wear, and they're always surprised when the smugglers ambush them, which is what nearly always happens. If Matt's Taverinluck works for us, we might be taken for the Civil Guard, and some smugglers might attack us before they see the Red Belts. Elysian brightened and began rubbing his hands together. Matt glared at them. Maybe Beslin's sort of fun was not what he needed. For one thing, he had more than enough of women with knives. Nynaeve still hung over the side of the boat ahead. That would teach her to gorge herself. 
Wolfing down the last of the cheese, he began on the bread and tried to ignore the dice in his head. An easy trip with no trouble did not sound bad at all. A quick trip with a quick departure from Abu Dar. The Rahad was everything he remembered and everything Beslan feared. The wind made climbing the cracked gray stone steps at the boat landing into a perilous feat, and after that it grew worse. Canals ran everywhere, just as across the river, but here the bridges were plain, the grimy stone parapets broken and crumbling. Half the canals were so silted that boys waded waist-deep in them, and hardly a barge was to be seen. Tall buildings stood crowded together, blocky structures with scabrous once-white plaster gone in huge patches to reveal rotting red brick, bordering narrow streets with broken paving stones. In those streets where even the fragments had not been ripped up. Morning did not really reach into the shadows of the buildings. Dingy laundry hung drying from every third window, except where a structure stood empty. Some did, and those windows gaped like eye sockets in a skull. A sour, sweet smell of decay permeated the air. Last month's chamber pots and ancient refuse smoldering wherever it had been flung. And for every fly on the other side of the Eldar, a hundred buzzed here in clouds of green and blue. He spotted the peeling blue door of the golden crown of heaven and shuddered at the thought of taking the women in there if the storm broke, despite what Beslin said. Then he shuddered again for having shuddered. Something was happening to him, and he did not like it. Nynaeve and Elaine insisted on taking the lead, with Rihanna between them and the wise women close behind. Lan stayed at Nynaeve's shoulder like a wolfhound, hand on sword hilt, eyes constantly searching, radiating menace. In truth, he was probably enough protection for two dozen pretty sixteen-year-olds carrying sacks of gold, even here. But Matt insisted that Vannon and the rest keep their eyes open. In fact, the former horse-thief and poacher kept so close to Elaine that anyone could have been forgiven for thinking he was her warder, if a rather fat and rumpled one. Beslin rolled his eyes expressively at Matt's instructions, and Elysian irritably stroked his beard and muttered that he could still be in bed. Men strutted arrogantly along the streets, with often ragged vests and no shirts, wearing great brass hoops in their ears and brass finger rings set with colored glass. One knife or sometimes two stuck behind their belts. Hands hovering near those knives, they stared as though daring someone to give the wrong twist to a look. Others skulked from corner to corner, doorway to doorway with hooded eyes, imitating the slat-ribbed dogs that sometimes snarled from a dark alleyway, barely wide enough for a man to squeeze into. Those men hunched over their knives, and there was no way to tell which would run and which stab. By and large, the women made any of the men appear humble, parading in worn dresses and twice as much brass jewelry as the men. They carried knives too, of course, and their bold, dark eyes sent ten sorts of challenge in every glance. In short, the Rahad was the sort of place where anyone wearing silk could hardly hope to walk ten steps without being cracked over the head, after which they had best hope to wake stripped to the skin and tossed onto a pile of rubbish in an alley, since the alternative was not to wake at all. But children darted from every second door with chipped pottery cups of water sent by their mothers in case the wise women wished to drink. Men with scarred faces and murder etched into their eyes stared open-mouthed at seven wise women together, then bobbed jerky bows and inquired politely if they could be of assistance. Was there anything that required carrying? 
Women, sometimes with as many scars and always eyes to make Thailand flinch, curtsied awkwardly and breathlessly asked whether they might supply directions. Had anyone made a bother of themselves to bring so many wise women? If so, the strong implication was, Tamarla and the rest had no need of troubling themselves if they would just supply the name. Oh, they glared at the soldiers as hotly as ever, though even the hardest flinched away from Lan after a single look, and oddly enough from Vannon. A few of the men growled at Beslan and Elysian whenever they gazed too long at a woman's deep neckline. Some growled at Matt, though he could not understand why. Unlike those two, he was never in danger of his eyeballs falling down the front of a woman's dress. He knew how to look discreetly. Nynaeve and Elaine were ignored for all their finery, and so was Rihanna in her red wool dress. They did not have the red belt, but they did have the protection of those belts. Matt realized that Beslan had been right. He could empty his purse on the ground, and no one would pick up a copper, at least so long as the wise women remained. He could pinch the bottom of every woman in sight, and even if she had apoplexy, she would walk away. "'What a pleasant walk,' Elysian said dryly, "'with such interesting sights and smells. "'Did I tell you I didn't get much sleep last night, Matt?' "'Do you want to die in bed?' Matt grumbled. "'They might as well all have stayed in bed.' They were bloody useless here, that was for sure. The tyrant snorted indignantly. Beslan laughed, but he probably thought Matt meant something else. Across the Rahad they marched, until Rihanna finally stopped in front of a building exactly like every other, all flaking plaster and crumbling brick, the same Matt had followed another woman to yesterday. No laundry hung from these windows. Only rats lived in there. In here, she said. Elaine's eyes climbed slowly to the flat roof. Six, she murmured in tones of great satisfaction. Six, Nynaeve sighed, and Elaine patted her arm as though sympathizing with her. I wasn't really sure, she said. So Nynaeve smiled and patted her. Matt did not understand a word of it. So the building had six floors. Women behaved very strangely sometimes. Well, most of the time. Inside, a long hallway carpeted with dust ran dimly to the back, the far end lost in shadows. Few of the doorways held doors, and those were rough planks. One opening, almost a third of the way down the hall, led to a narrow flight of steep stone-faced steps climbing upward. That was the way he had gone the day before, following footprints in the dust, but he thought some of those other openings must be crossing corridors. He had not taken time to look around then, but the building was too deep and too wide for this floor to be served by only the one they saw. It was too big for only one way in. Really, Matt, Nynaeve said when he told off Harnan and half the Red Arms to find any way back in and guard it. Land kept so close to his side he might have been glued there. Don't you see by now there's no need? Her tone was so mild that Elaine must have passed on the truth about Tylan, but if anything, that only soured his mood further. He did not want anyone to know. Bloody useless. But those dice were still rattling around in his head. Maybe Mogedian likes back doors, he said dryly. Something chittered in the dark end of the hall, and one of the men with Harnan cursed loudly about rats. You told him, Nynaeve breathed furiously at Lan, one hand snapping shut on her braid. Elaine made an exasperated sound. This is no time to stop for an argument, Nynaeve. 
The bowl is upstairs. The bowl of the winds. A small ball of light suddenly appeared, floating in front of her, and without waiting to see whether or not Nynaeve was coming, she gathered her skirts and darted up the stairs. Vannon dashed after her with a startling turn of speed for his bulk, followed by Rihanna and most of the wise women. Round-faced Sumeko and Iaina, tall and dark and pretty despite the lines at the corners of her eyes, hesitated, then remained with Nynaeve. Matt would have gone too, if Nynaeve and Lan had not been in his way. Would you let me buy Nynaeve, he asked. He deserved to be there at least, when this fabulous bloody bull was uncovered. Nynaeve? She was so focused on Lan she seemed to have forgotten anyone else. Matt exchanged glances with Beslin, who grinned and squatted easily, with Coravin and the remaining red arms. Nelesian leaned against the wall and yawned ostentatiously. Which was a mistake with all that dust about. The yawn turned into a coughing fit that darkened his face and doubled him over. Even that did not distract Nynaeve. Carefully, she took her hand away from her braid. I am not angry, Lan, she said. Yes, you are, he replied calmly, but he had to be told. Nynaeve, Matt said. Lan? Neither one of them so much as flickered an eye his way. I would have told him when I was ready, Landman Dragoran. Her mouth clamped shut, but her lips writhed as though she were talking to herself. I will not be angry with you, she went on in a much milder tone, and that sounded addressed to herself as well. Very deliberately, she tossed her braid back over her shoulder, jerked that blue-plumed hat straight, and clasped her hands at her waist. If you say so, Lan said mildly. Nynaeve quivered. Don't you take that tone with me, she shouted. I tell you I'm not angry. Do you hear me? Blood and ashes, Nynaeve, Matt growled. He doesn't think you're angry. I don't think you're angry. A good thing women had taught him to lie with a straight face. Now can we go upstairs and fetch this bloody bull of the winds? A marvelous idea, said a woman's voice from the door to the street. Shall we go up together and surprise Elaine? Matt had never seen the two women who walked into the hall before, but their faces were Aes Sedai faces. The speaker's was long and cold as her voice. Her companions, framed by scores of thin dark braids, worked with colored beads. Nearly two dozen men crowded in behind them, bulky fellows with heavy shoulders, clubs and knives in hand. Matt shifted his grip on the Ashandarai. He knew trouble when he saw it, and the fox head on his chest was cool, almost cold against his skin. Somebody was holding the one power. The two wise women nearly fell over, dropping curtsies as soon as they saw those ageless faces, but Nynaeve certainly knew trouble too. Her mouth worked soundlessly as the pair came down the hallway, her face all consternation and self-recrimination. Behind him, Matt heard a sword leaving its scabbard, but he was not about to look back to see whose. Lan just stood there, which meant, of course, that he looked like a leopard ready to pounce. "'They're black Aja,' Nynaeve said at last. Her voice started faint and gained strength as she went on. "'Phalian Boda and Ispen Shafar. They committed murder in the tower and worse since. They're dark friends and—' Her voice faltered for an instant. "'They have shielded me.' The newcomers continued to advance serenely. "'Have you ever heard such nonsense, Ispan?' the long-faced Aes Sedai asked her companion, who stopped grimacing at the dust long enough to smirk at Nynaeve. 
Ispan and I come from the White Tower, while Nynaeve and her friends are rebels against the Amaran seat. They'll be punished severely for that, and so will anyone who helps them. With a shock, Matt realized the woman did not know. She thought that he and Lan and the others were just hired strong arms. Felian directed a smile at Nynaeve. It made a blizzard warm by comparison. There's someone who will be overjoyed to see you when we take you back, Nynaeve. She thinks you are dead. Better the rest of you go now. You don't want to meddle in Aes Sedai affairs. My men will see you to the river. Without taking her eyes from Nynaeve, Felian motioned for the men behind her to come forward. Lan moved. He did not draw his sword, and against Aes Sedai, he should have had no chance if he had. No chance in any case. But one moment he was standing still, and the next he had thrown himself at the pair. Just before he struck, he grunted as though hit hard, but he crashed into them, carrying both black sisters to the dusty floor. That opened the sluice gates wide. Lan pushed himself to hands and knees, shaking his head groggily, and one of the bulky fellows raised an iron-strapped club to smash his skull. Matt stabbed the fellow in the belly with his spear, as Beslan and Elysian and the five red arms rushed to meet the dark friend's shouting charge. Lan staggered to his feet, sword sweeping out to open a dark friend from crotch to neck. There was not much room to work Sword or Ashandari in the corridor, but the tight quarters were what allowed them to face odds of two to one or worse without being overcome in the first moment. Grunting men struggled with them face to face, elbowing each other for room to stab or swing a club at them. Small spaces remained clear around the Black Sisters and around Nynaeve. They saw to that themselves. A wiry Andron red arm almost bumped into Phalian, but at the last instant, he jerked into the air and flew across the hallway, knocking down two of the heavy-shouldered dark friends in his flight before smacking into the wall and sliding down, the back of his head leaving a bloody smear on the cracked, dusty plaster. A bald-headed dark friend squeezed through the line of defenders and rushed at Nynaeve with outstretched knife. He yelled as his feet were suddenly jerked back from him, a yell that cut off when his face hit the floor so hard that his head bounced. Obviously Nynaeve was no longer shielded, and if the chilly silver fox head sliding around Matt's chest as he fought was not enough indication that she and the Black Sisters were in some sort of struggle, the way they glared at her and she at them, ignoring the battle around them, shouted the fact. The two wise women looked on in horror. They had their curved knives in their fists, but they huddled against the wall, staring from Nynaeve to the other two with eyes wide and mouths hanging open. Fight! Nynaeve snapped at them. She turned her head just a fraction, so she could see them as well as Phelian and Ispan. I cannot do it alone. They're linked. If you don't fight them, they will kill you. You know about them now. The wise woman gaped at her, as though she had suggested spitting in the queen's face. In the midst of shouts and grunts, Ispan laughed melodiously. In the midst of shouts and grunts, a shrill scream echoed down the stairs. Nynaeve's head swung that way. Suddenly she staggered, and her head swung back like a wounded badger's, with a skull that should have made Felian and Ispan leave right then if they had any sense. Nynaeve spared an agonized glance for Matt, though. There was channeling upstairs, she said through her teeth. There's trouble. Matt hesitated. More likely Elaine had seen a rat. More likely... He managed to knock aside a dagger thrust at his ribs, but there was no room to stab back with the Ashandari or use the haft like a quarterstaff. Beslan stabbed past him and took his attacker through the heart. Please, Matt, Nynaeve said tightly. She never begged. She would cut her own throat first. 
Please. With a curse, Matt pulled himself out of the fight and dashed up the steep, narrow stairs, taking all six flights in the dark stairwell at a dead run. There was not a single window to give light. If it was just a rat, he was going to shake Elaine till her teeth. He burst out onto the top floor, not much brighter than the stairwell with only one window at the street end, burst into a scene from nightmare. Women lay sprawled everywhere. Elaine was one, half on her back against the wall, eyes closed. Vannon crouched on his knees, blood streaming from nose and ears, feebly trying to pull himself up against the wall. The last woman on her feet, Janira, fled toward Matt as soon as she saw him. He had thought of her as a hawk, with her hooked beak of a nose and sharp cheekbones, but her face was pure terror now, those dark eyes wide and stark. Help me! she screamed at him, and a man caught her from behind. He was an ordinary-looking fellow, maybe a little older than Matt, of the same height and slender in a plain gray coat. Smiling, he took Janira's head between his hands and twisted sharply. The sound of her neck breaking was like a dry branch snapping. He let her drop in a boneless heap and gazed down at her. For a moment, his smile looked... rapturous. By the light of a pair of lanterns, a small knot of men just beyond Vannon were prying open a door to the squeal of rusted hinges. But Matt hardly noticed. His eyes went from Janira's crumpled corpse to Elaine. He had promised to keep her safe for Rand. He had promised. With a cry, he launched himself at the killer, Ashandare extended. Matt had seen Murdral move, but this fellow was quicker, hard as that was to believe. He just seemed to flow from in front of the spear, and seizing the haft, he pivoted, flinging Matt past him five paces down the hall. Breath left when he hit the floor in a small cloud of dust. So did the Ashandare. Struggling for air, he pushed himself up, fox head dangling from his open shirt. Dragging a knife from under his coat, he flung himself at the man again, just as Nelesian appeared at the head of the stairs, sword in hand. Now they had him, however quick he... The man made a murderer seem stiff. He slid around Nelesian's thrust as though there was not a bone in his body, right hand shooting out to seize Nelesian's throat. His hand came away with a liquid ripping sound. Blood fountained past Nelesian's beard. His sword dropped, ringing on the dusty stone floor, and he clutched both hands to his ruined neck, red running through his fingers as he fell. Matt crashed into the killer's back, and they all three hit the floor together. He had no compunctions about stabbing a man in the back when it was necessary, especially a man who could tear somebody's throat out. He should have let Nelesian stay in bed. The thought came sadly as he drove the blade home hard, then a second time, a third. The man twisted in his grip. It should not have been possible, but somehow the fellow rolled over beneath him, pulling the knife hilt out of his hand. Nelesian's staring eyes and bloody throat were a reminder right before his eyes. Desperately, he grabbed the man's wrists, one hand slipping a little in the blood that ran down the fellow's hand. The man smiled at him. With a knife sticking out of his side, he smiled. He wants you dead as much as he wants her, he said softly. And as if Matt was not holding him at all, his hands moved toward Matt's head, driving Matt's arms back. Matt pushed frantically, threw all of his weight against the fellow's arms to no avail. Light, he might as well have been a child fighting a grown man. The fellow was making a game of it, taking his bloody time. Hands touched his head. Where was his flaming luck? He gave a heave with what seemed his last strength. 
and the medallion fell against the man's cheek. The man screamed. Smoke rose around the edges of the fox head, and a sizzle like bacon frying. Convulsively, he hurled Matt away with hands and feet both. This time Matt flew ten paces and slid. When he scrambled to his feet, half-dazed, the man was already up, hands trembling at his face. A raw red brand marked where the fox head had fallen. Gingerly, Matt fingered the medallion. It was cool. Not the cool of someone channeling nearby. Maybe they were still at it below, but that was too far off. Just the cool of silver. He had no notion what this fellow was, except that he certainly was not human. But between that burn and three stab wounds, with the knife hilt still jutting out beneath his arm, he had to be slowed enough for Matt to get past him to the stairs. Avenging Elaine was all very well, and Elysian too, but it was not going to happen today, apparently, and there was no call to supply a reason for avenging Matt Cawthon. Jerking the knife out of his side, the man hurled it at him. Matt snagged it out of the air without thinking. Tom had taught him to juggle, and Tom said he had the quickest hands he had ever seen. Flipping the knife around so he held it properly, point slanted up, he noticed the gleaming blade, and his heart sank. No blood. There should have at least been a smear of red, but the steel shone bright and clean. Maybe even three stab wounds was not going to slow this... whatever he was. He risked a glance over his shoulder. The other men were streaming out of that door they had pried open. The door those footprints had led him to yesterday. But their arms seemed full of rubbish. Small half-rotted chests, a cask with cloth-wrapped objects bulging through missing staves, even a broken chair and a cracked mirror. They must have had orders to take everything. Paying no attention whatever to Matt, they hurried toward the far end of the hall and vanished around a corner. There had to be another set of stairs back there. Maybe he could follow them at a distance. Maybe... Just before the doorway they had come out of, Vannon made another effort to stand and fell back. Matt bit back a curse. Lugging Vannon was going to slow him, but if his luck was in... It had not saved Elaine, but maybe... From the corner of his eye, he saw her move, lifting a hand to her head. The man in the gray coat saw it, too. With a smile, he turned toward her. Sighing, Matt tucked the useless knife into its scabbard. You can't have her, he said loudly. Promises. One jerk broke the leather cord around his neck. The silver fox had dangled a foot below his fist. It made a low hum as he whirled it in a double loop. You can't bloody have her! He started forward, keeping the medallion spinning. The first step was the hardest, but he had a promise to keep. The fellow's smile faded. Watching the flashing fox head warily, he backed away on his toes. The same light that glittered on the whirling silver, from the single window, made a halo around him. If Matt could drive him that far... Maybe he could see whether a six-story drop would do what a knife could not. Brand livid on his face, the fellow backed away, sometimes half-reaching as if to try grabbing past the medallion. And suddenly, he darted to one side, into one of the rooms. This one had a door that he pulled shut behind him. Matt heard the bar drop. Maybe he should have left it there, but without thinking, he raised a foot and slammed the heel of his boot against the center of the door. Dust leaped off the rough wood. A second kick, and rotten bar catches gave way, along with a rusted hinge. The door fell in, hanging at a slanted angle. The room was not entirely dark. A little light reached it from the window at the end of the hall, just one door away, 
and a broken triangle of mirror leaning against the far wall spread a faint illumination. That mirror let him see everything without going in. Aside from that and a piece of a chair, there was nothing else to see. The only openings were the doorway and a rat hole beside the mirror, but the man in the gray coat was gone. Matt, Elaine called faintly. He hurried away from the room as much as toward her. There was shouting somewhere below, but Nynaeve and the rest would have to take care of themselves for the moment. Elaine was sitting up, working her jaw and wincing, when he knelt beside her. Dust covered her dress, her hat hung askew, some of the plumes broken, and her red-gold hair looked as if she had been dragged by it. He hit me so hard, she said painfully. I don't think anything is broken, but... Her eyes latched onto his, and if he had ever thought she looked at him as if he were a stranger, he saw it for true now. I saw what you did, Matt, with him. We might as well have been chickens in a box with a weasel. Channeling wouldn't touch him. The flows melted the way they do with your... Glancing at the medallion still hanging from his fist, she drew a breath that did interesting things to that oval cutout. Thank you, Matt. I apologize for everything I ever did or thought. She sounded as though she really meant it. I keep building up toe toward you, she smiled ruefully. But I am not going to let you beat me. You are going to have to let me save you at least once to balance matters. I'll see what I can arrange, he said dryly, stuffing the medallion into a coat pocket. Toe? Beat her? Light. The woman was definitely spending too much time with Avienda. Once he helped her to her feet, she looked at the hallway, at Vannon with his blood-smeared face and the women lying where they had fallen, and she grimaced. Oh, light, she breathed. Oh, blood and bloody flaming ashes. Despite the situation, he gave a start. It was not just that he had never expected to hear those words out of her mouth. They seemed peculiar, as if she knew the sounds but not the meanings. Somehow, they made her sound younger than she looked. Shaking off his arm, she discarded her hat, just tossing it aside, and hurried to kneel beside the nearest wise woman, Rihanna, and take her head in both hands. The woman lay limp, face down, and arms stretched out as though she had been tripped up running. Toward the room everyone had been after, toward her attacker. Not away. This one is beyond me, Elaine muttered. Where is Nynaeve? Why didn't she come up with you, Matt? Nynaeve! she shouted toward the stairs. No need to shriek like a cat, Nynaeve growled, appearing in the stairwell. She was looking back over her shoulder down the stairs, though. You hold her tight, you hear me? She shrieked like a cat. She carried her hat and shook it at whoever she was shouting at. You let her get away, too, and I'll box your ears till you hear bells next year. She turned then, and her eyes nearly bulged out of her head. The lights shine on us, she breathed, hurrying to bend over Janeira. One touch, and she straightened, wincing painfully. He could have told her the woman was dead. Nynaeve seemed to take death personally. Giving herself a shake, she went on to the next. To Marla, and this time it appeared there was something she could heal. It also appeared Tamara's injuries were not simple because she knelt over her, frowning. What happened here, Matt? she demanded without looking around at him. 
Her tone made him sigh. He might have known she would decide it was his fault. Well, Matt, what happened? Will you speak up, man, or do I have to... He never learned what threat she intended to offer. Len had followed Nynaeve out of the stairwell, of course, with Sumeko right at his heels. The stout wise woman took one look at the hall and immediately lifted her skirts and ran to Rihanna. She did give Elaine one worried glance before lowering herself to her knees and beginning to move her hands over Rihanna in an odd way. That was what pulled Nynaeve up short. "'What are you doing?' she said sharply. Not halting what she was doing to Tamarla, she spared the round-faced woman only short glances, but they were as piercing as her voice. "'Where did you learn that?' Sumeka gave a start, but her hands did not stop. "'Forgive me, I said I,' she said in a breathless, disjointed rush. "'I know I'm not supposed to. She'll die if I don't—' "'I know I wasn't supposed to keep trying to—' "'I just wanted to learn, I said I. Please.' "'No, no, go on,' Nynaeve said absently. Most of her attention was fixed on the woman under her hands, but not all. "'You seem to know a few things even I—' "'That is to say, you have a very interesting way with the flows. "'I suspect you'll find that a great many sisters want to learn from you.' Half under her breath, she added, "'Maybe now they'll leave me alone.' Sumeko could not have heard that last, but what she did hear dropped her chin to her considerable chest. Her hands barely paused, though. Elaine, Nynaeve went on, would you look for the bowl, please? I suspect that door is the one. She nodded to the correct door, standing open like half a dozen others. That made Matt blink until he saw two tiny cloth-wrapped bundles lying in front of it where the looters must have dropped them. Yes, Elaine muttered. Yes, I can do that much at least. Half raising her hand toward Vannon, still on his knees, she let it fall with a sigh and strode through the doorway, which almost immediately emitted a cloud of dust and the sound of coughing. The more-than-plump wise woman had not been the only one following Nynaeve and Lan. Iaina stalked out of the stairwell, forcing the Terabonner dark friend in front of her by means of an arm twisted up into her back and a fist clutching the back of her neck. Iaina's jaw was set, her mouth tight. Her face was half-frightened certainty that she would be skinned alive for manhandling an Aes Sedai and half-determination to hold on no matter what. Nynaeve had that effect on people sometimes. The black sister was wide-eyed with terror, sagging so she surely would have fallen except for Iaina's grip. She must have been shielded, certainly, and with equal surety, she probably would have chosen being skinned to whatever was going to happen to her. Tears began leaking from her eyes, and her mouth sagged in silent sobs. Behind them came Beslan, who gave a sad sigh at the sight of Nelesian, and a sadder for the women, and then Harnan, and three of the Red Arms, Fergan, Gordoran, and Metwin. Three who had been at the front of the building. Harnan and two of the others had bloody gashes in their coats, but Nynaeve must have healed them below. They did not move as if they still had injuries. They looked very subdued, though. What happened at the back? Matt asked quietly. Burn me if I know, Harnan replied. We walked right into a knot of shoulder thumpers with knives in the dark. There was one. Moved like a snake. He shrugged, touching the blood-stained hole in his coat absentmindedly. One of them got a knife into me, and the next I remember is opening my eyes with Nynaeve Sedai bending over me. And Mendare and the others dead as yesterday's mutton. Matt nodded. 
one who moved like a snake, and got out of rooms like one too. He looked around the hallway. Rihanna and Tamarla were on their feet, straightening their dresses, of course, and Vannon peering into the room where Elaine was apparently trying out some more curses, seemingly with no more success than earlier. It was hard to tell because of the coughing. Nynaeve stood, helping up Sibella, a scrawny yellow-haired woman, and Sameko was still working on Famella, with her pale honey hair and big brown eyes. But he was never going to admire Melora's bosom again. Rihanna knelt to straighten her limbs and close her eyes, while Tamara performed the same service for Janira. Two wise women dead, and six of his red arms. Killed by a... man the power would not touch. I found it, Elaine shouted excitedly. She strode back out into the hall, holding a wide round bundle of rotted cloth she would not let Vannon take from her. Coated in gray from head to toe, she looked as if she had lain down and rolled in the dust. We have the bowl of the winds, Nynaeve. In that case, Matt announced, we are bloody well getting out of here now. Nobody argued. Oh, Nynaeve and Elaine insisted on all the men making sacks out of their jackets for things they rooted out of the room. They even loaded the wise women down, and themselves. And Rihanna had to go down and recruit men to carry their dead down the boat landing. But nobody argued. He doubted if the Rahad had ever seen as odd a procession as made its way to the river, or one that moved more quickly. Chapter 39 Promises to Keep "'We are bloody well getting out of here now,' Matt said again later, and this time there was argument. There had been argument for the past half hour, near enough. Outside, the sun was past its noon peak. The trade winds cut the heat a little. Stiff yellow curtains fastened over the tall windows bulged and snapped at gusts. Three hours back in the Tarasan Palace, the dice still bouncing in his head, and he wanted to kick something, or somebody.' He tugged at the scarf tied around his neck. It felt as though the rope that had given him the scar under that scarf was back and tightening slowly. Love of the light, are you all blind? Or just deaf? The room Tylan had provided was large, with green walls and high blue ceiling, and no furnishings but gilded chairs and small tables set with pearl shell, yet it was crowded even so. It seemed so, anyway. Tylan herself sat before one of the three marble fireplaces with her knees crossed, watching him with those dark eagle's eyes and a small smile, idly kicking her layered blue and yellow petticoats, idly toying with the jeweled hilt of her curved knife. He suspected Elaine or Nynaeve had spoken to her. They were there, too, seated to either side of the queen, somehow in clean dresses and apparently even bathed, though they had only been out of his sight for minutes at a stretch since returning to the palace. They almost matched Tylan for regal dignity in their bright silks. He was not sure who they wanted to impress with all that lace and elaborate embroidery. They looked ready for a royal ball, not a journey. He himself was still in his muck, with his dusty green coat hanging open, and the silver fox head caught in the neck of his half-undone shirt. Knotting the leather cord had shortened it, but he wanted the medallion touching his skin. He was around women who could channel, after all. Truth, those three women could probably have crowded the room by themselves. Tylan could have done it by herself, so far as he was concerned. If Nynaeve or Elaine had spoken to her, it was a very good thing that he was going. They three could have done it alone, but... 
This is preposterous, Marilella announced. I've never heard of any shadow spawn called a golem. Have any of you? That was directed to Adelius and Van Deen, Saritha and Kariana. Facing Tylen, the cool-eyed Aes Sedai serenity of all five made a fair job of turning their high-backed armchairs into thrones. He could not understand why Nynaeve and Elaine just sat like lumps, coolly serene too, but absolutely silent. They knew, they understood, and for some reason Marilla and that lot slathered their tongues with meekness for them now. Matt Cawthon, on the other hand, was a hairy-eared lout who needed to be kicked, and from Marilla on down, they were all ready to do the kicking. I saw the thing, he snapped. Elaine saw the thing. Rihanna and the wise women saw it. Ask any of them. Gathered at the end of the room, Rihanna and the five surviving wise women shrank back like huddling hens, afraid of actual questions. All but Sameko, anyway. Thumbs tucked behind her long red belt, the round woman kept frowning at the Aes Sedai, then shaking her head, frowning, and shaking her head. Nynaeve had had a considerable talk with her in the privacy of the cabin on the boat coming back, and Matt thought that had something to do with her newfound attitude. He had caught mention of Aes Sedai more than once, not that he had been trying to eavesdrop. The rest seemed to be wondering whether they should offer to fetch tea. Only Sameko had even appeared to consider the offer of a chair. Sabella, flapping bony arms in shock, had nearly fainted. "'No one denies the word of Elaine I Sedai, Master Cawthon,' said Ranila Din Kalon Bluestar, in a cool, deep voice. Even had the dignified woman in silks to match the red and yellow floor tiles not been named to him earlier, the old memories meshed into his own would have identified her as windfinder to the mistress of the ships— by the ten fat gold rings in her earlobes, those in each ear connected by a golden chain and half hidden by the narrow wings of white in her straight black hair. The medallions clustered along the finer chain that ran to her nose ring would tell him what clan she came from, among other things. So would the tattoos on her slim dark hands. "'What we question is the danger,' she continued. "'We do not like leaving the water without good cause.' Nearly twenty seafolk women stood gathered behind her chair, a riot of colorful silks and earrings and medallions on chains for the most part. The first odd thing he had noticed about them was their attitude toward the Aes Sedai. They were perfectly respectful, on the surface at any rate, but he had never before seen anyone look at Aes Sedai smugly. The second odd thing came from those other men's memories. He did not know a great deal about the seafolk from them, but enough— Every Atha'an Mier, man or woman, began as the lowest deckhand, whether they were destined one day to become the master of the blades or the mistress of the ships herself. And every step of the way between, the sea folk were sticklers for rank, to make any king or Aes Sedai look a sloven. The women behind Renala were a peculiar lot by any measure. Windfinders to wave mistresses rubbing shoulders with windfinders from Sorers, by their medallions— but two wore bright blouses of plain wool above the dark oily breeches of deckhands, each with a single thin ring in her left ear. A second and third ring in the right indicated they were being trained as windfinders, but with two more to earn, not to mention the nose ring, it would be a long while yet that either would find herself called to haul sail whenever the deckmaster needed her, and find the deckmaster's flail across her rump if she did not move quickly enough. Those two did not belong in this gathering by any memory he had, 
Normally, the windfinder to the mistress of ships would not even have spoken to one of them. "'Very much as I said, Renaila,' Marilla said, icily condescending. She had certainly noticed those smug glances. That tone did not change as she shifted her attention to him. "'Do not grow petulant, Master Cawthon. We are willing to listen to reason, if you have any.' Matt gathered patience. He hoped he could find enough. Maybe if he used both hands and both feet. Golam were created in the middle of the War of the Power, during the Age of Legends, he began from the beginning. Almost from the beginning of what Brigida had told him. He turned, facing each group of women as he spoke. Burn him if he was going to let one bunch think they were more important. Or that he was bloody pleading with them, especially since he was. They were made to assassinate Aes Sedai. No other reason. To kill people who could channel. The one power won't help you. The power won't touch a golem. In fact, they can sense the ability to channel, if they're within, say, fifty paces of you. They can feel the power in you, too. You won't know the golem until it's too late. They look just like anybody else. On the outside. Inside. Golem have no bones. They can squeeze themselves under a door. And they're strong enough to rip a door off steel hinges with one hand. Or rip out a throat. Light he should have let Nelisian stay in bed. Suppressing a shiver, he pressed on. The women, all of them, watched him, almost not appearing to blink. He would not let them see him shiver. There were only six Golam made. Three male and three female. At least, that's what they look like. Apparently even the Forsaken were a little uneasy about them. Or maybe they just decided six was enough. Either way, we know one is in Ebudar, probably kept alive since the breaking in a stasis box. We don't know if any others were put into that box, but one is more than enough. Whoever sent him, and it had to be one of the Forsaken, knew to follow us across the river. He had to have been sent after the Bull of the Winds, and by what he said to me, to kill Nynaeve or Elaine, maybe both. He spared them a quick look, soothing and sympathetic. Nobody could feel easy knowing that thing was after them. In return, he received a puzzled frown from Elaine, just the smallest wrinkling of her forehead, and from Nynaeve a slight wave of the hand, an impatient wave, to get on with it. To continue, he said, shooting the pair of them a glare, it was very hard not to sigh dealing with women. Whoever sent the golem has to know the bowl is here in the Tarasin Palace now. If he or she sends the golem here, some of you are going to die, maybe a lot of you. I can't protect all of you at once. Maybe he'll get the bowl, too. And that's on top of Felian Boda. Small chance she's alone, even with Ispan a prisoner, so that means we have the Black Aja to worry about as well. Just in case the Forsaken and the Golem aren't enough for you. Rihanna and the wise women drew themselves up even more indignantly than Marilla and her friends at the mention of the Black Aja, and the Aes Sedai, stiffening and gathering skirts, looked ready to stalk out in a huff. Press on, that was all he could do. Now... Now do you see why you all have to leave the palace and take the bull somewhere the Golam doesn't know about? Somewhere the Black Aja doesn't know? Do you see why it has to be done now? Renaila's sniff would have startled geese in the next room. 
You merely repeat yourself, Master Cawthon. Marilella, said I, says she has never heard of this Golam. Elaine, said I, says there was a strange man, a creature, but little else. What is this stasis box? You have not explained that. How do you know what you claim to know? Why should we go any further from the water than we are on the word of a man who creates fables from air? Matt looked to Nynaeve and Elaine, though with little hope. If they would only open their mouths, this could have been finished long since, but they gazed back at him, practicing expressionless Aes masks, till their jaws must be creaking. He could not understand their silence. A barebones account of events in the Rahad had been all they gave, and he was willing to bet they would not have mentioned the Black Aja at all had there been any other way to explain showing up in the palace with an Aes bound and shielded. Isban was being held in another part of the palace, her presence known only to a handful. Nynaeve had forced some concoction down her throat, a foul-smelling mix of herbs that bulged the woman's eyes going down and had her giggling and stumbling in short order, and the rest of the knitting circle occupied the room with her for guards. Unwilling guards, but very assiduous. Nynaeve had made it extremely clear that should they let Isban get away, they had best start running before she laid hands on them again. He very carefully did not look toward Brigitta, standing beside the door with Avienda. The Aiel woman wore an Ebudari dress, not the plain wool she had returned in, but a silver-gray silk riding dress that jarred with her plain-sheathed, horn-handled belt knife. Brigitta had been quick to shed her own dress for her usual short coat and wide trousers, these dark blue and dark green. A quiver already hung at her hip. She was the source of everything he knew about Golam, and stasis boxes, except what his eyes had seen in the Rahad, and he would not have revealed that on a hot grill. I read a book once that talked about, he began, and Renaila cut him off. A book, she sneered. I will not abandon the salt for a book I said I do not know. Suddenly it struck Matt that he was the only man present. Lan had gone off at Nynaeve's command, gone as tamely as Beslan had at his mother's. Tom and Julian were packing to leave, had probably finished packing by now. If there was any use to it, if they ever did leave. The only man, surrounded by a wall of women who apparently intended to let him beat his head against that wall, till his brains were scrambled. It made no sense. None. They looked at him, waiting. Nynaeve, in yellow-slashed, lace-trimmed blue, had pulled her braid over her shoulder so it hung down between her breasts. But that heavy gold ring, Lan's ring, he had learned, was carefully positioned to show anyway. Her face was smooth and her hands rested in her lap, yet sometimes her fingers twitched. Elaine, in green ebudari silk that made Nynaeve seem covered up despite the smoky lace collar under her chin, gazed back at him with eyes like cool pools of deep blue water. Her hands lay in her lap, too, but now and again she would begin to trace the thread of gold embroidery that covered her skirts, then immediately stop. Why did they not say something? Were they trying to get back at him? Was it just a case of Matt wants to be in charge so much, let him see how well he can do without us? He might have believed it of Nynaeve, any time but this anyway, but not of Elaine, not anymore. So why? Rihanna and the wise women did not huddle away from him as they did from the Aes Sedai, 
but their manner toward him had changed. Tamarla gave him a decently respectful nod. Honey-haired Famella went so far as a friendly smile. Strangely, Rihanna blushed, a pale stain. But they did not count as opposition, really. The six women had not said a dozen unprompted words between them since entering this room. Everyone would jump if Nynaeve or Elaine snapped her fingers, and keep jumping until told to stop. He turned to the rest of the Aes Sedai, faces infinitely calm, infinitely patient. Except... Marilla's eyes flickered past him toward Nynaeve and Elaine for one instant. Saritha began slowly smoothing her skirts under his gaze, seemingly unaware of doing so. A dark suspicion bloomed in his mind. Hands moving on skirts, Rihanna's blush, Birgitta's ready quiver. A murky suspicion. He did not really know of what, just that he had been going about this the wrong way. He gave Nynaeve a stern look and Elaine a sterner. Butter would not have melted on their bloody tongues. Slowly, he walked toward the seafolk. He just walked, but he heard someone with Marilella sniff, and Saritha muttered, Such insolence! Well, he was about to show them insolence. If Nynaeve and Elaine did not like it, they should have taken him into their confidence. Light, but he hated being used, especially when he did not know how or why. Stopping in front of Anila's chair, he studied the dark faces of the Athanmier women behind it before looking down to her. She frowned, stroking a knife set with moonstones thrust behind her sash. She was a handsome woman rather than pretty, somewhere in her middle years, and under different circumstances he might have enjoyed looking at her eyes. They were large black pools a man could spend an evening just gazing into. Under different circumstances. Somehow the sea folk were the fly in the cream pitcher, and he had not a clue how to pluck it out. He managed to keep his irritation under control, barely. What to bloody do? You can all channel, I understand, he said quietly, but that doesn't mean much to me. As well be straight from the start. You can ask Adelias or Vandine how much I care whether a woman can channel. Renyla looked past him toward Tylan, but it was not to the queen she spoke. Nynaeve Sadai, she said dryly, I believe there was no mention in your bargain of my having to listen to this young oakum picker. I... I don't bloody care about your bargains with anybody else, you daughter of the sands, Matt snapped. So his irritation was not that well under control. A man could only take so much. Gasps rose among the women behind her. Something over a thousand years ago... A seafolk woman had called an Asininian soldier a son of the sands just before trying to plant a blade in his ribs. The memory lay tucked inside Matt Cawthon's head now. It was not the worst insult among the Athanmier, but it came close. Renata's face gorged with blood. Hissing, eyes bulging in fury, she leaped to her feet, that moonstone-studded dagger flashing in her fist. Matt snatched it out of her hand before the blade could reach his chest and shoved her back into her chair. He did have quick hands. He could still hold on to his temper, too. No matter how many women thought they could dance him for a puppet, he could... You listen to me, you bilgestone! All right, maybe you could not hold it. Nine even Elaine needs you, or I'd leave you for the golem to crack your bones and the black Aja to pick over what's left. 
Well, as far as you're concerned, I'm the master of the blades, and my blades are bare. What that meant exactly, he had no idea, except for having once heard, when the blades are bare, even the mistress of the ships bows to the master of the blades. This is the bargain between you and me. You go where Nynaeve and Elaine want, and in return, I won't tie the lot of you across horses like pack saddles and haul you there. That was no way to go on. Not with the windfinder to the mistress of the ships. Not with a bilge boy off a broken-backed darter, for that matter. Renyla quivered with the effort of not going for him with her bare hands, and never mind her dagger in his hand. It is agreed, under the light, she growled. Her eyes nearly started out of her head. Her mouth worked, confusion and disbelief suddenly chasing one another across her face. This time, the gasps sounded as if the wind had ripped the curtains down. It is agreed, Matt said quickly, and touching fingers to his lips, he pressed them to hers. After a moment, she did the same, fingers trembling against his mouth. He held out the dagger, and she stared dully at it before taking it from him. The blade went back into its jeweled sheath. It was not polite to kill someone you had sealed the bargain with. At least, not until the terms were fulfilled. Murmurs began among the women behind her chair, rising, and Renyla stirred herself to clap her hands once. That silenced windfinders to wave mistresses as quickly as the two deckhands in training. I think I have just made a bargain with a Taviran, she said in that cool, deep voice. The woman could teach Aes Sedai how to pull themselves together quickly. But one day, Master Cawthon, if it pleases the light, I think you will walk a rope for me. He did not know what that meant, except that she made it sound unpleasant. He made his best leg. All things are possible if it pleases the light, he murmured. Courtesy paid, after all. But her smile was disturbingly hopeful. When he turned back to the rest of the room, you would have thought he had horns and wings for the stairs. Is there any further argument? he asked in a wry tone, and did not wait for answers. I thought not. In that case, I suggest you pick out some spot well away from here, and we can be on our way as soon as you bundle up your belongings. They made a show of discussion. Elaine mentioned Camelon, sounding at least half serious, and Kariana suggested several remote villages in the Black Hills, all easily reached by gateway. Light anywhere was easily reached by gateway. Van Dien spoke of Arafel, and Avienda suggested Roydian in the Aiel Waste, with the Seafolk women growing glummer the farther from the sea were the places named. All a show. To Matt, at least, that was clear by Nynaeve's impatient fiddling with her braid despite the suggestions coming hot and fast. If I may speak, I said I, Rihanna said timidly at last. She even raised her hand. The kin maintain a farm on the other side of the river, a few miles north. Everyone knows it is a retreat for women who need contemplation and quiet, but no one connects it to us. The buildings are large and quite comfortable, if there's any need to stay long, and— Yes, Nynaeve broke in. Yes, I think that sounds just the thing. What do you say, Elaine? I think it sounds wonderful, Nynaeve. I know Renyla will appreciate staying close to the sea. The other five sisters practically piled on top of her, saying how agreeable it sounded, how superior to any other suggestion. Matt rolled his eyes to the heavens. 
Tylen was a study in not seeing what lay under her nose, but Ranila snapped at it like a trout taking a lace wing. Which was the point, of course. For some reason, she was not to know that Nynaeve and Elaine had had everything arranged beforehand. She led the rest of the Seafolk women out to gather whatever belongings they had brought, before Nynaeve and Elaine could change their minds. Those two would have followed Marilla and the other Aes Sedai, but he crooked a finger at them. They exchanged glances. He would have had to talk an hour to say as much as passed in those looks. Then, somewhat to his surprise, came to him. Avienda and Brigida watched from the door, Tylen from her chair. I am very sorry to have used you, Elaine said before he could get a word out. Her smile flashed that dimple at him. We did have reasons, Matt. You must believe that. Which you do not need to know, Nynaeve put in firmly, flipping her braid back over her shoulder with a practiced toss of her head that made the gold ring bounce on her bosom. Lan must be insane. I must say I never expected you to do what you did. Whatever in the world made you think of trying to bully them? You could have ruined everything. What's life if you don't take a chance now and then, he said blithely. As well by him if they thought it was planned instead of temper. But they had used him again without telling him, and he wanted a bit back for that. Next time you have to make a bargain with the sea folk, let me make it for you. Maybe that way it won't turn out as badly as the last one. Spots of color blooming in Nynaeve's cheeks told him he had hit the mark squarely. Not bad shooting, blindfolded. Elaine, though, just murmured, A most observant subject, in tones of rueful amusement. Being in her good books might turn out less comfortable than being in her bad. They swept toward the door without letting him say more. Well, he had not really thought they would explain anything. Both were eyes to die to the bone. A man learned to live with what he had to. Tylen had all but slipped from his mind, but he had not from hers. She caught him up before he took two steps. Nynaeve and Elaine paused at the door with Avienda and Brigitte watching. So they saw when Tylen pinched his bottom. Some things nobody could learn to live with. Elaine put on a face of commiseration, Nynaeve of glowering disapproval. Avienda fought laughter none too successfully, while Brigitte wore her grin openly. They all bloody knew. Nynaeve thinks you're a little boy needing protection, Tylen breathed up at him. I know you are a grown man. Her smoky chuckle made that the dirtiest comment he had ever heard. The four women by the door got to watch his face turn beet red. I will miss you, pigeon. What you did with Renyla was magnificent. I do so admire masterful men. I'll miss you too, he muttered. To his shock, that was simple truth. He was leaving Abudar just in time. But if we meet again, I'll do the chasing. She chortled at him, and those dark eagle's eyes almost glowed. I admire masterful men, duckling, but not when they try being masterful with me. Seizing his ears, she pulled his head down where she could kiss him. He never saw Nynaeve and the others go, and he walked out on unsteady legs, tucking his shirt back in. He had returned to fetch his spear from the corner and his hat. The woman had no shame, not a scrap of it. 
He found Tom and Julen coming out of Tylen's apartments, followed by Naram and Lopin, Nelesian's stout man, who each lugged a large wicker pannier, made for a pack saddle. Loaded with his belongings, he realized. Julen carried Matt's unstrung bow and had his quiver slung on one shoulder. Well, she had said she was moving him. I found this on your pillow, Tom said, tossing him the ring he had bought what seemed a year ago. A parting gift, it seems. There were lover's knots and some other flowers strewn over both pillows. Matt jammed the ring onto his finger. It's mine, burn you. I paid for it myself. The old gleeman knuckled his mustaches and coughed in a failed effort to stifle a sudden wide grin. Julen snatched off that ridiculous Terrabonner hat and became engrossed in studying the inside of it. Blood and flaming, Matt drew a deep breath. I hope you two spared a moment for your own belongings, he said levelly, because as soon as I grab Alver, we're on our way, even if we happen to leave a moldy harp or a rusty sword-breaker behind. Julen tugged at the corner of his eye with one finger, whatever that was supposed to mean, but Tom actually frowned. Insults to Tom's flute or his harp were insults to himself. My lord, Lopin said mournfully. He was a dark, balding man, rounder than Sumeko, and his black tyrant commoner's coat, tight to the waist, then flaring, like Julin's, fit very tightly indeed. Normally almost as solemn as Nerim, now he had reddened eyes as though he had been weeping. My lord... Is there any chance I might remain to see Lord Nelesian buried? He was a good master. Matt hated saying no. Anybody left behind might be left for a long time, Lopin, he said gently. Listen, I'll need someone to help look after Oliver. Naram has his hands full with me. For that matter, Naram will go back to Talmanis, you know. If you'd like, I will take you on myself. He had grown used to having a manservant, and these were hard times for a man hunting work. I would like that very much, my lord, the fellow said lugubriously. Young Oliver reminds me much of my youngest sister's son. Only when they entered Matt's former rooms, the Lady Rosella was there, much more decently clothed than when he had last seen her, and quite alone. Why should I have kept him tied to me, she said that truly marvelous bosom heaving with emotion as she planted her fists on her hips. The queen's duckling, it seemed, was not supposed to take a snappish tone with the queen's attendants. Clip a boy's wings too far and he will never grow to a proper man. He read his pages aloud sitting on my knee. He might have read all day had I allowed it. And did his numbers, so I let him go. Why are you in such a bother? He promised to return by sunset. And he seems to set a great store by his promises. Propping the Ashandarai in its old corner, Matt told the other men to drop their burdens and go find Vannon and the remaining red arms. Then he left Rosella's spectacular bosom and ran all the way to the rooms Nynaeve and the other women shared. They were all there, in the sitting room, and so was Lan, with his warder's cloak already draped down his back and saddlebags on his shoulders. His saddlebags and Nynaeve's, it seemed. A good many bundles of dresses and not-so-small chests stood about the floor— Matt wondered if they would make Lan carry those, too. "'Of course you have to go find him, Matt Cawthon,' Nynaeve said. "'Do you think we would just abandon the child?' "'To hear her, you would have thought that was exactly what he had intended.' Suddenly he was deluged with offers of help, 
not just Nynaeve and Elaine proposing to put off going to the farm, but Lan and Brigitte and Avienda offering to join the search. Lan was stone cold about it, grim as ever, but Brigitte and Avienda... My heart would break if anything happened to that boy, Brigitte said, and Avienda added, just as warmly, I have always said you do not care for him properly. Matt ground his teeth. In the streets of the city, Alvar might well elude eight men until he appeared back at the palace at sunset. He did keep his promises, but small chance he would give up one moment of freedom he did not have to. More eyes would mean a quicker search, especially if all the wise women were brought into it. For the space of three heartbeats, he hesitated. He had his own promises to keep, though he was wise enough not to put it that way. The bowl is too important, he told them. That golem is still out there, and maybe Mogedian, and the Black Aja for sure. The dice thundered in his head. Avienda would not appreciate being lumped in with Nynaeve and Elaine, but he did not care right then. He addressed Lan and Brigitta. Keep them safe until I can reach you. Keep all of them safe. Startlingly, Avienda said, We will, I promise. She fingered the hilt of her knife. Apparently, she did not understand she was one of those to be kept safe. Nynaeve and Elaine did. Nynaeve's sudden glare tried to bore a hole through his skull. He expected her to yank on her braid, but strangely, her hand only fluttered toward it before being put firmly to her side. Elaine contented herself with raising her chin, those big blue eyes frosty. No dimple here. Lan and Brigida understood, too. Nynaeve is my life. Lan said simply, putting a hand on her shoulder. The odd thing was, she suddenly looked very sad, and then, just as suddenly, her jaw set as though she was preparing to walk through a stone wall and make a large hole. Brigitte gave Elaine a fond look, but it was to Matt she spoke. I will, she said. Honor's truth. Matt tugged at his coat uncomfortably. He still was not sure how much he had told her while drunk. Light, but the woman could soak it up like dry sand. Even so, he gave the proper response for a Barashandin lord, accepting her pledge. The honor of blood, the truth of blood. Brigitte nodded, and from the startled looks he received from Nynaeve and Elaine, she still kept his secrets close. Light, if any eye said I ever found out about those memories, they might as well know he had blown the horn as well. Foxhead or no foxhead, they would stretch him out till they dug out every last why and how. As he was turning to go, Nynaeve caught his sleeve. Remember the storm, Matt. It's going to break soon, I know it. You take care of yourself, Matt Cawthon. Do you hear me? Tylan has directions for the farm when you get back with Oliver. Nodding, he made his escape, the dice in his head like echoes of his running boots. Was it during this search that he was supposed to take care of himself, or while getting the directions from Tylan? Nynaeve and her listening to the wind. Did she think a little rain was going to melt him? Come to think, once they used the bowl of the winds, it would rain again. It seemed years since rain last fell. Something tugged at his thoughts, something about the weather, and Elaine, which made no sense, but he shrugged it off. One thing at a time, and the one thing right now, was Alver. The men were all waiting in the Red Arm's long room near the stables, everyone on their feet except Vannon, who lay sprawled on one of the beds with his fingers laced over his belly. Vannon said a man had to take rest when he could. 
He swung his boots over and sat up when Matt entered, though. He cared about Oliver as much as the others did. Matt was just afraid the man was going to start teaching him how to steal horses and poach pheasants. Seven sets of eyes focused on Matt intently. Rosella said Oliver's wearing his red coat, he told them. He gives them away sometimes, but any urchin you see in a good red coat probably knows where Oliver last was. Everybody goes in a different direction. Make loops out from the Malhara and try to be back after about an hour. Wait till everybody is back before you go out again. That way, if somebody finds him, the rest of us won't still be looking tomorrow. Does everybody understand? They nodded. Sometimes it amazed him. Lanky Tom, with his white hair and mustaches, who had been a queen's lover once, and more willingly than himself, not to mention more than a lover, if you believed half he said. Square-jawed Harnon, with that tattoo on his cheek, and more elsewhere, who had been a soldier all his life. Julian, with his bamboo staff and his sword-breaker on his hip, who thought himself as good as any lord, even if the idea of carrying a sword himself still made him uneasy. And Fat Vannon, who made Julian look a bootlicker by comparison. Skinny Fergan and Gordoran, nearly as wide in the shoulders as Perrin, and Metwin, whose pale Carrianan face still looked like a boy's despite being years older than Matt. Some of them followed Matt Cawthon because they thought he was lucky, because his luck might keep them alive when the swords were out. And some for reasons he was not really sure of, but they followed. Not even Tom had ever more than protested an order of his. Maybe Renala had been more than luck. Maybe his being Tavirin did more than dump him in the middle of trouble. Suddenly he felt responsible for these men. It was an uncomfortable feeling. Matt Cawthon and responsibility did not go together. It was unnatural. Take care of yourselves and look sharp, he said. You know what's out there. There's a storm coming. Now why had he said that? Move! We're wasting light. The wind still blew strongly, sweeping dust across the Mulhalla Square, with its statue of a long-dead queen posing above the fountain, but there was no other sign of a storm. Nareen had been noted for her honesty, but not enough to have been depicted completely bare-chested. The afternoon sun burned high in a sky without a cloud, but people rushed through the square as quickly as they had in the morning cool. That was gone, wind or no, down here on the ground. The paving stones seemed to griddle under his boots. Glaring across the square at the wandering woman, Matt headed toward the river. Oliver had not gone off with the street urchins half as often while they were staying at the inn. He had been too content ogling the serving girls and Satala Anand's daughters. So much for the dice telling him he had to move into the palace. Anything he had done since leaving, anything he wanted to do, he amended, thinking of Tylan and her eyes and her hands. Any of it could have been done just as well from there. Those dice spun now, and he wished they would just go away. He tried to move quickly, dodging impatiently around trundling carts and wagons, cursing at lacquered sedan chairs and coaches that nearly ran him down, eyes darting in search of a red coat close to the ground, but the bustle in the streets slowed him to a meander, which was just as well in truth. No point dashing by the boy without seeing him. Wishing he had brought Pips out of the palace stables, he frowned at the people streaming past. 
A man on horseback could have moved no faster in the throng, but up in the saddle he could have seen farther. Then again, asking questions from a saddle would have been awkward. Not many folk actually rode inside the city, and some people had a tendency to shy away from anyone on a horse. Always the same question. The first time he asked was at a bridge just below the Malhara, of a fellow selling honey-baked apples from a tray hanging from a strap around his neck. Have you seen a boy about so high in a red coat? Over light sweets. Boy, my lord, the fellow said, sucking his few remaining teeth. Seen a thousand boys. Don't remember no coat, though. Would my lord like one apple or two? He scooped up two with bony fingers and pushed them at Matt. The way they gave under his fingers, they were softer than any baking could account for. Did my lord hear about the riot? No. Matt said sourly, and pushed on. At the other end of the bridge, he stopped a plump woman with a tray of ribbons. Ribbons held no fascination for Oliver, but her red petticoats flashed beneath the skirt sewn up nearly to her left hip, and the cut of her bodice revealed rounded cleavage to equal Rosella's. Have you seen a boy? He heard about the riot from her, too, and from half the people he asked. That rumor, he suspected, had begun with events at a certain house in the Rahad that very morning. A wagon driver with her long whip coiled around her neck even told him the ride had been across the river, once she allowed, as how she never noticed boys unless they ran under her mules. A square-faced man who sold honeycomb, incredibly dry-looking honeycomb, said the riot had been down near the light tower at the end of the bay road, on the eastern side of the mouth of the bay, which was about as likely a place for riding as the middle of the bay itself. There were always a thousand rumors in any city if you listened, and he was forced to listen to snatches of all of them, it seemed. One of the most remarkably pretty women he had ever seen, standing outside a tavern, Maylin was a serving girl at the Old Sheep, but her only task seemed to be standing outside to attract customers, which she certainly did, told him there had been a battle that morning in the Cordes Hills, west of the city, she thought. Or maybe in the Rano Hills, across the bay. Or maybe... Remarkably pretty, Maylin, but not very bright. Oliver might have watched her for hours, so long as she never opened her mouth. But she could not remember seeing any boy in a... What color coat had he said again? He heard about riots and battles. He heard about enough strange things seen in the sky or the hills to populate the blight. He heard that the Dragon Reborn was about to descend on the city with thousands of men who could channel, that the Aiel were coming, an army of Aes Sedai. No, it was an army of white cloaks. Pedra Nile was dead and the children intended to avenge him, though why in Abu Dar was not exactly clear. You might have thought the city would be hip-deep in panic with all the tales floating around, but the fact was, even those who told a tale usually only half-believed it. So he heard all sorts of nonsense, but not a word about any boy in a red coat. A few streets from the river, he began hearing thunder, great hollow booms that seemed to roll in from the sea. People looked up curiously at the cloudless sky, scratched their heads, and went on about their business. So did he questioning every seller of sweets or fruit he saw, and every pretty woman afoot. All to no avail. Reaching the long stone quay that ran the whole length of the river side of the city, he paused, studying the gray docks stretching out into the river, and the ships tied to them. The wind blew strong, heaving vessels at their mooring lines, grinding them against the stone docks despite the bags stuffed with wool hung down between for fenders. 
Unlike horses, ships did not interest Olver except as a way to go from here to there, and ships were men's business in Ebudar, even if the lading they carried often was not. Women on these docks would either be merchants keeping an eye on their goods or hard-armed members of the Cargo Loaders Guild, and there would be no sweet sellers here. About to turn away, he realized almost no one was moving. The docks usually bustled, yet on every ship he could see, crewmen lined the rails and had climbed into the rigging to stare toward the bay. Barrels and crates stood abandoned, while shirtless men and wiry women in green leather vests crowded together at the ends of the docks to peer between the ships south toward the thunder. Down that way, black smoke rose in thick towering columns, slanting sharply north on the wind. Hesitating only a moment, he trotted out along the nearest dock. At first, ships tied to the long fingers of stone to the south blocked his view of anything except the smoke. Because of the way the shoreline lay, though, each dock stuck out farther than the next down. Once he pushed into the murmuring crowd at the end, the broad river made an open path of choppy green water to the wave-tossed bay. At least two dozen ships were burning out on the wide expanse of the bay, maybe more, engulfed in flame from end to end. A number of others had already settled, only a bow or stern still above water, and that sliding under. Even as he looked, the bow of a broad two-masted ship flying a large banner of red and blue and gold, the banner of Altara, suddenly flew apart with a roar, a boom-like thunder, and fast-thickening tendrils of smoke wafted away in the wind as the vessel began settling by the head. Hundreds of vessels were in motion. Every craft in the bay, three-masted seafolk rakers and skimmers and two-masted soarers, coastal ships with their triangular sails, river ships under sail or sweep, some fleeing upriver, most trying to beat out to sea. Scores of other ships swanned into the bay before the wind, great bluff-bowed vessels as tall as any of the rakers, crashing through the rolling waves, throwing aside spray. His breath caught as he suddenly made out square-ribbed sails. "'Blood and bloody ashes,' he muttered in shock. "'It's the flaming Sean-chan!' "'Who?' demanded a stern-faced woman crowded next to him. A dark blue woolen dress of fine cut marked her a merchant as much as did the leather folder she carried for her bills of lading, or the guild pin over one breast, a silver quill pen. "'It's the Aes Sedai,' she announced in tones of conviction. "'I know channeling when I see it. The children of the light will do for them just as soon as they arrive. You'll see.' A lanky, gray-haired woman in a grimy green vest twisted around to confront her, fingering the wooden hilt of her dagger. "'Hold your tongue about Aes Sedai, you flaming penny-grubber, or I'll peel you and stuff a white cloak down your bleeding gullet!' Matt left them waving their arms and shouting at one another, and pushed clear of the crowd, running from the quay. Already he could see three, no, four, huge creatures circling over the city to the south on great pinions, like those of a bat— Figures clung to the creature's backs, apparently in some sort of saddles. Another flying creature appeared, and more. Below them, flames suddenly fountained above the rooftops with a roar. People ran now, buffeting Matt as he struggled through the streets. "'Olver!' he shouted, hoping to be heard above the other shouts from every side, and the screams. "'Olver!' Abruptly, everybody seemed to be heading the other way, battering past him. Stubbornly, he forced on against the tide, and came to a street where what all those folk fled from was made plain. A Shonchan column rushed by, 
a hundred or more men in helmets like insects' heads, and armor of overlapping plates, all riding animals like cats the size of horses, but covered in bronze scales rather than fur. Leaning forward in their saddles, blue-streamered lances slanted, they galloped toward the Malhara without looking to either side. Though gallop was not quite the word for the way those creatures moved, the speed was right, but they... flowed. It was time to be gone, past time. As soon as he found... As the end of the column went by, a flash of red, waist-high, caught his eye among the crowd in the street beyond the intersection. Over! He darted across, almost on the heels of the last scaled creature, pushing into the crowd in time to see a wide-eyed woman snatch up a little girl in a red dress and run with the child clutched to her bosom. Wildly, Matt pressed ahead, shouldering people aside when they bumped into him, bumping into more than a few himself. Alver! Alver! Twice more he saw a column of fire rise briefly above the rooftops, and smoke drifted to the sky in a dozen places. Several times he heard those booming roars, much closer than the bay now. Inside the city, he was sure. More than once the ground quivered beneath his boots. And then the street was clearing again, people fleeing in every direction, down alleys and into houses and shops, for Sean Chan and horses were coming. Not all were armored men. Near the head of that small thicket of lances rode a dark woman in a blue dress. Matt knew the large red panels on her skirts and bosom were worked with silver lightning. A silver leash, gleaming in the sun, ran from her left wrist to the neck of a woman in gray, a demoni, who trotted beside the Suldam's horse like a pet dog. He had seen more of Shanchan at Falma than he wanted to, but unconsciously he paused at the mouth of an alleyway, watching. The roars and fires had showed that somebody in the city was trying to fight back, at least, and now he was going to see such an attempt. The Sean Chan were not the only reason everyone else had gotten out of sight. At the other end of the street, a good hundred mounted men swung long-pointed lances down. They wore baggy white breeches and green coats, and the gold cords on the officer's helmet glittered. With a collective shout, a hundred or more of Thailand's soldiers hurled themselves toward the city's attackers. They outnumbered the Sean Chan in front of them by at least two to one. Bloody fools, Matt muttered. Not like that. That Suldam will... The only movement among the Shan Chan was the woman in the lightning-marked dress, raising her hand to point, as one might launch a hawk or send off a hound. The golden-haired woman at the other end of the silvery leash took a small step forward. The fox-head medallion cooled against his chest. Underneath the head of the Ebudari charge, the street suddenly erupted, paving stones in men and horses flying into the air with a deafening roar. The concussion knocked Matt flat on his back, or maybe it was the way the ground seemed to leap from under his feet. He pulled himself up in time to see the front of an inn across the way suddenly collapse into the street in a cloud of dust exposing the rooms within. Men and horses lay everywhere, pieces of men and horses, those still alive thrashing, around a hole in the ground half as wide as the street. Screams from the wounded filled the air. Fewer than half the Abudari staggered to their feet, dazed and stumbling. Some seized up the reins of horses, as wobbly-legged as they, heaving themselves into saddles, kicking the animals into some semblance of a run. Others just ran afoot, all away from the Shanchan. Steel they could face, but not this. Running, Matt realized, seemed a particularly fine idea right then. A glance back down the alley showed dust and rubble piled at least a story high. 
He darted down the street ahead of the fleeing Abu Dhari, keeping as close to the walls as possible, hoping none of the Shonchan would think he was one of Thailand's soldiers. He should never have worn a green coat. The Suldam apparently was not satisfied. The foxhead went cool again, and from behind another roar hammered him to the pavement, pavement that jumped up to meet him. Through the ringing in his ears, he heard masonry groan. Above him, the white-plastered brick wall began leaning outward. What happened to my bloody luck? he shouted. He had time for that, and just time to realize as brick and timbers crashed down on him that the dice in his head had just stopped dead. Chapter 40 Spears Mountains rose all around Galena Kasban, little more than large hills behind, but snow-capped peaks ahead and higher peaks beyond those, yet she really saw none of them. The stones of the slope bruised her bare feet. She panted, lungs laboring already. The sun baked overhead as it had for seemingly endless days, burning the sweat out of her in rivers. Anything other than putting one foot in front of the other seemed beyond her. Strange that with all the sweat coming out of her, she could not find any moisture in her mouth. She had been eyes Sedai fewer than ninety years, her long black hair untouched as yet by grey, but for nearly twenty of those she had been head of the Red Aja, called the highest by other Red sisters in private, considered by other Reds equal to the Amerlin seat, and for all but five of the years she had worn the shawl, she had been of the Black Aja in truth. Not to the exclusion of her duties as a Red, but superior to them. Her place on the Supreme Council of the Black Aja was next to that of Alviarin herself, and she was one of only three who knew the name of the woman who led their hooded meetings. She could speak any name in those meetings, a king, and know that name belonged to the dead. It had happened with a king and with a queen. She had helped to break two Amerlins, twice helped turn the most powerful woman in the world into a squealing wretch, eager to tell all she knew had helped make it seem that one of those had died in her sleep and had seen the other deposed and stilled. Such things were a duty, like the need to exterminate men with the ability to channel, not actions she took pleasure in beyond that of tasks well done, but she had enjoyed leading the circle that stilled Swan Sanche. Surely all those things meant that Galina Kasban was herself among the mightiest of the world, among the most powerful. Surely they did. They must. Her legs wavered like springs that had lost their tempering, and she fell heavily, unable to catch herself with arms and elbows tightly bound behind her. The once white silk shift, the only garment left to her, tore again as she slid on the loose rocks, scraping her welts. A tree stopped her. Face pressed against the ground, she began to sob. How, she moaned in a thick voice, how can this happen to me? After a time, she realized that she had not been pulled to her feet. No matter how often she fell, she had never before been allowed a moment's respite. Blinking away tears, she raised her head. Aiel women covered the mountainside, several hundred of them scattered among the barren trees with their spears, the veils they could raise in an instant hanging down their chests. Galena wanted to laugh. Maidens. They called these monstrous women maidens. She wished she could laugh. At least there were no men present, a small mercy. 
Men made her skin crawl, and if one could see her now, less than half clothed. Anxiously, her eyes sought for Tarava, but most of the seventy or so wise ones stood together looking at something farther up the slope, blocking her view. There seemed to be a murmur of voices from the front of them. Maybe the wise ones were conferring about something. Wise ones. They had been brutally efficient in teaching her the correct names. Never just Aiel woman, and never wilder. They could smell contempt however she hid it. Of course you did not have to try hiding what had been seared out of you. Most of the wise ones were looking away, but not all. The glow of Sidar surrounded a young, pretty, red-haired woman with a delicate mouth who watched Galena with large, intent blue eyes. Perhaps as a sign of their own disdain, they had chosen the weakest of their number to shield her this morning. Mikara was not truly weak in the power. None of them were that. But even smarting from shoulders to knees as she was, Galena could have broken Mikara's shield with little effort. A muscle in her cheek spasmed uncontrollably, it always did when she thought of another escape attempt. The first had been bad enough. The second... Shuddering, she fought not to sob again. She would not make the attempt again until she was sure of complete success. Very sure. Absolutely sure. The mass of wise ones parted, turning to follow Terava with their eyes as the hawk-faced woman strode toward Galena. Suddenly panting once more with apprehension, Galena tried to struggle to her feet. Hands bound and muscles watery, she had only reached her knees when Terava bent over her, necklaces of ivory and gold clattering softly. Seizing a handful of Galena's hair, Terava forced her head back sharply. Taller than most men, the woman did that even when they were standing, craning Galena's neck painfully to make her look up into the wise one's face. Terava was somewhat stronger in the power than she, which relatively few women were, but that was not what made Galena tremble. Cold, deep blue eyes stabbed into her own, held her more tightly than Terava's rough hand. They seemed to strip her soul naked as easily as the wise one handled her. She had not begged yet, not when they made her walk all day with hardly a drop of water, not when they forced her to keep up as they ran for hours, not even when their switches made her howl. Terava's cruel, hard face, staring down at her impassively, made her want to beg. Sometimes she woke at night, stretched out tight between the four stakes where they bound her, woke whimpering from dreams that her whole life would be lived under Terava's hands. She is collapsing already, the wise one said in a voice like stone. Water her and bring her. Turning away, she adjusted her shawl. Galina Kazban forgotten until there was a need to recall her. To Tarava, Galina Kazban was less important than a stray dog. Galina did not try to rise. She had been watered often enough by now. It was the only way they let her drink. Aching for moisture, she did not resist when a blocky maiden took her by the hair as Tarava had and pulled her head back. She just opened her mouth as far as she could. Another maiden, with a puckered scar slanting across nose and cheek, tilted a water skin and slowly poured a trickle into Galena's waiting mouth. The water was flat and warm. It was delicious. She swallowed convulsively, awkwardly, holding her jaws wide. Almost as much as water to drink, she wanted to move her face under that thin stream to let it run over her cheeks and forehead. 
Instead, she kept her head very steady so that every drop went down her throat. Spilling water was cause for another beating. They had thrashed her inside of a creek six paces wide for spilling a mouthful over her chin. When the waterskin was finally taken away, the blocky maiden hauled her to her feet by her bound elbows. Galena groaned. The wise ones were gathering their skirts over their arms, exposing their legs well above soft knee-high boots. They could not be going to run. Not again. Not in these mountains. The wise ones loped forward as easily as if on level ground. An unseen maiden cut Galena across the back of her thighs with a switch, and she stumbled to a semblance of a run, half dragged by the blocky maiden. The switch slashed her legs whenever they faltered. If this run continued the rest of the day, they would take turns, one maiden wielding the stick and another dragging. Laboring up slopes and nearly sliding down, Galena ran. A tawny mountain cat, striped in shades of brown and heavier than a man, snarled at them from a rocky ledge above. A female, lacking the tufts on her ears and the wide cheeks. Galena wanted to shout at her to flee, to run before Tarava caught her. The Aiel ran on by the snarling animal unconcerned, and Galena wept with jealousy for the cat's freedom. She would be rescued eventually, of course. She knew that. The tower would not allow a sister to remain in captivity. Elida would not allow a red to be held. Surely Alviarin would send rescue. Someone would, anyone, to save her from these monsters, especially from Terava. She would promise anything for that deliverance. She would even keep those promises. She had been broken free of the three oaths on joining the Black Aja, replacing them with a new trinity but at that moment she truly believed she would keep her word if it brought rescue. Any promise to anyone who would free her, even a man. By the time low tents appeared, their dark colors fading into the forested mountainsides as well as the cat had, Galena had two maidens supporting her, pulling her along. Shouts rose from every side, glad cries of greeting, but Galena was dragged on behind the wise ones, deeper into the camp, still running, stumbling. Without warning, the hands left her arms. She pitched forward on her face and lay there with her nose in the dirt and dead leaves, sucking air through her gaping mouth. She coughed on a piece of leaf, but she was too weak to turn her head. The blood pounded her ears, but voices came to her and slowly began to make sense. Took your time, Tarava, a familiar-sounding woman's voice said. Nine days. We have been back long since. Nine days? Galena shook her head, scrubbing her face on the ground. Since the Aiel had shot her horse from under her, memory blended all the days into a melange of thirst and running and being beaten, but surely it had been longer ago than nine days. Weeks, certainly. A month or more. Bring her in, the familiar voice said impatiently. Hands pulled her up, shoved her forward, bending her to go under the edge of a large tent with the sides raised all around. She was thrown down on layered carpets, the edge of a red and blue tyran maze overlapping gaudy flowers beneath her nose. With difficulty, she raised her head. At first, she saw nothing but Savannah, seated on a large yellow-tasseled cushion in front of her. Savannah, with her hair like fine-spun gold, her clear emerald eyes, 
Treacherous Savannah, who had given her word to distract attention by raiding into Kyrian, then broken her pledge by trying to free Althor. Savannah, who at the least might take her from Terava's clutches. She struggled up onto her knees and for the first time realized there were others in the tent. Terava sat on a cushion to Savannah's right, at the head of a curving line of wise ones, fourteen women who could channel in all, though Mikara, who still held the shield on her, stood at the foot of the line rather than sitting. Half of them had been among the wise ones who captured her with such scornful ease. She would never again be so careless about wise ones. Never again. Short, pale-faced men and women in white robes moved behind the wise ones, wordlessly offering trays of gold or silver with small cups, and more did the same on the other side of the tent, where a gray-haired woman in an aiel coat and breeches of brown and gray sat to Savannah's left, at the head of a line of twelve stone-faced aiel men. Men. And she wore nothing but her shift, ripped and gaping in a number of places. Galena clamped her teeth shut to stifle a scream. She forced her back stiff to keep from trying to burrow into the rugs and hide from those cold male eyes. It seems that Aes Sedai can lie, Savannah said, and the blood drained from Galena's face. The woman could not know. She could not. You made pledges, Galena Kazban, and broke them. Did you think you could murder a wise one and then run beyond the reach of our spears? For a moment, relief froze Galena's tongue. Savannah did not know about the Black Aja. Had she not abandoned the light long ago, she would have thanked the light. Relief stilled her tongue and a tiny spark of indignation. They attacked Aes Sedai and were angry when some of them died? A tiny spark was all she could manage. After all, what was Savannah's twisting facts alongside days of beatings and Tarava's eyes? A pained, croaking laugh bubbled up at the absurdity of it. Her throat was so dry. Be thankful some of you still live, she managed past her laughter. Even now it is not too late to rectify your mistakes, Savannah. With an effort she swallowed rueful mirth before it turned to tears, just before. When I return to the White Tower I will remember those who assist me, even now, she would have added, and those who do otherwise, but Tirava's unwavering stare set fear fluttering in her middle. For all she knew, Tirava still might be allowed to do whatever she wished. There had to be some way to induce Savannah to take charge of her. That tasted bitter, yet anything was better than Tarava. Savannah was ambitious and greedy. In the midst of frowning at Galena, she had caught sight of her own hand and directed a brief admiring smile at rings set with large emeralds and fire drops. She wore rings on half her fingers and necklaces of pearls and rubies and diamonds fit for any queen draped across the swell of her bosom. Savannah could not be trusted, but perhaps she could be bought. Tarava was a force of nature, as well try to buy a flood or an avalanche. I trust that you will do what is right, Savannah, she finished. The rewards of friendship with the White Tower are great. For a long moment there was silence except for the whisper of the white robes as the servants moved with their trays. Then... You are Datsang, Savannah said. 
Galena blinked. She was a despised one? Certainly they had displayed their contempt plainly, but why? You are Datsung, a round-faced wise one she did not know intoned. And a woman a hand taller than Tarava repeated, You are Datsung. Tarava's hawk-like face might have been carved from wood, yet her eyes fixed on Galena glittered accusingly. Galena felt nailed to the spot where she knelt, unable to move a muscle. A hypnotized bird watching a serpent slither nearer. No one had ever made her feel that way. No one. Three wise ones have spoken. Savannah's satisfied smile was almost welcoming. Tarava's face was stark. The woman did not like whatever had just happened. Something had happened, even if Galena did not know what. Except that it appeared to have delivered her from Tarava. That was more than enough for the moment. More than enough. When maidens cut her bounds and stuffed her into a black wool robe, she was so grateful she almost did not care that they tore off the remnants of her shift first, in front of those ice-eyed men. The thick wool was hot and itchy and scratchy on her welts, and she welcomed it as though it were silk. Despite Mikara still shielding her, she could have laughed as the maidens led her out of the tent. It did not take long for that desire to vanish entirely. It did not take her long to begin wondering whether begging on her knees before Savannah would do any good. She would have done it, could she have gotten to the woman, except that Mikara made it plain she was not going anywhere she was not told to go, or speak a word unless spoken to. Arms folded, Savannah watched the eyes Sedai, the Datsang, stagger down the mountainside and stop, beside a maiden squatting on her heels with a switch, to drop the head-shaped stone she had been carrying in her hands. The black hood turned in Savannah's direction for a moment, but the Datsang quickly bent to pick up another large stone and turned to labor back up the fifty paces to where Mikara waited with another maiden. There she dropped that stone, picked up another, and started back down. Datsang were always shamed with useless labor. Unless there was great need, the woman would not be allowed to carry even a cup of water, yet toil without purpose would fill her hours till she burst of shame. The sun had a long way to climb yet, and many more days lay ahead. I did not think she would condemn herself out of her own mouth, Riala said at Savannah's shoulder. Ephalin and the others are all but sure she openly admitted killing Desane. She is mine, Savannah. Tarava's jaw tightened. She might have taken the woman, but Datsang belonged to no one. I intended to dress her in Gaishine robes of silk, she muttered. What is the purpose of this, Savannah? I expected to have to argue against cutting her throat, not this. Riala tossed her head, casting a sidelong glance at Savannah. Savannah intends to break her. We have had long talks of what to do should we capture any eyes to die. Savannah wants a tame Aes Sedai to wear white and serve her. An Aes Sedai in black will do well enough, though. Savannah shifted her shawl, irritated by the woman's tone. Not quite mocking, but all too aware that she wanted somehow to use the Aes Sedai's channeling as though it were Savannah's own. It would be possible. Two guys shine past the three wise ones, carrying a large brass-strapped chest between them. Short and pale-faced, husband and wife, they had been lord and lady in the tree-killer's lands. The pair bowed their heads more meekly than any Aeel in white ever could have managed. 
Their dark eyes were tight with fear of a harsh word, much less a switch. Wetlanders could be tamed like horses. The woman is tamed already, Tarava grumbled. I have looked into her eyes. She is a bird fluttering in the hand and afraid to fly. In nine days, Riala said incredulously, and Savannah shook her head vigorously. She is eyes Sedai, Tarava. You saw her face go pale with fury when I accused her. You heard her laugh as she spoke of killing wise ones. She made a vexed, angry sound. And you heard her threaten us. The woman had been as slippery as the tree killers, speaking of rewards and letting the threat, if no rewards came, shout silently. But what else could be expected of Aes Sedai? It will take long to break her, but this Aes Sedai will beg to obey if it takes a year. Once she did that, Aes Sedai could not lie, of course. She had expected Galena to deny her accusation. Once she swore to obey... If you want to make an Aes Sedai obey you, a man's voice said behind her, this might help. Incredulous, Savannah spun about to find Kadar standing there, and beside him the woman, the Aes Sedai, Masia, both dressed in dark silk and fine lace as they had been six days ago, each with a bulging sack hanging incongruously from one shoulder by a strap. Kadar held out a smooth white rod about a foot long in one dark hand. How did you come here? she demanded, then compressed her lips in anger. Plainly he had come as he had before. She was just surprised at him appearing here in the middle of the camp. She snatched the white rod he offered, and as always he stepped back beyond arm's reach. Why have you come? she amended. What is this? A little slimmer than her wrist, the rod was smooth except for a few odd flowing symbols incised on one flat end. It felt not quite like ivory, not quite like glass, very cool to the touch. You might call it an oath rod, Kadar said, showing teeth in what was doubtless meant for a smile. It only came into my hands yesterday, and I immediately thought of you. Savannah clamped her hands tight around the rod to keep from hurling it away. Everyone knew what the Aes Sedai's oath rod did. Trying not even to think, much less speak, she thrust it behind her belt and took her hands away. Riala frowned at the rod at Savannah's waist, and her eyes rose slowly, coldly, to Savannah's face. Tarava adjusted her shawl in a clatter of bracelets and gave her a hard, thin smile. There would never be any chance of one of them touching the rod, and maybe no chance of any other wise one doing so either. But there was still Galina Caspan. One day she would break. Raven-eyed Masia, a little behind Kadar, smiled almost as faintly as Terava. She had seen and understood. She was observant for a wetlander. Come, Savannah told Kadar. We will drink tea in my tent. She certainly would not share water with him. Lifting her skirts, she started up the slope. To her surprise, Kadar was also observant. All you need do is have your eyes to die. Walking easily beside her on his long legs, he grinned suddenly, toothily, at Riala and Tarava. Or any woman who can channel, hold the rod and speak whatever promises you wish, while someone channels a little spirit into the number. The marks on the end of the rod, he added, raising his eyebrows insultingly. You can use it to release her, too, but that is more painful. Or so I understand. 
Savannah's fingers touched the rod lightly, more glass than ivory and very cool. It only works on women? She ducked into the tent ahead of him. The wise ones and the leaders of the warrior societies were gone, but the dozen tree-killer Guy Shine remained, kneeling patiently to one side. No one person had ever kept a dozen Guy Shine before, and she possessed more. There would have to be a new name for them, though, since they would never put off the white. Women who can channel Savannah, Kadar said, following her in. The man's tone was incredibly insolent. His dark eyes shone with open amusement. You will have to wait until you have Althor before I give you what will control him. Removing the sack from his shoulder, he sat. Not on a cushion near hers, of course. Macia was not afraid of a blade in her ribs. She lounged on an elbow almost at Savannah's side. Savannah eyed her sideways, then casually undid another lace of her own blouse. She did not recall the woman's bosom being as round as that. For that matter, her face seemed even more beautiful as well. Savannah tried not to grind her teeth. Of course, Kadar went on. If you mean some other man, there is a thing called a binding chair. Binding people who cannot channel is more difficult than binding those who can. Perhaps a binding chair survived the breaking, but you will have to wait while I find it. Savannah touched the rod again, then impatiently ordered one of the Gaishine to bring tea. She could wait. Kadar was a fool. Sooner or later he would give her everything she wanted of him, and now the rod could break Macia free of him. Surely then the woman would not protect him. For his insults he would wear black. Savannah took a small green porcelain cup from the tray the Gaishine held and gave it to the Aes Sedai with her own hands. It is flavored with mint, Macia. You will find it refreshing. The woman smiled, but those black eyes... Well, what could be done to one eyes, Sedai, could be done to two or more. What of the traveling boxes? Savannah demanded curtly. Kadar waved the Gaishine away and patted the sack beside him. I brought as many Narbaha, that is what they were called... As many as I could find. Enough to transport all of you by nightfall if you hurry. And I would if I were you. Althor means to finish you, it seems. Two clans are coming up from the south and two more are moving to come down from the north, with their wise ones all ready to channel. Their orders are to stay until every last one of you is dead or a prisoner. Tarava sniffed. A reason to move, certainly, Wetlander, but not to run. Even four clans cannot sweep Kinslayer's dagger in a day. Didn't I say? Kadar's smile was not at all pleasant. It seems Althor has bound some Aes Sedai to him too, and they have taught the wise ones how to travel without a Narbaha, over short distances at least, twenty or thirty miles. A recent discovery, it seems. They could be here, well, today. All four clans... Maybe he lied, yet the risk. Savannah could imagine all too well being in Cerulea's grip. Not allowing herself to shiver, she sent Riala to inform the other wise ones. Her voice betrayed nothing. Reaching into his bag, Kadar drew out a grey stone cube, smaller than the call box she had used to summon him and much plainer, with no marking but a bright red disc set in one face. 
This is a Narbaha, he said. It uses Sidene, so none of you will see anything, and it has limits. If a woman touches it, it won't work for days afterward, so I will have to hand them out myself. And it has other limits. Once opened, the gateway will remain for a fixed time, sufficient for a few thousand to go through if they don't waste time, and the Narbaha needs three days to recover afterward. I have enough extra to carry us where we need to go today, but... Tarava leaned forward so intently she looked about to fall over, but Savannah hardly listened. She did not doubt Kadar exactly. He would not dare betray them, not while he hungered for the gold the Shido would give him. There were small things, though. Macia seemed to study him over her tea. Why? And if there was such need for speed, why was there no urgency in his voice? He would not betray, but she would take precautions anyway. Merrick frowned at the stone cube the wetlander had given him, then at the hole that had appeared when he pressed the red spot. A hole five paces wide and three high in midair. Beyond lay rolling hills, not low, covered with brown grass. He did not like things to do with the one power, especially the male part of it. Savannah stepped through another smaller hole, with the wetlander and a dark woman, following the wise ones Savannah and Riala had chosen out. Only a handful of wise ones remained with the Moshen Shido. Through that second hole, he could see Savannah talking with Bendwin. The Green Salt's sept would find themselves with few wise ones, too. Merrick was sure of it. Dyrella touched his arm. Husband, she murmured. Savannah said it would only remain open a short while. Merrick nodded. Dyrella always saw straight to the point. Veiling himself, he ran forward and leaped through the hole he had made. Whatever Savannah and the wetlander said, he would send none of his Moshane through before he knew it was safe. He landed heavily on a slope covered with dead grass and nearly pitched head over heels down the hill before he caught himself. For a moment, he stared back up at the hole. On this side, it hung more than a foot above the ground. Wife, he shouted, there is a drop. Black eyes leaped through, veiled and spears ready, and maidens also. As well try to drink sand as try to keep maidens from being among the first. The rest of the Moshane followed at a run, Algaitiswai and wives and children, jumping down on the fly. Craftsfolk and traders and Gaishine, most pulling heavily loaded packhorses and mules, near to six thousand altogether. His sept, his people. They still would be once he went to Roydian. Savannah could not keep him from becoming clan chief for much longer. Scouts began spreading out immediately, while the sept still rushed out of the hole. Lowering his veil, Merrick shouted orders that sent a screen of Algaid Siswai toward the crests of the surrounding hills, while everyone else remained concealed below. There was no telling who or what lay beyond those hills. Rich lands, the wetlander claimed, but this part did not look rich to him. The rush of his sept became a flood of Algaid Siswai he did not really trust. Men who had fled their own clans because they did not believe Randolph Thor was truly the Karakarn. Merrick was not sure what he himself believed, but a man did not abandon sept and clan. These men called themselves Meredin, the Brotherless, a fitting name, and he had two hundred... The hole suddenly snapped into a vertical slash of silver that sliced through ten of the Brotherless. 
Pieces of them fell onto the slope, arms, legs. The front half of a man slid almost to Merrick's feet. Staring at the place where the hole had been, he stabbed at the red spot with his thumb. Useless, he knew, but... Darren, his eldest son, was one of the stone dogs waiting as a rear guard. They would have been the last through. Surail, his eldest daughter, had remained with the stone dog for whom she was thinking of giving up the spear. His eyes met Dirella's, as green and beautiful as the day she had laid the wreath at his feet, and threatened to cut his throat if he did not pick it up. We can wait, he said softly. The wetlander had said three days, but maybe he was wrong. His thumb stabbed the red spot again. Dirella nodded calmly. He hoped there would be no need to cry in one another's arms once they could be alone. A maiden came skittering down the slope from above, hurriedly lowering her veil and actually breathing hard. Merrick, Naisa said, not even waiting for him to see her. There are spears to the east, only a few miles and running straight at us. I think they are rain, at least seven or eight thousand of them. He could see other Algaid Siswai running toward him. A young brother to the eagle, Cairdon, slid to a stop, speaking as soon as Merrick saw him. I see you, Merrick. There are spears no more than five miles to the north, and wetlanders on horses. Perhaps ten thousand of each. I do not think any of us broke the crest, but some of the spears have turned toward us. Merrick knew before the grizzled water-seeker named Lairod opened his mouth. Spears coming over a hill three or four miles to the south. Eight thousand or more. Some of them saw one of the boys. Leorod never wasted words, and he would never say which boy, who in truth could be anyone without gray hair to Leorod. There was no time for wasting words, Merrick knew. Hamel! he shouted. No time for proper courtesy to a blacksmith, either. The big man knew something was wrong. He scrambled up the slope, likely moving faster than he had since first picking up a hammer. Merrick handed in the stone cube. You must press the red spot and keep pressing it no matter what happens, no matter how long it takes for that hole to open. That is the only way for any of you. Hummel nodded, but Merrick did not even wait for him to say that he would. Hummel would understand. Merrick touched Dirella's cheek, careless of how many eyes were on them. Shade of my heart, you must prepare to put on white. Her hand strayed toward the hilt of her belt knife. She had been a maiden when she made his wreath, but he shook his head firmly. You must live, wife, roof mistress, to hold together what remains. Nodding, she pressed fingers to his cheek. He was astonished. She had always been very reserved in public. Raising his veil, Merrick shoved one spear high above his head. Machine! he roared. We dance! Up the slope they followed him, men and maidens, nearly a thousand strong, counting the brotherless. Perhaps they could be counted among the sept. Up the slope and west. That way lay the nearest and the fewest. Perhaps they might buy enough time, though he did not really believe that. He wondered whether Savannah had known of this. Ah, the world had grown very strange since Randolph Thor came. Some things could not change, though. Laughing, he began to sing. Wash the spears while the sun climbs high. Wash the spears while the sun falls low. 
Wash the spears, who fears to die? Wash the spears, no one I know. Singing, the Moshen Shido ran to dance their deaths. Frowning, Grandal watched the gateway close behind the last of the Jumai Shido. The Jumai and a great many wise ones. Unlike with the others, Samael had not simply knotted this web so it would fall apart eventually. At least she assumed he held it to the last. The closing, right on the heels of the last brown and gray-clad men, was too fortuitous otherwise. Laughing, Samael tossed away the bag, still holding a few of those useless bits of stone. Her own empty sack was long since discarded. The sun sat low behind the mountains to the west, half of a glowing red ball. One of these days, she said dryly, you will be too smart for your own good. A fool box, Samael? Suppose one of them had understood. None did, he said simply, but he kept rubbing his hands together and staring at where the gateway had been, or maybe at something beyond. He still held the mask of mirrors, giving him the illusion of added height. She had dropped hers as soon as the gateway closed. Well, you certainly managed to put a panic into them. Around them lay the evidence, a few low tents still standing, blankets, a cook pot, a rag doll, all sorts of rubbish lying where it had fallen. Where did you send them? Somewhere ahead of Althor's army, I suppose? Some, he said absently. Enough. His staring introspection vanished abruptly, and his disguise as well. The scar across his face seemed especially livid. Enough to cause trouble, particularly with their wise ones channeling, but not so many that anyone will suspect me. The rest are scattered from Ilion to Gildon. As to how or why, maybe Althor did it, for his own reasons, but I certainly wouldn't have wasted most of them if it was my work, now would I? He laughed again, caught up in his own brilliance. She adjusted the bodice of her dress to cover a start. Competing that way was remarkably silly. She had told herself that ten thousand times and never listened once. Remarkably silly. And now the dress felt as if it might fall off, which had nothing to do with her start. He did not know Savannah had taken every Shido woman who could channel with her. Was it finally time to abandon him? If she threw herself on Demondred's mercy, as if reading her thoughts, he said, You're tied to me as tightly as my belt, Grandal. A gateway opened, revealing his private rooms in Ilion. The truth doesn't matter any more if it ever has. You rise with me or fall with me. The great lord rewards success, and he's never cared how it was achieved. As you say, she told him. Demondred had no mercy. And Semirag, I rise or fall with you. Still, something would have to be worked out. The great lord rewarded success, but she would not be pulled down if Samael failed. She opened a gateway to her palace in Aradoman, to the long columned room where she could see her pets frolicking in the pool. But what if Althor comes after you himself? What then? Althor isn't going after anyone, Samael laughed. All I have to do is wait. Still laughing, he stepped into his gateway and let it close. The Murdral moved from the deeper shadows, becoming visible. In its eyes, the gateways had left a residue, three patches of glowing mist. 
It could not tell one flow from another, but it could distinguish Saidine from Saidar by the smell. Saidine smelled like the sharp edge of a knife, the point of a thorn. Saidar smelled soft, but like something that would grow harder the harder it was pressed. No other Murdral could smell that difference. Shaida Haran was like no other Murdral. Picking up a discarded spear, Shaida Haran used it to upend the bag Samael had discarded, and then to stir the bits of stone that fell out. Much was happening outside the plan. Would these events churn chaos, or... Angry black flames raced down the spear haft from Shadaharan's hand, the hand of the hand of the shadow. In an instant, the wooden haft was charred and twisted, the spearhead dropped off. The murderer let the blackened stick fall and dusted soot from its palm. If Samael served chaos, then all was well. If not... A sudden ache climbed the back of its neck. A faint weakness washed along its limbs. Too long away from Shale Ghoul. That tie had to be severed somehow. With a snarl, it turned to find the edge of shadow that it needed. The day was coming. It would come. Chapter 41 A Crown of Swords Tossing... Rand dreamed, wild dreams, where he argued with Perrin and begged Matt to find Elaine, where colors flashed just beyond sight, and Padan Fain leaped at him with a flashing blade, and sometimes he thought he heard a voice moaning for a dead woman in the heart of a fog. Dreams where he tried to explain himself to Elaine, to Avienda, to Min, to all three at once, and even Min looked at him with scorn. Not to be disturbed, Cadswain's voice. Part of his dreams? The voice frightened him. In his dream he shouted for Luz Theron, and the sound echoed through a thick mist where shapes moved and people and horses died screaming. A fog where Cadswain followed him implacably while he ran, panting. Alana tried to soothe him, but she was afraid of Cadswain too. He could feel her fear as strongly as his own. His head hurt, and his side. The old scar was fire. He felt Sidine. Someone held Sidine. Was it him? He did not know. He struggled to wake. You'll kill him, Min shouted. I won't let you kill him. His eyes opened, staring up at her face. Not looking at him, she had his head wrapped in her arms and was glaring at someone away from the bed. Her eyes were red. She had been crying, but no longer. Yes, he was in his own bed, in his rooms in the Sun Palace. He could see a heavy square blackwood bedpost set with wedges of ivory. Coatless, in a cream silk blouse, Min lay curled around him protectively, atop the linen sheet that covered him to the neck. Alana was afraid, that lay shivering in the back of his head. Afraid for him. For some reason he was sure of that. I think he is awake, Min, Amis said gently. Min looked down, and her face, framed in dark ringlets, beamed with a sudden smile. Carefully, because he felt weak, he removed her arms and sat up. His head whirled dizzily, but he forced himself not to lie back again. His bed was ringed. To one side stood Amis, flanked by Bera and Karuna. 
Amisa's two youthful features bore no expression at all, but she brushed back her long white hair and shifted her dark shawl as though tidying herself after a struggle. Outwardly, the two Aes Sedai were serene, yet with determined serenity. A queen ready to fight for her throne, a countrywoman ready to fight for her farm. Oddly, if he had ever seen three people stand together, and not just physically, it was those three, shoulder to shoulder as one. On the opposite side of the bed, Samitsu, with those silver bells in her hair, and a slender sister with thick black eyebrows and a wild look to her raven hair, stood with Cadswain, who had her fists planted on her hips. Samitsu and the raven-haired Aes Sedai wore yellow-fringed shawls, and had jaws set every bit as firmly as Bera or Karuna. Yet Cadswain's stern stare made all four appear hesitant. The two groups of women were not staring at one another, but at the men. At the foot of the bed were Deshiva, with the silver sword and red and gold dragon glittering his collar, and Flynn and Narishma, all grim-faced, trying to watch the women on both sides of the bed at once. Jonan Adley stood beside them, his black coat looking singed on one sleeve. Sidene filled all four men, to overflowing, it seemed. Deshiva held almost as much as Rand could have. Rand looked to Adley, who nodded slightly. Abruptly, Rand realized that he was not wearing anything beneath the sheet that had fallen to his waist, and nothing above except a bandage wound around his middle. How long have I been asleep? he asked. How is it I'm alive? He touched the pale bandage gingerly. Fane's dagger came from Shadalogoth. Once I saw it kill a man in moments with a scratch. He died fast, and he died hard. Deshiva muttered a curse with Padan Fane's name in it. Samitsu and the other yellow exchanged startled looks, but Cadswain merely nodded, the golden ornaments around her iron-gray bun swaying. Yes, Shadalogoth. That would explain several matters. You can thank Sumeko that you're alive, and Master Flynn. She did not glance toward the grizzled man with his fringe of white hair, but he grinned as though she had given him a bow. In truth, surprisingly, the yellows did nod to him. And Corella here, of course, Cadswain went on. Each has done a part, including some things I think have not been done since the breaking. Her voice turned grim. Without all three, you would be dead by now. You still may die unless you let yourself be guided. You must rest without exertion. His stomach rumbled suddenly, loudly, and she added, We've only been able to get a little water and broth down you since you were hurt. Two days is a long time without food for a sick man. Two days. Only two. He avoided looking at Adley. I'm getting up, he said. I won't let them kill you, sheepherder, Min said with an obstinate glint in her eyes, and I won't let you kill you either. She put her arms around his shoulders as if to hold him where he was. If the Karakan wishes to rise, Amis said flatly, I will have Nandera bring in the maidens from the corridor. Somera and Anila will be especially happy to give him just the assistance he needs. The corners of her mouth twitched toward a smile. Once a maiden herself, she knew close enough to everything of that situation. 
Neither Karuna nor Bera smiled. They frowned at him, as at an obstinate fool. "'Boy,' Cadswain said dryly, "'I've already seen more of your hairless bottom cheeks than I wish to, "'but if you want to flaunt them in front of all six of us, "'perhaps someone will enjoy the show. "'If you fall on your face, though, "'I may just spank you before I put you back to bed.' "'By Samitsu's face and Corella's, "'they would be happy to assist her.' "'Narishma and Adley stared at Cadswain in shock, "'while Flynn tugged at his coat as though arguing with himself.' Dashiva, though, barked a rough laugh. "'If you want us to clear the women out,' the plain-faced man began preparing flows, not shields, but complex weaves of spirit and fire that Rand suspected would put anyone they were laid on in too much pain to think of channeling. "'No,' he said quickly. Bera and Karuna would obey a simple order to go, and if Karela and Samitsu had helped keep him alive, he owed them more than pain.' but if Cadswain thought nakedness would hold him where he was, she was in for a surprise. He was not sure the maidens had left him any modesty at all. With a smile from Min, he unwound her arms, tossed back the sheet, and climbed out of the bed on Amisa's side. The wise one's mouth tightened. He could almost see her considering whether to call for the maidens. Bera gave Amisa an agonized, uncertain look, while Karuna hurriedly turned her back, her cheeks darkening. Slowly he walked to the wardrobe, slowly because he expected he might give Cadswain her chance if he tried to move quickly. Fah! she muttered behind him. I vow I should smack the stubborn boy's bottom. Someone grunted what might have been agreement or just disapproval of what he was doing. Ah, but it's such a pretty bottom now, isn't it that? Someone else said in a lilting Mirandian accent. That must have been Corella. A good thing he had his head inside the wardrobe. Maybe the maidens had not peeled away as much modesty as he thought. Light. His face felt hot as a furnace. Hoping the motions of dressing would cover any wobbles, he climbed into his clothes hurriedly. His sword stood propped in the back of the wardrobe, sword belt wound around the dark boarhide scabbard. He touched the long hilt, then took his hand away. Barefoot, he turned back to the others while still tying the laces of his shirt. Min still sat cross-legged on the bed in her snug green silk breeches, by her expression unable to decide between approval and frustration. "'I need to talk with Dashiva and the other Ashaman,' he said. "'Alone.' Min scrambled off the bed and ran to hug him. Not tightly. She was very careful of his bandaged side. "'I've waited too long to see you awake again,' she said, sliding an arm around his waist. "'I need to be with you.' She emphasized that just a tad. She must have had a viewing, or maybe she just wanted to help steady his legs. That arm seemed to offer support. Either way, he nodded. He was not all that steady. Laying a hand on her shoulder, he suddenly realized that he did not want the Ashaman to know how weak he was, any more than Cadswain or Amis. Bera and Karuna made reluctant curtsies and started for the door, then hesitated when Amis did not move right away. So long as you do not intend to leave these rooms, the wise one said, not in the slightest as though speaking to her Karakarn. Rand raised a naked foot. Do I look as though I'm going anywhere? Amis sniffed, but with a glance at Adley, she gathered up Bera and Karuna and departed. Cadswain and the other two were only a moment more in going. 
The gray-haired Green glanced at Adley, too. It could not be much of a secret that he had been gone from Carrion for days. At the door, she paused. Don't do anything foolish, boy. She sounded like a stern aunt, cautioning a shiftless nephew without much expectation he would listen. Samitsu and Karela followed her out, dividing their frowns between him and the Ashaman. As they vanished, Dashiva laughed, a sharp wheeze, shaking his head. He actually sounded amused. Rand stepped away from Min to fetch his boots from beside the wardrobe and take a rolled pair of stockings from inside. I'll join you in the anteroom as soon as I'm booted, Dashiva. The plain-faced Ashaman gave a start. He had been frowning at Adley. As you command, my lord dragon, he said, pressing fist to heart. Waiting until the four men were gone, Rand sat down in a chair with a feeling of relief and began pulling on his stockings. He was sure his legs felt stronger just for being up and moving. Stronger, but they still did not want to support him very well. Are you sure this is wise? Min said, kneeling beside his chair, and he gave her a startled look. If he had talked in his sleep during those two days, the Aes Sedai would have known. Amis would have had Anila and Sumera and fifty more maidens waiting when he woke. He tugged the stocking the rest of the way up. Do you have a viewing? Min sat back on her heels, folded her arms beneath her breasts, and gave him a firm look. After a moment, she decided it was not working and sighed. It's Cad Swain. She's going to teach you something. You and the Ashaman. All the Ashaman, I mean. It's something you have to learn, but I don't know what it is, except that none of you will like learning it from her. You aren't going to like it at all. Rand paused with a boot in hand, then stuffed his foot in. What could Cad Swain or any Aes Sedai teach the Ashaman? Women could not teach men or men women. That was as hard a fact as the one power itself. We will see, was all he said. Plainly, that did not satisfy Min. She knew it would happen, and so did he. She was never wrong. But what could Cad Swain possibly teach him? What would he let her teach him? The woman made him unsure of himself, uneasy in a way he had not felt since before the Stone of Tear fell. Stamping his foot to settle it in the second boot, he fetched his sword belt from the wardrobe and a red coat worked in gold, the same he had worn to the Sea Folk. What bargain did Marana make for me? he asked, and she made an exasperated sound in her throat. None, as of this morning, she said impatiently. She and Rafella haven't left the ship since we did, but they've sent half a dozen messages asking if you're well enough to return. I don't think the bargaining has gone well for them without you. I suppose it's too much to hope that's where you're going. Not yet, he told her. Min said nothing, but she said it very loudly, fists on her hips and one eyebrow raised high. Well, she would know most of it soon enough. In the anteroom, all the Ashaman except Dashiva sprang out of their chairs when Rand appeared with Min. Staring at nothing and talking to himself, Dashiva did not notice until Rand reached the rising sunset in the floor, and then he blinked several times before rising. Rand addressed himself to Adley while fastening the dragon-shaped buckle of his sword belt. The armies reached the hill forts in Ilion already. He wanted to take one of the gilded armchairs, but would not let himself. 
How? It should have been several more days at the best. At best. Flynn and Narishma looked as startled as Deshiva. None of them had known where Adley and Hopwell had gone, or more. Deciding who to trust was always the difficulty, and trust a razor's edge. Adley drew himself up. There was something about his eyes beneath those thick eyebrows. He had seen the wolf, as they said in Kyrian. The High Lord Wireman left the foot behind and pressed forward with the horse, he said, reporting stiffly. The Aiel kept up, of course. He frowned. We encountered Aiel yesterday, Shido. I don't know how they got there. There were maybe nine or ten thousand altogether, but they didn't seem to have any wise ones who could channel with him, and they didn't really slow us down. We reached the hill forts at noon today. Rand wanted to snarl. Leaving the foot behind? Did Wireman think he was going to take palisaded forts on hilltops with horsemen? Probably. The man probably would have left the Aiel behind, too, if he could have outrun them. Fool nobles and their fool honor. Still, it did not matter. Except to the men who died because the High Lord Wireman was contemptuous of anyone who did not fight from horseback. Eben and I began destroying the first palisades as soon as we arrived, Adley went on. Wireman didn't much like that. I think he would have stopped us, but he was afraid to. Anyway, we began setting fire to the logs and blowing holes in the walls, but before we more than started, Samael came. A man channeling Saedin, at least, and a lot stronger than Eben or me. As strong as you, my Lord Dragon, I'd say. He was there right away, Rand said incredulously, but then he understood. He had been sure Samael would stay safe in Ilion, behind defenses woven of the power, if he thought he had to face Rand. Too many of the Forsaken had tried, and most were dead now. In spite of himself, Rand laughed and had to hug his side, laughing hurt. All that elaborate deception to convince Samael he would be anywhere but with the invading army to bring the man out of Ilion, and all made unnecessary by a knife in Padanfain's hand. Two days... By this time, everybody who had eyes and ears in Kyrian, which certainly included the Forsaken, knew that the Dragon Reborn lay on the edge of death. As well toss wet wood on the fire as think otherwise. Men scheme and women plot, but the wheel weaves as it will. That was how they said it in Tear. Go on, he said. More was with you last night? Yes, my lord Dragon. Fedwin comes every night, just like he's supposed to. Last night it was plain as Eben's nose we'd reached the forts today. I don't understand any of this. Deshiva sounded upset. A muscle in his cheek was twitching. You've lured him out, but to what purpose? As soon as he feels a man channel with anything near your strength, he'll flee back to Ilion and whatever traps and alarms he has woven. You won't get at him there. He will know as soon as a gateway opens within a mile of the city. We can save the army, Adley burst out. That's what we can do. Wireman was still sending charges against that fort when I left, and Samael cuts everyone to rags despite anything Eben or I can do. He shifted the arm with the singed sleeve. We have to strike back and run immediately, and even so, he nearly burned us where we stood more than once. The Aiel are taking casualties, too. They're only fighting the Ilioners who come out. The other hill forts must be emptying, so many were coming when I left. But any time Samael sees fifty of us together, Aiel or anybody, he rips them apart. 
If there were three of him, or even two, I'm not sure I'd find anybody alive when I go back. Dashiva stared at him, as if at a madman, and Adley shrugged suddenly, as though feeling the lightness of his bare black collar compared with the sword and dragon on the older man's. Forgive me, Ashaman, he muttered, abashed, then added in a still lower voice, but we can at least save them. We will, Rand assured him, just not the way Adley expected. You're all going to help me kill Samael today. Only Deshiva looked startled. The other men just nodded. Not even the Forsaken frightened them anymore. Rand expected argument out of Min, maybe a demand to come along, but she surprised him. I expect you would as soon as no one found out you're gone before they have to, sheepherder. He nodded, and she sighed. Perhaps the Forsaken had to depend on pigeons and eyes and ears, just like anyone else, but being too sure could be fatal. The maidens will want to come if they know Min. They would want to, and he would be hard-pressed to refuse, if he could refuse. Yet the disappearance even of Nandera and whoever she had on guard might be too much. Min sighed again. I suppose I could go talk to Nandera. I might be able to keep them out in the hallway for an hour. But they won't be pleased with me when they find out. He almost laughed again before he remembered his side. They definitely would not be pleased with her or with him. More to the point, farm boy. Amis won't be pleased. Or Soralia. The things I let you get me into... He opened his mouth to tell her he had not asked her to do anything, yet before he could utter a word, she moved very close. Looking up at him through long lashes, she put a hand on his chest, tapping her fingers. She smiled warmly and kept her voice soft, but the fingers were a giveaway. If you let anything happen to you, Randall Thor, I'll give Cadswain a hand whether she needs one or not. Her smile brightened for a moment, almost cheerily, before she turned for the doors. He watched her go. She might make his head spin sometimes. Nearly every woman he had ever met had done that at least a time or two. But she did have a way of walking that made him want to watch. Abruptly, he realized Ashiva was watching as well, and licking his lips. Rand cleared his throat loudly enough to be heard over the sound of the door closing behind her. For some reason, the plain-faced man raised his hands defensively. It was not as though Rand glared at him. He could not go around glaring at men just because men wore tight breeches. Surrounding himself with the emptiness of the void, he seized Sidene and forced frozen fire and molten filth into the weaves for a gateway. Dashiva leaped back as it opened. Maybe having a hand sliced off would teach the man not to lick his lips like a goat. Something crooked and red spiderwebbed across the outside of the void. He stepped through onto bare dirt with Deshiva and the others right behind, releasing the source as soon as the last stepped clear. A sense of loss rushed in as Saedine left, as awareness of Alana dwindled. The loss had not seemed so great while Luz Theron was there, not so huge. Overhead, the golden sun was more than halfway down to the horizon. A gust of wind swept dust from under his boots without leaving any coolness behind. The gateway had opened in a cleared area, marked off by a rope strung between four wooden posts. 
At each corner stood a pair of guards in short coats and baggy trousers stuffed into their boots, swords that appeared slightly serpentine, hanging at their sides. Some had heavy mustaches that hung to their chins or thick beards, and all had bold noses and dark eyes that seemed tilted. As soon as Rand appeared, one of them went running. "'What are we doing here?' Dashiva said, looking about incredulously. Around them stretched hundreds of sharp peaked tents, gray and dusty white, tents and picket lines of already saddled horses. Camelin lay not many miles away, hidden behind the trees, and the Black Tower not much farther, but Taim would not know of this unless he had a spy watching. One of Fedwin Moore's tasks had been to listen, to feel for anyone trying to spy. In a ripple of murmurs spreading outward from the ropes, men with bold noses and serpentine swords rose from their heels and turned to stare expectantly toward Rand. Here and there women stood as well. Saldean women often rode to the wars with their husbands, at least among the nobles and officers. There would be none of that today, though. Ducking under the rope, Rand strode directly to a tent no different from any other except for the banner on the staff in front, three simple red blossoms on a field of blue. The king's penny did not die back even in Saldean winters, and when fires blackened the forests, those red flowers were always the first to reappear. A blossom nothing could kill, the sign of House Bashir. Inside the tent, Bashir himself was already booted and spurred, and his sword on his hip. Ominously, Dira was with him, in a riding dress the same shade as her husband's gray coat, and if she wore no sword, the long dagger at her belt of heavy silver rondelles would do to go on with. The leather gauntlets tucked behind that belt spoke of someone meaning to ride hard. I hadn't expected this for days yet, Bashir said, rising from a folding camp chair. Weeks, I hoped, in truth. I'd hoped to have most of Taim's leavings, armed the way young Matt and I planned. I've gathered every maker of crossbows I could find into a manufactory. And they're starting to produce them like a sow dropping piglets, but as it is, no more than fifteen thousand have crossbows and know what to do with them. With a questioning look, he lifted a silver pitcher from atop the maps spread out on his folding table. Do we have time for punch? No punch. Rand said impatiently. Bashir had spoken before about the men Taim found who could not learn to channel, but he had scarcely listened. If Bashir thought he had trained them well enough, that was all that mattered. Dashiva and three more Ashaman are waiting outside. As soon as more joins them, we'll be ready. He eyed Dira Nigalin to Bashir, towering over her diminutive husband with her hawk's beak of a nose and her eyes that made a hawk's look mild. No punch, Lord Bashir, and no wives. Not today. Dira opened her mouth, her dark eyes all but glowing suddenly. No wives, Bashir said, knuckling his heavy gray-streaked mustaches. I will pass the order. Turning to Dira, he held out his hand. Wife, he said mildly. Rand winced, mild tone or no, and waited for the eruption. Dira's mouth thinned. She scowled down at her husband, a hawk ready to stoop on a mouse. Not that Bashir looked anything like a mouse, of course, just a much smaller hawk. She drew a deep breath. Dira could make drawing a deep breath seem a thing that should cause the earth to tremble. And unhooking her sheathed dagger from her belt, she laid it in her husband's hand. 
We will talk of this later, Davram, she said. At length. One day when he had time, Rand decided, he was going to make Bashir explain how he did that. If there ever was time. At length, Bashir agreed, grinning through his mustaches as he stuffed the dagger behind his own belt. Maybe the man was simply suicidal. The rope had been taken down outside, and Rand stood waiting with Deshiva and the other Ashaman, while nine thousand Saldean light horse arrayed themselves behind Bashir in a column of threes. Somewhere behind them, fifteen thousand men who called themselves the Legion of the Dragon would be gathering afoot. Rand had glimpsed them, everyone in a blue coat made to button up the side so the red and gold dragon across the chest would not be broken. Most carried steel-armed crossbows, some bore heavy unwieldy shields instead, but not one carried a pike. Whatever odd notion Madden Bashir had cooked up, Rand hoped it would not lead a lot of this legion to death. Moore grinned eagerly while he waited, all but bouncing on his toes. Perhaps he was simply glad to be back in his black coat with the silver sword on his collar. Yet Adli and Narishma were almost identical grins, and for that matter, Flynn's was not far off. They knew where they were going now and what to do there. Deshiva was scowling at nothing as usual, his lips moving silently, as usual. Also silent, scowling, were the Saldean women gathered behind Dira, watching from one side. Eagles and falcons, feathers ruffled and furious. Rand did not care how they grimaced and frowned. If he could face Nandera and the rest of the maidens after keeping them back from this, then the Saldean men could put up with any number of lengthy discussions. Today, the light willing, no women would die because of him. So many men could not be lined up in a minute, even when they had been awaiting the order. But in a remarkably short time, Bashir raised his sword and called, My Lord Dragon! A shout rippled down the great column behind him. The Lord Dragon! Seizing the source, Rand made a gateway between the posts, four paces by four, and ran through as he tied off the weave, filled with Saedine and the Ashaman on his heels, into a great open square surrounded by huge white columns, each topped with a marble wreath of olive branches. At the two ends of the square stood nearly identical purple-roofed palaces of columned walks and high balconies and slender spires. Those were the King's Palace and the slightly smaller Great Hall of the Council, and this was the square of Tammuz, in the heart of Ilion. A skinny man in a blue coat with a beard that left his upper lip bare stood gaping at the sight of Rand and the black-coated Ashaman leaping out of a hole in midair, and a stout woman, in a green dress cut high enough to show green slippers and her ankles in green stockings, pressed both hands to her face and stood rooted right in front of them, her dark eyes popping. All the people were stopping to stare, hawkers with their trays, carters halting their oxen, Men and women and children with their mouths hanging open. Rand thrust his hands high and channeled. I am the dragon reborn. The words boomed across the square, amplified by air and fire, and flames shot up from his hands a hundred feet. Behind him, the Ashaman filled the sky with balls of fire streaking in every direction. All saved a Shiva, who made blue lightnings crackle in a jagged web above the square. No more was needed. A shrieking flood of humanity fled in all directions, away from the square of Tammuz. They fled just in time, 
Rand and the Ashaman darted aside from the gateway, and Davram Bashir led his wildly screaming Saldeans into Ilion, a flood of horsemen waving their swords as they poured out. Straight ahead, Bashir led the center line of the column, just as they had planned what seemed so long ago, while the other two lines peeled off to either side. They streamed away from the gateway, breaking apart into smaller groups, galloping into the streets leading out of the square. Rand did not wait to see the last of the horsemen exit. With well under a third out of the gateway, he immediately wove another, smaller opening. You did not need to know a place at all to travel if you only intended to go a very short distance. Around him he felt Dashiva and the rest weaving their gateways. But he was already stepping through his own, letting it close behind him atop one of the slender towers of the king's palace. Absently, he wondered whether Matin Stepaneos den Bulgar, the king of Ilion, was somewhere below him at that moment. The top of the spire stretched no more than five paces across, surrounded by a wall of redstone not quite chest high on him. At fifty paces, it was the highest point in all of the city. From there, he could see across rooftops glittering beneath the afternoon sun, red and green and every color, to the long earthen causeways that cut through the vast tall grass marsh surrounding city and harbor. A sharp tang of salt hung in the air. Ilion had no need of walls, with that all-enveloping marsh to stop an attacker. Any attacker who could not make holes in the air. But then, walls would have done no good either. It was a pretty city, the buildings mainly of pale-dressed stone, a city crisscrossed by as many canals as streets, like traceries of blue-green from this height. But he did not stop to admire it. Though across the roofs of taverns and shops and spired palaces, he directed flows of air and water, fire and earth and spirit, turning as he did so. He did not try to weave the flows, simply swept them out over the city and a good mile out over the marsh. From five other towers came flows sweeping low, and where they touched one another uncontrolled, light flashed and sparks flared and clouds of colored steam burst, a display any illuminator might have envied. A better way to frighten people under their beds and out of the way of Bashir's soldiers he could not imagine, though that was not the reason for it. Long ago he had decided that Samael must have wards woven throughout the city, set to give an alarm should anyone channel Sayadin. Wards inverted so no one except Samael himself could find them. Wards that would tell Samael exactly where that man was channeling so he could be destroyed on the instant. With luck, every one of those wards was being triggered now. Luce Theron had been sure Samael would sense them wherever he was, even at a distance. That was why the wardings should be useless now. That sort had to be remade once triggered. Samael would come. Never in his life had he relinquished anything he considered his, however shaky his claim, not without a fight. All that from Luce Theron. If he was real. He had to be. Those memories had too much detail. But could not a madman dream his fancies in detail, too? Loose Theron, he called silently. The wind blowing across Ilion answered. Below, the square of Tammuz stood deserted and silent, empty except for a few abandoned carts. Edge on, the gateway was invisible except for the weaves. Reaching down to those weaves, Rand untied the knot and, as the gateway winked from existence, reluctantly released Sidene. All the flows vanished from the sky. Maybe some of the Ashaman still held on to the source, but he had told them not to. He had told them that any man he felt channeling in Ilion once he himself stopped, he intended to kill without warning. 
He did not want to find out afterward that the channeler had been one of them. He leaned on the wall, waiting, wishing he could sit. His legs ached and his side burned however he stood, yet he might need to see as well as feel a weave. The city was not entirely quiet. From several directions he could hear distant shouts, the faint clash of metal. Even moving so many men to the border, Samael had not left Ilion entirely unprotected. Rand turned, trying to watch in every direction. He thought Samael would come to the king's palace, or that other at the far end of the square, but he could not be certain. Down one street he saw a band of Saldeans clashing with an equal number of mounted men in shining breastplates. More Saldeans suddenly galloped in from one side, and the fight vanished from his sight behind buildings. In another direction, he spotted some of the Legion of the Dragon, marching across a canal's low bridge. An officer marked by a tall red plume on his helmet strode ahead of some twenty men carrying wide shields as tall as their shoulders, followed by perhaps two hundred more with heavy crossbows. How would they fight? Shouts and steel ringing on steel in the distance, the faint screams of dying men. The sun slid downward, and shadows lengthened across the city. Twilight and the sun a low crimson dome in the west. A few stars appeared. Had he been wrong? Would Samael simply go elsewhere, find another land to master? Had he been listening to anything other than his own mad ramblings? A man channeled. For a moment, Rand froze, staring at the great hall of the council. That had been enough of Sidene for a gateway. He might not have felt a much smaller channeling the length of the square. It had to be Samael. In an instant, he had seized the source, woven a gateway, and leaped through with lightning ready to fly from his hands. It was a large room, lit by huge mirrored golden stand lamps and others hanging on chains from the ceiling, with snowy white marble walls carved in friezes showing battles and ships crowding the marsh-bordered harbor of Ilion itself. At the far end of the room, nine heavily carved and gilded armchairs stood like thrones atop a high, stair-fronted white dais, the center chair with a back higher than any other. Before he could release the gateway behind him, the tower top where he had stood exploded. He felt the wash of fire and earth even as a storm of stone fragments and dust struck through the gateway, knocking him down on his face. Pain stabbed his side as he landed, a sharp red lance digging into the void where he floated, and that as much as anything else made him release the gateway. Someone else's pain, someone else's weakness. He could ignore them in the void. He moved, forcing another man's muscles to work, pushed himself up and scrambled away in a lurching run toward the dais, just as hundreds of red filaments burned down through the ceiling, burned through the sea-blue marble floor in a wide circle all around where the residue of his gateway was still fading. One stab through the heel of his boot, through his heel, and he heard himself cry out as he fell. Not his pain, inside or foot. Not his. Rolling onto his back, he could see the remnants of those burning red wires still, fresh enough to make out fire and air, woven in a way he had not known. Enough to make out exactly the direction they had come from. Black holes in the floor, and ornately worked white plaster ceiling high overhead, hissed and crackled loudly at the touch of the air. His hands rose, and he wove balefire. Began to weave it. Someone else's cheek stung from a remembered slap, and Cadswain's voice hissed and crackled in his head like the holes the red filaments had made. Never again, boy. You will never do that again. It seemed that he heard Luce Theron whimpering in distant fear of what he was about to loose, what had almost destroyed the world once. 
Every flow but fire and air fell away, and he wove as he had seen. A thousand fine hairs of red blossomed between his hands. Fanning out slightly, they shot upward. A circle of the ceiling, two feet across, fell in stone chips and plaster dust. Only after he had done it did he think that there might be someone between him and Samael. He intended to see Samael dead this day, but if he could do it without killing anyone else... The weaves vanished as he pulled himself to his feet once more and limped hurriedly to the doors in the side of the hall, tall things with every panel set with nine golden bees the size of his fist. A small flow of air pushed one door open before he reached it, too small to be detected at any distance. Hobbling into the corridor, he sank to one knee. The other man's side was fire, his heel agony. Rand pulled his sword up and leaned on it, waiting. A clean-shaven fellow with plump pink cheeks peered around a corner down the way. Enough of his coat showed to name him a servant. At least a coat green on one side and yellow on the other looked like livery. The fellow saw Rand and, very slowly, as though he might not be noticed if he moved slowly enough, slid back out of sight. Sooner or later, Samael would have to. Ileon belongs to me! The voice boomed in the air from every direction and Rand cursed. It had to be the same weave he himself had used in the square, or something very like. It required so little of the power, he might not have felt the actual flows had he been within ten paces of the man. Ileon is mine. I won't destroy what belongs to me killing you. And I won't let you destroy it either. You had the nerve to come after me here? Do you have the courage to follow me again? A sly mocking tone entering that thundering voice. Do you have the courage? Somewhere above, a gateway opened and closed. Rand had no doubt that was what it was. The courage? Did he have the courage? I'm the dragon reborn, he muttered, and I'm going to kill you. Weaving a gateway, he stepped through to a place floors above. It was another hallway lined with wall hangings showing ships at sea. At the far end, the last crimson sliver of the sun shone through a colonnaded walk. The residue of Samael's gateway hung in the air, the dissipating flows like faintly glowing ghosts. Not so faint, Rand could not make them out, though. He began to weave, then stopped. He had leaped up here without a thought of a trap. If he copied what he saw exactly, he would step out wherever Samael had, or so close as made no difference. But with just a slight alteration... No way to be sure whether the change was fifty feet or five hundred. Yet either was close enough. The vertical silver slash began to rotate open, revealing the shadow-cloaked ruins of greatness, not quite as dark as the hallway. Seen through the gateway, the sun was a slightly thicker slice of red, half hidden by a shattered dome. He knew that place. The last time he had gone there, he had added a name to that list of maidens in his head. The first time... Adan Fane had followed and become more than a dark friend, worse than a dark friend. That Samael had fled to Shadarlogoth seemed like coming full circle in more ways than one. There was no time to waste now that he was opening the way. Before the gateway stopped widening, he ran through into the ravaged city that once had been called Arathol, ran limping, letting the weave go as he ran, boots crunching on broken paving stones and dead weeds. The first corner he came to, he ducked around. The ground shook under his feet as roars sounded back the way he had come, light flashing a top flash in the twilight darkness. He felt the wash of earth and fire and air.
Shrieks and bellows rose through the thunderous crashes. Sidene pulsing inside him, he hobbled away without looking back. He ran, and with the power filling him, even in the dark shadows he could see clearly. All around the great city lay, huge marble palaces, each with four and five domes of different shapes painted crimson by the setting sun, bronze fountains and statues at every intersection, great stretches of columns running to towers that soared across the sun. They soared when intact, at least. More ended in abrupt jaggedness than not. For every dome that stood whole, ten were broken eggshells, with the top hacked off or one side gone. Statues lay toppled in fragments or stood with missing arms or heads. Swiftly deepening darkness raced across sprawling hills of rubble, the few stunted trees clinging to their slopes, twisted shapes like broken fingers against the sky. A fan of bricks and stone spread across the way from what might have been a small palace. Half its front missing, the rest of the columned facade leaned drunkenly toward the street. He stopped in the middle of the street, just short of the fan, waiting, feeling for another to use Sidene. Clinging to the sides of the street was not a good idea, and not simply because any building might fall at any time. A thousand unseen eyes seemed to watch from windows like gouged eye sockets, to watch with a nearly palpable sense of anticipation. Distantly he felt the new wound in his side throbbing, a slash of flame, echoing the evil that clung to the very dust of Shatalogoth. The old scar clenched like a fist. The pain of his foot seemed very distant indeed. Closer, the void itself pulsated around him, the Dark One's taint and sidene beating in time with a knife slash across his ribs. A dangerous place by daylight, Shatalogoth, by night. Down the street, beyond a spired monument, miraculously standing straight, something moved. A shadowed shape darting across the way in the darkness. Rand almost channeled, but he could not believe Samael would go scudding that way. When he first stepped into the city, when Samael tried to destroy everything around his gateway, he had heard horrible screams. They had barely registered then. Nothing lived in Shadalogoth, not even rats. Samael must have brought henchmen, fellows he did not mind killing in an attempt to reach Rand. Maybe one of them could lead Rand to Samael. He hurried forward as fast as he could, as soundlessly as he could. Shattered pavement crunched under his boots with a sound like bones snapping. He hoped it was loud only to his sidene-enhanced ears. Stopping at the base of the spire, a thick stone needle covered with flowing script, he peered ahead. Whoever had moved was gone. Only fools or the madly brave went inside Shadalogoth at night. The evil that stained Shadalogoth, the evil that had murdered Aridhol, had not died with Aridhol. Farther along the street, a tendril of silver-gray fog wavered out of a window, creeping toward another that came to meet it from a wide gap in a high stone wall. The depth of that gap shone as though a full moon lay inside. With the night, Mashadar roamed its city prison, a vast presence that could appear in a dozen places at once, a hundred. Mashadar's touch was not a pleasant way to die. Inside Rand, the taint on Sidene beat harder. The distant fire in his side flickered like ten thousand lightnings, one on top of the last. Even the ground seemed to pound beneath his boots. He turned, half thinking to leave now. Very likely Samael had gone, now that Mashadar was out. Very likely the man had lured him here in the hope he would search the ruins until Mashadar killed him. He turned and stopped, 
crouching against the spire. Two Trollocs were creeping down that street, bulky shapes in black mail, half again as tall as he, or more. Spikes stood out on the shoulders and elbows of their armor, and they carried spears with long black points and wicked hooks. To his sidene-filled eyes, their faces stood out clearly, one distorted by an eagle's beak where mouth and nose should have been, the other by a boar's tusked snout. Every line of their creeping shouted fear. Trollocs loved killing, loved blood, but Shadar Logoth terrified them. There would be Murdral about. No Trolloc would have entered this city without Murdral to drive it. No Murdral would have entered without Samael driving. All of which meant Samael must still be here, or these Trollocs would be running for the gates, not hunting. And they were hunting. That boar's snout was snuffling the air for a scent. Abruptly, a figure in rags leaped from a window above the Trollocs, falling on them with spear already stabbing. An Aiel, a woman, Shufa wrapped around her head, but veil hanging. The eagle-beaked Trolloc shrieked as her spear point stabbed deep into its side, stabbed again. As its companion fell, kicking, Borsnout spun with snarl, thrusting viciously, but she ducked low under the black-hooked point and stabbed up into the creature's stomach, and it went down in a thrashing heap with the other. Rand was on his feet and running before he thought. Liar! he shouted. He had thought her dead, abandoned here by him, dead for him. Liar of the Kosida Charin. That name blazed on the list in his head. She whirled to confront him, spear ready in one hand, round bullhide buckler in the other. The face he remembered as pretty despite scars on both cheeks was contorted with rage. Mine, she hissed threateningly through her teeth. Mine! No one may come here! No one! He stopped in his tracks. That spear waited, eager to seek his ribs, too. Liar, you know me, he said softly. You know me. I'll take you back to the maidens, back to your spear sisters. He held out his hand. Her rage melted into a twisted frown. She tilted her head to one side. Randall Thor, she said slowly. Her eyes widened, falling to the dead Trollocs, and a look of horror spread across her face. Randall Thor, she whispered, fumbling the black veil into place across her face with the hand that held her spear. The Karakarn, she wailed, and fled. He hobbled after her, scrambling over piles of rubble spread across the street, falling, ripping his coat, falling again, and nearly ripping it off, rolling and picking himself up on the run. The weakness of his body was distant, and the pain of it, but even floating deep in the void he could only push that body so hard. Lyah vanished into the night. Around the next black-shadowed corner, he thought. He limped around that as fast as he could and nearly ran into four blackmailed Trollocs and a Murdral, inky cloak hanging unnaturally still down its back as the fade moved. The Trollocs snarled in surprise, yet shock lasted less than a heartbeat. Hooked spears and scythe-curved swords rose. The Murdral's dead black blade was in its fist, a blade that gave wounds almost as deadly as Fane's dagger. Rand did not even try to draw the Heronmark sword at his side. Death in a tattered red coat, he channeled, and a sword of fire was in his hands, pulsing darkly with the throb of Saedine, sweeping an eyeless head from its shoulders. Simpler to have destroyed them all the way he had seen the Ashaman kill at Dumai's wells, but changing the weaves now, trying to change, 
might take a fatal moment. Those swords could kill even him. He danced the forms in a darkness lit by the flame in his hands, shadows flying across faces above him, faces with wolves' muzzles and goats, faces contorted in screams as his fiery blade sliced through black mail and the flesh beneath, as if they were water. Trollocs depended on numbers and overwhelming ferocity. Facing him and that sword of the power, they might as well have stood stock still unarmed. The sword vanished from his hands. Still poised at the end of the form called Twisting the Wind, he stood among death. The last Trolloc to fall still thrashed, goat horns scraping on the fragmented pavement. The headless Murdral yet flung its arms about, of course, booted feet scrabbling wildly. Halfmen did not die quickly, even headless. No sooner did the sword disappear than silver lightning lanced down from the cloudless, starry sky. The first bolt struck with a deafening roar not four paces away. The world turned white and the void collapsed. The ground bounced under him as another bolt struck and another. He had not realized he was on his face until then. The air crackled. Dazed, he pushed himself up, half falling as he ran from a hail of lightning that ripped the street apart to a thunder of collapsing buildings. Straight ahead he staggered, not caring where, so long as it was away. Suddenly his head cleared enough for him to see where he was, reeling across a vast stone floor covered with tumbled chunks of stone, some as big as he. Here and there, dark, uneven holes gaped in the floor stones. All around rose high walls and tier upon tier of deep balconies that ran all the way around. Only a small portion of what had once been a vast roof remained at one corner. Stars shone bright overhead. He lurched another step and the floor gave way beneath him. Desperately he flung out his hands. With a jolt, the right hand caught hold of a rough edge. He dangled into pitch blackness. The fall beneath his boots might be a few spans into a basement, or a mile for all he could tell. He could latch bands of air to the jagged rim of the hole above his head to help pull himself out, except somehow Samael had sensed the relatively small amount of cyanide used in the sword. There had been a delay before the lightning struck, but he could not say how long he had taken killing the Trollocs. A minute? Seconds? With a heave, he swung his left arm up, trying to catch the edge of the hole. Pain no longer buffered by the void stabbed through his side like a dagger going in. Spots danced in his vision. Worse, his right hand slipped on crumbling stone, and he could feel his fingers weakening. He was going to have to. A hand grabbed his right wrist. You are a fool, a man's deep voice said. Count yourself lucky I don't care to see you die today. The hand began drawing him up. Are you going to help? the voice demanded. I don't intend to carry you on my shoulders or kill Samael for you. Shaking off his shock, Rand reached up and grabbed the rim of the hole, pulling despite the agony of his side. Despite the agony, he managed to acquire the void again, too, and seize Syedine. He did not channel, but he wanted to be ready. His head and shoulders came above the floor, and he could see the other man, a big fellow, little older than he, with hair black as the night, and a coat black as an ashaman's. Rand had never seen him before. At least he was not one of the Forsaken. Those faces he knew. He thought he did, anyway. Who are you? he demanded. Still heaving, the man barked a laugh. Just say I'm a wanderer passing through. Do you really want to talk now? Saving his breath, Rand struggled upward, getting his chest over the lip, his waist. 
Abruptly, he realized that a glow bathed the floor around them, like the glow of a full moon. Twisting to look over his shoulder, he saw Mashadar. Not a tendril, but a shining silver-gray wave rolling out of one of the balconies, arching over their heads, descending. Without a thought, his free hand rose and balefire shot upward, a bar of liquid white fire slicing across the wave sinking toward them. Dimly, he was aware of another bar of pale solid fire rising from the other man's hand that was not clasping his, a bar slashing the opposite way from his. The two touched. Head ringing like a struck gong, Rand convulsed, siding and the void shattering. Everything was doubled in his eyes, the balconies, the chunks of stone lying about the floor. There seemed to be a pair of the other man overlapping one another, each clutching his head between two hands. Blinking, Rand searched for Mashadar. The wave of shining mist was gone. A glow remained in the balconies above, but dimming, receding, as Rand's eyes began to clear. Even mindless Mashadar fled balefire, it seemed. Unsteadily, he got to his feet and offered a hand. I think we best move quickly. What happened there? The other man pushed himself up with a grimace at Rand's proffered hand. He was easily as tall as Rand, rare except among the Aiel. I don't know what happened, he snarled. Run if you want to live. He suited his own words immediately, dashing toward a row of open arches. Not in the nearest wall, Mashadar had come from that one. Fumbling for the void, Rand limped after him as best he could, but before they were completely across the floor, the lightnings fell again, a storm of silver arrows. The two of them darted through the archways, pursued by the thunder of walls and floor collapsing behind them, by clouds of dust and a hail of stones. Shoulders hunched and an arm across his face, Rand ran coughing through a broad room where trembling arches supported the ceiling and bits of stone rained down. He burst out into a street before he knew it, stumbling three steps before stopping. The pain in his side made him want to bend over, but he thought his legs might give way if he did. His wounded foot throbbed. It seemed a year ago that that red wire of fire and air had stabbed his heel. His rescuer stood watching him. Covered with dust head to toe, the fellow managed to look like a king. Who are you? Rand asked again. One of Taim's men? Or did you teach yourself? You can go to Camelin, you know, to the Black Tower. You don't have to live afraid of Aes Sedai. For some reason, saying that made him frown. He could not understand why. I have never been afraid of Aes Sedai, the man snapped, then drew a deep breath. You probably should leave here now, but if you intend to stay and kill Samael, you had better try thinking like him. You have shown you can. He always liked destroying a man in sight of one of that man's triumphs, if he could. Lacking that, somewhere the man had marked as his would do. The Waygate, Rand said slowly. If he could be said to have marked anything in Shadarlogoth, it had to be the Waygate. He's waiting near the Waygate, and he has traps set. Wards as well, it seemed, like those in Ilion to detect a man channeling. Samael had planned this well. The man laughed wryly. You can find the way, it seems, if you're led by the hand. Try not to stumble. A great many plans will have to be relayed if you let yourself be killed now. Turning, he started to cross the street for an alleyway just ahead of them. Wait! Rand called. The fellow kept on, not looking back. Who are you? What plans? The man vanished into the alley.
Rand teetered after him, but when he reached the mouth of the narrow alley, it was empty. Unbroken walls ran a good hundred paces to another street, where a glow told of yet another part of Mashadar abroad. But the man was gone, which was purely impossible. The fellow had had time to make a gateway, of course, if he knew how, but the residue would have been visible, and besides, that much of Sidene being woven so near would have shouted at him. Suddenly he realized that he had not felt Sidene when the man made balefire either. Just thinking of that, of the two streams touching, made his vision double again. Just for an instant he could see the man's face again, sharp where everything else blurred. He shook his head until it cleared. Who in the light are you? he whispered. And after a moment, what in the light are you? Whoever or whatever, the man was gone, though. Samael was still in Shadalogoth. With an effort, he managed to regain the void once more. The taint on Sidene vibrated now, humming its way deep into him. The void itself vibrated. But the weakness of watery muscles and the pain of injuries faded. He was going to kill one of the Forsaken before this night was done. Limping, he ghosted through the dark streets, placing his feet with great care. He still made noise, but the night was full of noise now. Shrieks and guttural cries sounded in the distance. Mindless Mashadar killed whatever it found, and Trollocs were dying in Shadar Logoth tonight as they had once long, long ago. Sometimes down a crossing street he saw Trollocs, two or five or a dozen, occasionally with a half-man, but most often not. None saw him, and he did not bother them. Not simply because Samael would detect any channeling. Those Trollocs and Murdral that Mashadar did not kill were still dead. Samael had almost certainly brought them by the ways, but apparently he did not realize just how Rand had marked the waygate here. Well short of the square where the waygate lay, Rand stopped and looked around. Nearby, a tower stood seemingly whole. Not nearly as tall as some, its top still rose more than fifty paces above the ground. The dark doorway at its base was empty, the wood long rotted away, and the hinges gone to dust. Through blackness relieved only by faint starlight through the windows, he climbed the winding stairs slowly, small clouds puffing up beneath his boots, every second step a stab of pain up his leg. Distant pain. On the tower top, he leaned against the smooth parapet to catch his breath. The idle thought came that he would never hear the end if Min learned of this. Min, or Amis, or Cadswain, for that matter. Across missing rooftops, he could see the great square that had been one of the most important in Arad Hall. Once an Ogier grove had covered this part of the land, but within thirty years after the Ogier who had built the oldest parts of the city departed, the residents had cut down the trees to make room for expanding Arad Hall. Palaces and the remains of palaces surrounded the huge square, the glow of Mashadar shining deep inside a few windows, and a huge mound of rubble covered one end, but in the center stood the waygate, apparently a tall, broad piece of stone. He was not close enough to see the delicately carved leaves and vines that covered it, but he could make out the toppled pieces of high fence that had once surrounded it. Power-wrought metal lying in a heap, they gleamed untarnished in the night. He could also see the trap he had woven around the waygate, inverted so no eye but his could see it. No way to tell by looking whether the Trollocs and Halfmen really had passed through it, yet if they had, they would die before long. A nasty thing. Whatever traps Samael had made down there were invisible to him, but that was expected. Likely they were not very pleasant either. 
At first he could not see Samael, but then someone moved among the fluted flaring columns of a palace. Rand waited. He wanted to be sure. He had only one chance. The figure stepped forward, out of the columns, and a pace into the square, head swinging this way and that. Samael, with snowy lace shining at his throat, waiting to see Rand walk into the square, into the traps. Behind him, the glow in the windows of the palace brightened. Samael peered into the darkness lying across the square, and Mashadar oozed out of the windows, thick billows of silver-gray fog sliding together, merging as they loomed above his head. Samael walked a little to one side, and the wave began to descend, slowly picking up speed as it fell. Rand shook his head. Samael was his. The flows needed for balefire seemed to gather themselves despite the far echo of Cadswain's voice. He raised his hand. A scream tore the darkness, a woman shrieking in agony beyond knowing. Rand saw Samael turn to stare toward the great mound of rubble even as his own eyes flashed that way. Atop the mound, a shape stood outlined against the night sky in coat and breeches, a single thin tendril of Mashadar touching her leg. Arms outstretched, she thrashed about, unable to move from the spot, and her wordless wail seemed to call Rand's name. Liar, he whispered. Unconsciously he reached out, as though he could stretch his arm across the intervening distance and pull her away. Nothing could save what Mashadar touched, though. No more than anything could have saved him had Fane's dagger plunged into his heart. Liar, he whispered, and balefire leaped from his hand. For less than a heartbeat, the shape of her still seemed to be there, all in stark blacks and snowy whites. And then she was gone, dead before her agony began. Screaming, Rand swept the balefire down toward the square, the rubble collapsing on itself, swept down death out of time, and let Sidene go before the bar of white touched the lake of Mashadar that now rolled across the square, billowing past the waygate toward rivers of glowing gray that flowed out from another palace on the other side. Samael had to be dead. He had to be. There had not been time for him to run, no time to weave a gateway. And if he had, Rand would have felt Saedine being worked. Samael was dead, killed by an evil almost as great as himself. Emotion raced across the outside of the void. Rand wanted to laugh, or perhaps cry. He had come here to kill one of the Forsaken, but instead he had killed a woman he had abandoned here to her fate. For a long time he stood on the tower top while the waning moon crossed the sky, almost at its half, stood watching Mashadar fill the square completely, till only the very top of the waygate rose above the surface of the fog. Slowly it began to ebb away, hunting elsewhere. If Samael had been alive, he could have killed the dragon reborn easily then. Rand was not sure he would have cared. Finally, he opened a gateway for skimming and made a platform, a railless disk, half white and half black. Skimming was slower than traveling, it took him at least half an hour to reach Ilion, and the whole way he burned Lyah's name into his mind again and again, flailing himself with it. He wished he could cry. He thought he had forgotten how. They were waiting for him in the king's palace in the throne room, Bashir and Deshiva and the Ashaman. It was exactly like the room he had seen at the other end of the square, down to the stand lamps and the scenes carved into the marble walls and the long white dais. 
exactly the same except for being slightly larger in every dimension. And instead of nine chairs on the dais, there was only a great gilded throne with leopards for its arms and nine fist-sized golden bees that would stand above the head of whoever sat in it. Wearily, Rand sat himself down on the steps at the front of the dais. I take it Samael is dead, Bashir said, looking him up and down in his ragged coat and dust. He's dead, Rand said. Dashiva sighed loudly with relief. The city is ours, Bashir went on, or I should say, yours. He laughed suddenly. The fighting stopped quick enough once the right people found out it was you. Not much to it in the end. Dried blood made a black stain down one torn sleeve of his coat. The council has been waiting eagerly for you to come back. Anxiously, you might say, he added with a wry grin. Eight sweating men had been standing at the far end of the throne room since Rand came in. They wore dark silk coats with gold or silver embroidery on the lapels and sleeves, and falls of lace at their throats and wrists. Some wore a beard that left the upper lip shaved clean, but every one had a broad sash of green silk slanted across his chest, with nine golden bees marching up it. At Bashir's gesture, they came forward, bowing to Rand at about every third step, for all the world as though he wore the finest garments sewn. A tall man seemed to be the leader, a round-faced fellow with one of those beards, with a natural dignity that appeared strained by worry. My lord dragon, he said, bowing again and pressing both hands to his heart. Forgive me, but Lord Bren do be nowhere to be found, and... He won't be. Rand said flatly. A muscle in the man's face jumped at Rand's tone, and he swallowed. As you do say, my lord dragon, he murmured. I do be lord Gregorin den Lucianos, my lord dragon. In lord Bren's absence, I do speak for the council of nine. We do offer you. A hand at his side waved vigorously at a shorter, beardless man, who stepped forward bearing a cushion draped with a length of green silk. We do offer you Ilian. The shorter man whipped the cloth away, revealing a heavy gold circlet, two inches wide, of laurel leaves. The city do be yours, of course, Gregorin went on anxiously. We did put an end to all resistance. We do offer you the crown, and the throne, and all of Ilian. Rand stared at the crown on its cushion, not moving a muscle. People had thought he meant to make himself a king in Tyr, feared he would in Carrion and Andor, but no one had offered him a crown before. Why? Is Matin Stepanaeus so willing to give up his throne? King Matin did disappear two days ago, Gregorin said. Some of us do fear. We do fear Lord Brynd may have something to do with it. Brynd does have... He stopped to swallow... Brend did have a great deal of influence with the king. Some might say too much. But he did be distracted in recent months, and Matten had begun to reassert himself. Strips of grimy coat sleeve and pieces of shirt sleeve dangled as Rand reached to pick up the laurel crown. The dragon wound around his forearm glittered in the lamplight as brightly as the golden crown. He turned it in his hands. You still haven't said why. Because I conquered you? He had conquered Tyr and Kyrian, too, but some turned on him in both lands still. 
yet it seemed to be the only way. That do be part, Gregorin said dryly. Even so, we might have chosen one of our own. Kings have come from the council before. But the grain you did order sent from Tyr has your name on every lip with the light. Without that, many would be dead of starvation. Bren did see every stick of bread go to the army. Rand blinked and snatched one hand from the crown to suck on a pricked finger. Almost buried among the laurel leaves of the crown were the sharp points of swords. How long ago had he commanded the tyrants to sell grain to their ancient enemy, sell it, or die for refusing? He had not realized they kept on after he began preparations to invade Ileon. Maybe they feared to bring it up, but they had feared to stop, too. Maybe he had earned some right to this crown. Gingerly, he set the circle of laurel leaves on his head. Half those swords pointed up, half down. No head would wear this crown casually or easily. Gregorin bowed smoothly. The light illumined Randall Thor, King of Ilion, he intoned, and the seven other lords bowed with him, murmuring, The light illumined Randall Thor, King of Ilion. Bashir contented himself with a bow of his head. He was uncle to a queen, after all. But Deshiva cried out, All hail Randall Thor! King of the world! Flynn and the other Ashaman took it up. All hail, Randall Thor, King of the world! All hail, the King of the world! That had a good sound to it. The story spread, as stories will, and changed, as stories change with time and distance, spreading out from Ilion by coasting ships and merchant trains of wagons, and pigeons sent in secret, spreading in ripples that danced with other ripples and made new. An army had come to Ilion, the story said, an army of Aeel, of Aes Sedai appearing from thin air, of men who could channel riding winged beasts, even an army of Saldaeans, though not many believed that one. Some tales said the dragon reborn had been presented the laurel crown of Ilion by the Council of Nine, and others by Matin Stepaneus himself on bended knee. Some said the dragon reborn had wrenched the crown from Matin's head, then stuck that head on a spike. No, the dragon reborn had raised Ilion to the ground and buried the old king in the rubble. No, he and his army of Ashaman had burned Ilion out of the earth. No, it was Ebudar he had destroyed, after Ilion. One fact, though, turned up again and again in those tales. The laurel crown of Ilion had been given a new name, the Crown of Swords. And for some reason, men and women who told the tales often found a need to add almost identical words. The storm is coming, they said, staring southward in worry. The storm is coming. Master of the lightnings, rider on the storm, wearer of a crown of swords, spinner out of fate, who thinks he turns the wheel of time may learn the truth too late. From a fragmentary translation of the Prophecies of the Dragon, attributed to Lord Mangor Kiramin, sword-bard of Aramael and warder to Karaigan Makonar 
into what was then called the vulgar tongue, circa 300 A.B. The end of the seventh book of The Wheel of Time. (laughs) 